This is being broadcast live at 9.19 p.m. on Friday, September 27, 2019. We have a free roll going. 
We have a free roll going here on the Druff and Friend show on Poker Fartler Radio. It started four minutes ago, but you can get in all the way through 940, so you got about 20 minutes to get in there with a full stack. It is a $50 free roll this week, and it came to you courtesy of four people who donated the $50 together this week. Dr. Peters, $15, Dirty Ernie, $10, SMI Florida, $10, and Gamblebot Chafed Penis gave $15. It's 15, 10, 10, and 15 from these four. Thank you very much. Adds up to 50. And the money is going to be distributed as follows. Three places will be paid, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, exactly as it sounds, to understand the rules on how you can qualify to win this free money. Because if you haven't gone through that process, you will not get paid, and the money will be rolled back into the pool. So make sure you understand that. As I said, you have until 940. There's always 25 minutes of late registration. So you still have some time to get in if you're listening live. The call to listen line is a feature of this show that you can use to call up and listen at any point during the show or after the show or before the show, because if we're not on live, then it'll play random reruns from our seven and a half year history of this show. The show has been going for seven and a half years, just about every week. It'll pick a random rerun and just stream that until we're back live. The call to listen line, which can be reached by any phone in the world, does not require a smartphone, no data plan necessary, no computer, no internet necessary, just a phone that can dial, old school phone that can dial, a new phone that can dial, doesn't matter. Phone number 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. We have an alternate number if that doesn't work for you. 641-741-1095, 641-741-1095. These are the call to listen lines for the show. Never buffers, a no buffer guarantee that when you call it, it's just going to play. There will be no freezing, no buffering. I promise you that. We also have call-in numbers to the show where you can actually call up the live show and talk to me on the air. We have two numbers, 775-FRAUD55, which translates to 775-372-8355. And we have the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone, which is located on the top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line forwards to me wherever I go, and you can call either of those numbers to reach the show while we are on the air. You need to show your caller ID, though. If you have your caller ID blocked, you won't get through. It's that simple. It won't even let it through. It won't even be my choice. It'll just stop you. We have a chat room, which you can use to chat with people during the live show. It needs a flash-enabled device. No iPhones, no iPads can get in for that reason. But if you have a different device that can use Flash, then you can go into the chat room, provided you have a Poker Fraud Alert forum account in good standing. Just press the big chat button near the top of the screen on Poker Fraud Alert. And uh, the free roll, it's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which is near the top of the screen, also on Poker Fraud Alert. And also near the top of the screen is the radio tab. You can use that tab to listen live. You can also... Go to that tab to look at all the phone numbers that I just gave you, if you forget them. I, I realize that aside from our main phone number, which is 775-FRAUD-55, the rest of them are pretty forgettable phone numbers. So 
you can go to that tab and always see the phone numbers up there. And also on that tab, you have links to all the different listening methods. If you want to listen live to the show or to our streaming reruns, you can use the, just the server itself. Just go to the radio tab. You can just listen that way. You can also use the TuneIn app. We have two entries on the TuneIn app. We have one that's for live and one for archive shows. And also Alexa, Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and you can listen live. If you want to hear the previous show on that was already recorded on Alexa, you can say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. If you add the word podcast, then it will play the last episode. We also have our podcast on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, on Bullhorn. These are all apps you can download to use to listen to the show in the archives. So that we have a lot of ways to listen. If there's another way that you would like me to add, please let me know. You can also just play or download the MP3 file of the show directly from the Poker Fraud Alert server. Just go to the radio forum Go to the forum and then look for the one that's called Radio Shows. Just go there. They're all listed. And then you see the MP3. You just click on it, and it'll play on most devices without any special player. And that's actually what I use when I go – if I want to go listen to an old episode, I usually just go that way. It's the quickest and easiest way. It doesn't require an app. So that's also available to you. And, of course, you can download the MP3. So a lot of different ways to listen to the show, and I, I just want to make it as accessible as possible because I know when I have shows I want to listen to – it really gets on my nerves when they don't give me a lot of ways to do it or the ways they give me I don't like. I want to have choices, so I'm giving you choices. With uh, with my Jew budget, you have to understand, because uh, this show doesn't make money, so I'm not going to spend a fortune on giving you choices, but I will give you choices that uh, fit into the low budget of this show. And fortunately, I don't have to be a tech guy. Fortunately, the tech guy is me, so there's no tech guy to pay, so that does save me a little bit of money. Alrighty, the, oh, one more thing, you can text me, I forgot to mention that, you can text me before, after, or during the show, 775-372-8355, our main phone number, I may read your texts on the air, so be careful what you say to me, unless you ask at the beginning of the text, do not read on air, then I'll respect it, but otherwise I, I will use my discretion if I feel like reading your text on the air, if it's something I can tell from reading is not something that people are going to want to hear, or no, they're going to want to hear it. If you won't want them to hear it, then I won't read it. Or if it's something I think they won't want to hear, I won't read it either. But otherwise, I will. <laughs> so, all righty. Uh, I'm going to give you the agenda tonight. Let's see what text we've gotten so far. From the 631, I love the long shows. I've gotten a lot of messages like that in the last few weeks, people encouraging me to do long shows. People saying they don't mind the length. They, they don't mind that it's crazy. Justin Hammer, former tournament director at Commerce, who has not been the tournament director now for a few weeks, he said this week that he listened to the segment I did about him and that it was pretty accurate, but that he did not listen to all 26 hours of the show. <laughs> Some people do find the length to be uh, intimidating or off-putting. To where they, they download it, they go, oh my god, seven hours? I'm, I'm not going to listen to seven hours, that's crazy. And they just, they don't even bother to listen at all because it's, it's so many hours. And if you're one of those people, if you're one of these people who's like, I, I can't listen to a show of that length, I understand. And that's why I put timestamps in the archives where you can jump directly to any segment that you want. I, I actually do it down to the second. 
So you jump to that exact portion of the show, listen to what you want to listen to, and then just don't listen to the rest. So maybe there's something in the show at the three and a half hour mark you want to listen to, then just jump to that and listen to that. I won't be insulted. And even if I would be insulted, I wouldn't know. There's no way for me to tell how much or how listen, how little you listen to it. I do, I do get raw stats that I can look up. It's, it's harder and harder to do. The more listening methods I give, the harder it is for me to keep track of what our ratings really are. In fact, some will not even provide me ratings, so I have to kind of just guess at it. But we still have enough people listening to where I feel it's worth doing. I will only do this show as long as we have uh, enough listeners to where I feel it justifies the time and effort I put into I put into it. Because if we only had like 50 people listening, I wouldn't do this. But uh, since we have well over a thousand listeners, uh, probably well, it's more than 1,500. I can say that for sure. Maybe more than that. Maybe around 1,500 is kind of hard to tell, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. So that's enough. You know, that's, that's, uh, I realize this is kind of a niche topic show. It's about poker and it's about gambling. And if you don't have interest in those topics, you probably won't want to listen to this show. Though there's a few people who do. Some people who listen actually who don't really have that much interest in those topics. They just enjoy the show anyway. And that's great. Okay. So let's try to find Trader Ruski. I'm embarrassed to even try to contact Calwatt because I told him, I asked, are you going to be on? He said, yeah, if you don't get on by, if you don't start it at midnight, and then it started after midnight. (laughs) I guess we didn't start at midnight, I guess, in a way. So I'm going to text him just in case. I'm going to say, well, we didn't start at midnight. He's talking about Eastern. Pacific, we started way before midnight. We started at uh, probably about 12, if we started at 12.19, was the start time. So I'm, I'm texting him that. 12.19 was the start time. So we'll see if he answers. If he answers, I'll try to browbeat him onto coming on. Otherwise, we will go to our West Coast representative, Trader Ruski, who fortunately is not uh, going to bed right now because it's only around 9.30. What's happening, Jeff? Trader Ruski, glad you're on the West Coast, so we have a little longer with you. Be very sad. I have a few hours in me. Yeah, it'd be very sad if you moved to New York or something, and then uh, we'd have the same problem here. But anyway, uh, the reason this show's on Friday this week instead of the planned Thursday was uh, because Benjamin's mom got sick. She's still sick. Uh, she's graciously uh, offered to take care of Benjamin anyway during uh, this evening. And and put him to bed and all that. Last night she just felt so bad. I I did I just didn't want to give her that additionally to deal with. So I delayed it one day. That's what happened there. I could have delayed it another day, but I said okay, I've delayed it enough. We'll we'll do it tonight. So that's why we are on Friday here. I realize some of you don't like the Friday because you can't listen to it at work the next day, but. Some of you do like the Friday because you don't have to be at work and you can listen live. You don't have to be in bed as early. So there's some people who like it, some who don't. Normally, I prefer to have it on Thursday, but uh, Friday is kind of the new alternate day that we go to if we can't make Thursday. Anyway, here's the agenda this week, then we'll get going. After all my talk in a very recent episode about how the Rio is not going to sell until the new convention center is ready, the Rio has sold. (laughs) It's a little bit embarrassing. 
little bit embarrassing when I, I just emphatically stated that for so long that the Rio won't sell because they need the convention space. Well, I wasn't completely wrong because the sale comes with some terms that allow the Rio to still be used by Caesars. I will tell you what this sale means for the World Series of Poker, what it means for the Rio itself, what the future of the World Series of Poker is going to be as far as its location, and a little bit about the new owner and what's most likely going to happen to the property in the long term. That's our main topic tonight. Uh, You know, I'm going to take a flop here and interrupt this agenda and take a caller even though they're not, they're not actually, oh yeah, I see. Yeah, it didn't come through. So you didn't show your caller ID. Or no, maybe they're on. Caller, you're on the air. Caller, hello. Oh, hello. Yes. I was I was trying to call the uh, listen in number. Okay, well then it, then it's okay that you didn't show your caller ID. Somehow you got through. It's not supposed to let people through for not showing their caller ID. But the yeah, the, no. the call to listen number is uh, is six zero five. Three one three zero seven three six. You called the number to the show. It's not working for some reason. Well, did you try the six four one number? Uh, no, I tried the six zero five. Yeah, try the six four one. The six zero five. That, that, that's why we have two if the six zero five malfunctions. And if if that doesn't work, then I don't know what to say. Then I unfortunately can't fix it right now. But uh, give it a shot. Okay. Uh, Frank Rizzo, by the way. Okay. Have a good show. Thank you, Frank. Bye. Goodbye. All right. So that was the Frank Rizzo calling in. I I think Skype just clobbered my setting it must have because i had a setting do not let anonymous calls through and then an anonymous call came through and uh that doesn't make me happy but i'll have to hassle with that later all righty so going on with the agenda resort fees are under a bipartisan attack in congress this is a good thing obviously Do not say that uh, Republicans do not care about you. Do not say that Democrats don't care about you. Because when it comes to resort fees, this is one area where both parties care about you and are going to do the right thing. That both parties have come together in a rare bipartisan effort to attack something everybody hates in the United States, and that is resort fees. Uh, I'm actually surprised it took this long because this is a – it's super unpopular with everybody. I'm like – if a politician goes after resort fees, this is like a slam dunk to win so much pr- public approval. Like, why not? And there's like, who's going to say, yeah, there should be resort fees? I- I'm not taking another unknown call, by the way. Someone's trying to call in. Un- I-, I knew this was going to happen. I knew-, I-, I knew if I say that people can call in unknown, we're going to start getting unknown prank calls. I'm not even going to do it. See, I'm, I'm not going to do it. So. Um, anyway. I think did the, did the new Skype do away with that image with that ability to that would be really annoying that it's uh, yeah weird I may have to just <laughs> I may have to just not answer ones with that caller ID because I think Skype removed that feature what a joke I was kind of looking at it as I was reading the agenda all righty so we'll talk about the resort fees tonight as our second topic. Third topic, a topic just brought up today on social media by Alan Kessler. Alan Kessler is crying foul over a $10 hidden fee on top of a $400 satellite at Maryland Live. This fee is to go to the dealers. A lot of people are getting mad at Kessler and insulting him and telling him that uh, he's being a jerk here and he's being petty. 
I will tell you how I feel about this $10 hidden fee, whether I agree with Kessler, and I will explain why. Phil Ivey reportedly once tipped $4,800 on a $200 massage, but not for himself, for Nick Shulman. And it was actually done as kind of a prank. This story was told by Scott Seaver on Joey Ingram's show recently. I'm going to play that little clip. I will tell you, by the way, I don't like Scott Seaver. I never have. He never done anything to me, but I just really don't like him. I don't like his personality. I, I don't like anything about him. But uh, nevertheless, I'll play that clip of him, and I will tell you guys uh, my take on that whole story, which, by the way, Nick Shulman has verified. Ronnie Barda. I didn't really mention this. I don't know why. But Ronnie Barda appeared on Survivor. He was selected to appear on Survivor. And uh, he lasted just one episode. So we'll talk a little bit about Ronnie Barda and him being on Survivor. And I'll play the clip, not of him being eliminated. I don't have that, but I'll play a clip of him being introduced. A major Russian hacker who operated scam online casinos and uh, did a lot worse than that. That was just a little gambling connection to this whole thing. But he, uh, he, he and a few other people really did a lot of damage with cybercrime. Uh, he's pled guilty. So we'll tell you about this uh, fascinating story and how it has a connection to the online gambling world. Al Alvarez, the writer of The Biggest Game in Town, a very popular poker book from back in the day, has passed away at the age of 90. We'll talk a bit about that book and uh, Al Alvarez himself. A major Bitcoin crash occurred this week, and the reason for the crash could be one of two things, either a major sell-off that occurred or the failure of a new Bitcoin futures app in the U.S. So we'll talk about that crash and whether Bitcoin is going to tumble further. I have about 2.7 Bitcoin to my name, so I wasn't happy to see that. That cost me thousands of dollars. Another crypto story, which I think all of you will find interesting, even if you're really not into cryptocurrencies. I try not to talk too much about cryptocurrencies here because I know it can be boring for people who don't have any interest. But this is an interesting story because it's actually more about a huge messaging app than it is about crypto. There's an app called Kik, K-I-K, which has 300 million users. It's a messaging app, kind of similar to AIM from back in the day. And it's been around for nine years. And I always wondered, how does Kik make money? Because uh, I had heard it did not have any kind of ads or really any kind of premium services. Well, I, I found out why it doesn't. And I found out... Uh, about a scandal that is going down that is going to lead to the closure of Kick, despite its huge size, is going to be closing in about a month or less than a month. And it involves a cryptocurrency and the Securities and Exchange Commission going after them. Micro Gaming Network has announced they're going to be closing, but you can still play on there until 2020. We'll talk a little bit about that. And finally... Poker stars had to cough up 400,000 euros because the Netherlands have fined them. That is our final story for the evening. That is our agenda tonight. And remember, if you want to call in, you need to show your caller ID. 
Otherwise, I won't let the call through. And if you have any doubt, do star A2 before the number. Just do star A2 and then type the number as usual, and it'll definitely show your caller ID. But if I see unknown or private, then I'm just not answering it, regardless of whether Skype can block that anymore. I love how they just take away features over time. That's always lovely. Okay, at least uh, one feature they brought back. Wait, is this... Oh, my God, is this feature gone? I was going to say to share the the sound effects with, with Trader Ruski. Can I do this? Um, I can. Okay. They they keep changing Skype. So I couldn't find that on the menu, but I found it now. So, okay. Let's, let's get going with our first topic. See, 20 minutes in. It's not that bad. I know some podcasts are 20 minutes, but our agenda being 20 minutes is a victory for me. Because that's uh, about as short as it gets. Someone t- texted me, you're correct, Scott Seaver is a Richard Head. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll re- I've told these stories before, but when I get to that segment, I'll tell you a few quick things about my interactions with Scott Seaver and just why I don't like him. He's not a scammer, by the way. He hasn't cheated anyone to my knowledge, and uh, like he hasn't done bad things to people, as far as I know. He's just a jerk and kind of a hypocrite. All righty. Let's talk about the Rio being sold, and I, I'm not a hypocrite here. I, I'm not proud of the fact that we just had a show where I told you it's not going to sell until the convention center's done, and then it sold way before the convention center's done. But it, it sold with certain terms that go along with basically what I was saying. And when you hear this whole story, you'll understand it all. So here's what happened. On September 23rd, 2019, now uh, four days ago, it's actually four and a half days ago because this broke at 3 a.m., Caesars announced through an internal memo that the Rio had sold. I was one of the very first to report this sale because you know I have, I have certain people who give me tips, including some Caesars employees. So a certain Caesars employee who listens to this show... Uh, sent me this internal memo, which, by the way, wasn't top secret. It was sent to every employee there, so it's not like I got something that was classified, but it, this wasn't being distributed to the public. But anyway, the this guy showed it to me, and he showed it to me minutes after he received it, and he was up at 3 a.m., so he was able to see it come in. So I jumped right on this one and announced that the Rio had been sold. Here's what it said in the memo. And they, they, as I said, they emailed this out at 3 a.m. Why 3 a.m.? I don't know. I I would think 8 a.m. would make more sense, but they chose 3 a.m. Team members, today we are announcing the sale of Rio All Suites Hotel and Casino to a company controlled by a principal of Imperial Companies, The Buyer, a New York-based real estate investment development and management company. The transaction is expected to close by quarter one of 2020, subject to regulatory approvals and other customary closing conditions. Under the terms of this agreement, Caesars will continue to manage and operate Rio for a minimum of two years through a lease agreement. After two years, the buyer will have the option to extend our lease for up to an additional year. At the end of the lease term, at the buyer's option, Caesars may be asked to manage Rio or it may provide transition services to the buyer. We'll, We'll talk about all this, by the way. Don't worry. The World Series of Poker will be hosted at the Rio in 2020, and Caesars will retain the rights to this event. The site of the future WSOP events will be announced at a later date. 
This transaction also does not impose marketing restrictions on Caesars for co-owned guest data. For Rio team members, the lease means the property will operate as usual and they will remain Caesars employees. If jobs are eventually eliminated, we, will, we are committed to retaining top talent by connecting Rio t- t- team members with new opportunities within the company. I like how they say top talent. <laughs> what if you're not top talent? Are they just going to say, okay, goodbye. You know, we have to let people go. You're, you're kind of medium talent, so goodbye. That's kind of an interesting paragraph. I'm not exactly sure what that part means. We're grateful for the opportunity to continue working with this incredible team, which is currently uh, beating plan in many areas of the operation. General Manager Steve Ellis has done an impressive job in leading this property throughout this process. Many of you are probably aware that discussions and negotiations regarding the sale of the Rio have been underway for a long time. I want to emphasize that this action is not related to the recent merger with El Dorado. We see this sale as enabling us to focus on on our resources on strengthening our attractive strip portfolio. Please remember Caesar's open-door policy and reach out to your department leaders with any questions. And thank you, as always, for your hard work, commitment, and flexibility as we move forward in this time of change. Tony. Okay, so again, this was aimed not at the customer. In fact, the customer wasn't even supposed to see this. This was actually sent to all employees of Caesar's properties, not just Rio employees, but all Caesar's property employees in Las Vegas. And quickly forwarded to me. They also, at the same time, did put out a press release on PRNewsWire.com, which is a service on the web that is used to put out press releases by companies. And this is the press release, which is not quite as long, but I'll read to you anyway. Caesars Entertainment Corporation, one of the world's most diversified casino entertainment providers, today announced it has signed an agreement to sell the Rio All Suite Hotel and Casino to a company controlled by a principal of Imperial Companies, the buyer, for $516.3 million, which implies a strong sales price. Uh, Under the terms of the agreement, Caesars will continue to operate the property pursuant to a lease for a minimum of two years and pay an annualized rent of $45 million. The buyer has an option to pay Caesars $7 million to extend the lease under similar terms to the third year. At, uh, at the end of the lease term and at the request of the buyer, Caesars may continue to manage Rio and may, or may provide trans, transition services to the buyer. This deal allows Caesars Entertainment to focus our resources on strengthening our attractive portfolio of recently renovated strip properties and is expected to result in incremental uh, e- EBITDA of these properties, said Tony Rodeo of Caesars Entertainment, the CEO. Uh, the retention of the World Series of Poker, retention of Caesars rewards customers are all factors that make this a valuable transaction for Caesars. This agreement allows for co-ownership of the Rio-specific guest data and places no restrictions on Caesars' marketing activities. The Rio will continue to be part of Caesars' rewards network during this lease term, and the transaction is not expected to result in any changes to the guest experience. The World Series of Poker will be, ho- will be hosted at the Rio in 2020, and hosting rights will remain with Caesars' entertainment thereafter. Further re- details on the transaction are available in the Form 8K to be filed with, with the SEC. The transaction is expected to close in the fourth quarter of 2019, subject to regulatory approvals and other customary closing conditions. Okay. That, a contradiction here, by the way. They put this out at the same time. One says they, they'll officially close this in the fourth quarter of 2019, which is just days away. And then the other one says it'll be first quarter of 2020. But whatever. doesn't really matter that much. Okay. So let's break all this down. Some of this is probably clear to you from all this, and some of it probably isn't. But let's break all this down of what's really happening here and what you can really expect from this sale. So, it was sold, but 
nothing's going to change for the moment because all they've sold for the moment is just the property and the buildings. They pretty much just sold real estate. But the casino itself will not be operated by this new company. The new company will not have any employees there. They will not have any power there. They will not have any decision-making power over there. So Caesars will remain in charge just as they, they have been prior to this sale. And that's why the customer experience won't change. They're just going to continue business as usual. So as mentioned in the press release, it will remain a Caesars Rewards, which is another name for Total Rewards. They renamed it this year. Uh, it will remain a Caesars Rewards property, and it will remain that way until at least two years from this sale, which will probably be like early 2022. Because remember, the, it hasn't officially closed yet. And well, let's just assume it's going to be first quarter 2020. I know the press release said something different, but let's just, for simplicity, assume that uh, it's going to be early 2020 when the sale officially closes. Then two years from then is early 2022. Up until that point, it will remain a Caesars Rewards property. Every single employee there will be a Caesars employee. Nothing will change other than who actually owns the building and who actually owns the real estate that the building sits on. That's going to be the only difference, and for the customer, that's not going to mean anything. So you're not going to be able to go over Caesar's head and go to the real owners if you don't like something. Nothing like that. The, the real owners aren't going to be changing things. This is really like, at the moment, that there's a landlord... And Caesars is renting the property and running their casino on the rented property. So you can't go to the landlord to complain about the tenant if you don't like something in the business. It wouldn't matter in this case. So everything for the customer is going to be the same in the immediate future. And that's important to understand. Of course, for poker players, the biggest question is, what about the World Series? As early as December 2017, I announced on this show that the Caesars Convention Center is going to be the eventual home of the World Series. At the time, I projected it being 2020. It's not going to be, but 2021, we'll talk about that shortly. But uh, Seth Polanski, in an interview with Card Player recently, mentioned that it's going to stay at the Rio for a while. He didn't give a commitment other than 2020, and probably 2021 is what he said. But he was kind of indicating that, oh, they're not going to move it over to the convention center because... That space is too valuable there. They're not going to tie it up for two months with the World Series. But that seems like it probably is not going to be true. And in his defense, this is before the sale was announced, and maybe he didn't even know about the sale. So that's, of course, that changes things. But we'll, we'll get into all of that. So for, in 2020, for sure, 100% certain, it is going to be at the Rio again, and it'll appear the exact same as it did in 2019. You're not going to say, oh, well, the new owners, they've really changed some things here. Well, it's under new ownership. I can tell it's so different. No, it's going to – I mean, they make little changes every year anyway, but that's all that's going to happen. Nothing related to the sale is going to change the World Series. The World Series will still be at the Rio. It'll still be operated by Caesars. The new company won't be involved in any way. If you didn't know about this, you would not be aware that there was any sale. And for sure it's happening in 2020. You're not going to hear something in a few months that, oh, actually, we're moving to the convention center. This takes a long time to plan, the World Series. They, they have to get a lot of things in place way, way before it starts. So even in late September, it feels like the World Series kind of just ended, which it did two months ago. But they're already 
working on the 2020 World Series. And there's a lot of things they have to get into place that you don't even think about that they need a lot of notice to do. So this is if it's going to move, there needs to be a lot of notice for them. It's definitely going to be there in 2020. They've announced that in these press releases. Seth Blansky said it too. So there's no question it's going to be there in 2020. But what about 2021? That is unknown at this time. There have been some erroneous reports going around that it's going to move there in 2021, that this has been decided, that it's going to happen, that that's the plan. It's only going to be at the Rio in 2020, then it's moving. Well, that might happen. I'm not saying it won't, but I'm also not saying it will because it's unknown at this time. The Rio will be managed by Caesars throughout the entire year of 2021, unless unless it sells in quarter four of 2020, but then through most of 2021. But, but definitely through the end of the World Series of 2021, it will still be a Caesars property in that they will still be leasing it and they'll still be managing it. So this will be their choice in 2021 if they want to hold it at the Rio. They, they have a contract to do so. So they, they can hold it at the Rio if they want to. The convention center will be done by then. It's currently slated, I think, to be done around April of 2020. So it will be done, and it will have been done for over a year by the time the 2021 World Series comes. And Caesars will have a decision to make. Not in 2021, because they have to decide it before that, but sometime in 2020, they will decide the fate of where the World Series will be in 2021. So what will decide that? What will decide whether the World Series of Poker moves to the Caesars Convention Center in 2021? Well, they have to examine the interest level in their new convention center once it opens and what prices the space seems to be going for. They have to see how much in demand that convention center really is and how much money they can make from it. And if there's a tremendous waiting list of conventions that want to get in there during those months from late May through late July, it's basically a two-month commitment, by the way. They have to take it a little bit in advance of the World Series to set things up, and same with taking it down. So it's basically two full months that they have to tie it up, and it's a lot of space. That's another thing they have to do. So they have to look at at that point, do we want to tie up that much space in the new convention center? Is it worth doing? Because there's pros and cons to doing so. Now, if it's selling really well, and there's tons of conventions that want to go there during those two months, and they can get a lot of money for these conventions and occupy all that space, and if they have space for the World Series anyway at the Rio, which they will, 100%, they will have that space at the Rio if they want it, then they may choose to leave it at the Rio for 2021. But if the convention center is not doing all that great, at least during those two months, if they just don't have that many conventions that want to go there, and if they're not giving up that much money by holding the World Series there, then they probably will hold it at the convention center. Because there are some advantages to Caesars for having it there. You're going to have all these people coming in and filling up the hotels at what is kind of a dead time of year there. It's uh, the summer, because of the high, the hot temperatures there, a lot of people don't want to go to Vegas then. 
I'm not saying it's empty, but it's not the high season there in the summer, except for the high season that's created by the World Series. And so they'll fill up all the hotels in that area, not just uh, the Rio, but they'll fill up a lot of hotels in that area, especially during the high-profile events. These people will have access to all those different Caesars properties in walking distance instead of just being at the Rio. Uh, These people will probably gamble more than had they been at the Rio. These people probably spend more on restaurants and other things at these hotels than they would at the Rio. So there is something to be said about bringing people to the Strip, this very large number of people that come for the World Series, bringing them to the Strip instead of off-strip at the Rio, as they've been all this time. But they probably won't do it if the convention center is selling so well that they'll be throwing away money by having to turn down conventions that want to go there. So they'll have to see how it is selling during those months and make a quick decision in 2020. Remember, it was not even opening until the spring of 2020, so they, they're going to have to make a pretty quick decision of where it's going to be for 2021. The other thing to keep in mind is that the new owners actually are the ones who can decide whether they want Caesars to stay after two years or if they want Caesars out. So two years after the sale closes, Caesars is guaranteed a lease there for $45 million a year. So $90 million is going to be paid back from Caesars to the new owners, Imperial Companies, for that lease. After those two years, then the new owners can say, you know what, screw you guys, get out, we don't want you here anymore, and boot them. They have every right to do that according to the contract. However, the new owners can also say, hey, you know what? Caesars, we would like you to stay and continue managing this property as you were before. And then they can extend the lease, and it's already written in the contract that if this happens, that for an additional $7 million, which will be $52 million, they can lease it for another year, and then I guess they can extend it going forward. It's a little confusing there. It says for $7 million extended under similar terms, but I don't think – I mean, that would be strange if – Caesars could rent the whole thing for seven million for the third year, so I think what they're trying to say is seven more million. It just wouldn't make sense for them to pay forty-five million, forty-five million, then seven million the third year. Now again, that wouldn't be up to Caesars; it would be up to the new owner, and it would have to mutually agree. The new owner could not force Caesars to stay, but the new the the point here is that the new owners can force Caesars to leave after two years. They can take the Rio back, they can destroy the Rio, they can do whatever the hell they want with it. So the Rio has to understand, I mean, the Caesars has to understand that even if they say, hey, we're happy with the World Series at the Rio, people are used to it, it's been there for 15 years, why not continue? It's been fine there, it's very successful over there, people are used to the property, people are used to the World Series being there, they're used to the tournament rooms, like wh- why change it? We, we have a convention center, but why not use it for new conventions? Why, if everyone's fine with it at the Rio and everyone's used to it at the Rio, why, why even bother moving it? Well, the problem is that the new owners can kick them out. The new owners can say, no, it, it's not staying at the Rio because we're using the Rio for something else. We're using that property for something else after this two years is over. I'm not sure how much notice they have to give to Caesars about this, but Caesars does have to keep that in mind that they can't just say, oh, we'll just keep it at, we're just going to keep leasing it and keep it at the Rio for the foreseeable future. They can't say that because the new owners can 
pull the rug out from under them and say, no, you're not staying here anymore. So it's probably moving out of the Rio after 2021 for sure. I wouldn't say for sure. It's probably moving. The reason I'm not saying for sure is because if the lease is extended, then it could stay at the Rio in 2022 and beyond. But I don't believe that Imperial Companies bought this just to let Caesar sit there managing the property and leasing it back from them for eternity. I think that they have some kind of plan of what they want to do with that property. And when they're ready, they will kick Caesars out. Also, I don't think Caesars really wants the Rio anymore. And you may say, oh, well, if that's true, then why are they leasing it back? Why aren't they just done? Well, that's a good question. Why are they leasing it back? If they really are done with the Rio, I've mentioned on other shows how they hadn't been renovating the Rio. It was, they seem to be leaving it a holding pattern, is what I called it. Because they were, they were obviously looking to sell it and didn't want to put money into it that's not going to translate to very much when they sell it. I think it's appeared they're more just selling the building and the real estate rather than uh, what's inside the building, which will need a lot of work. So if that's the case, if they're trying to be done with the Rio, if they've sold the Rio, why lease it back? Well, the reason they, they're leasing it back and the reason the lease only lasts uh, two years guaranteed is they did this to give themselves time. They needed time to find a new home for the World Series and also any other conventions that they've already sold. They, they need to honor that as well. So rather than saying to the new owners, oh, you've got to honor the conventions and, and then they have to scramble to move the World Series when they're not ready to move it yet – Caesar said, look, we'll sell, we'll sell it now, but we're not quite, quite ready to move yet. Uh, it, it's kind of similar to when a house sells, a single-family house sells, and sometimes the family is not quite ready to move yet. Like sometimes a house will sell in May, and the family says, we don't want to move in May because our kids have to finish school, which is ending in June. So how about we'll complete the sale in May, but we're going to lease the house back from you through June 30th, and then after that we're going to leave. Why? Because it's inconvenient to get up and move it in mid-May if you got kids. So similarly, that's what Caesars is doing here. They're saying we it's, it's inconvenient, inconvenient for us to give up the Rio at this time because of the World Series and because of other conventions we have sold space for there. So have a, just let us finish all this out, and at max we need two years. And then after that we can, we can evaluate if we want to stay and if you want us to stay. And if we want to continue and both sides want it, great. Otherwise, then goodbye. We'll leave the Rio and you can do what the hell you want with it. So that's why they, they, they were giving themselves time. And the reason they gave themselves a second year rather than just one year is because they want the additional breathing room just in case they, uh, they don't want to move the World Series just yet. They wanted one more year to where they weren't feeling panicked that they have to get the World Series moved by uh, for the 2021 series, they want to. It, it was all about the World Series. They wouldn't have leased it back for two years if the World Series was not there. They probably would have had some kind of agreement that okay, honor whatever convention space has been sold, uh, and then you can do what you want with it. So, something like that. But the fact that they're leasing it back for two years is it's all because of the World Series. So they're just giving themselves time to figure out what they want to do with the World Series and where they want it to go after that. What's the most likely scenario? What, what is the most likely scenario of where the World Series goes? 
Well, scenario number one has it where the new convention space is not selling as well as expected. So then they will just move the whole thing there, the, the World Series in 2021. So number, scenario number two has it to where the new convention center is selling space well, and they will not move it until 2022, once the release is up. Scenario number three is that the convention center is selling well and it's selling so well that they actually would prefer to stay at the Rio and keep the World Series there for the foreseeable future and the new owners agree to this. That would be scenario number three, which would keep the World Series there throughout uh, an indefinite number of years in the 2020. So what's the most likely of these three scenarios? I would say number two, that you're going to see the World Series in 2022 at the convention center. If I had to bet the year it moves, I'd say 2022. A close second, though, is 2021. It not moving by 2022 is not that likely. It could happen, but not that likely. I think after the two years are up, they're going to be done with it. Because they they really don't want that property aside from needing it for the World Series. Before they wanted it for the World Series and for other conventions, but that's not going to be necessary anymore once they have the convention center up and running in the spring of 2020. So then at that point, the only value the Rio will be for them will be for the World Series, and that's just not worth keeping the property around in their uh, as a property they manage and have to pay a lot of money to lease. It's just not worth keeping to just have it for the World Series for seven weeks a year. So I have to imagine that they're not going to renew the lease, and I have to imagine the new owner may not even want that. The new owner may say, screw it, we're just, we are just we want a property for other things, and we're not just buying it so we can lease it back to Caesars. And that brings me to the next question. What will Imperial companies do, that's the new owner, what will they do when the lease is up in two years? Well, that is unknown. Imperial Companies is a real estate firm. They are not a casino operator, and that's an important distinction. That's a very important distinction because if it was a casino company, they'd say, okay, this is probably going to be either they're going to reopen, they're going to open the Rio as some other casino at that point, or maybe they'll even blow it up and build a new casino there. But what, what are Imperial Companies' plans? with the Rio, because they must have them. They must have bought this with a purpose. What, what are their plans here? Well, let's figure out what an imperial company would want to do with this property. The property is not located on the Strip. It is not walking distance from the Strip, unless you want to Make an unpleasant walk over the freeway to get to the strip. So it's it's not impossible to walk, but it's not something a lot of people like to do. The property itself is large, but the hotel itself is in need of a lot of renovation. That area of Las Vegas is also not all that desirable for tourists anymore. The Palms is across the street, but that's also a has-been. 
the Palm's main clientele, kind of the young hip crowd, has moved to the Cosmo. And that happened a number of years ago. So that's kind of a has-been area of Las Vegas. It had its moment in the sun, and now you really don't go over to the Rio unless you're going there because it's cheap. So it may not be a casino. So what might happen to it? Well, there's various options aside from renovating it or from blowing it up and building a new casino. There's been talk that it may be converted to condos or apartments. It might be converted into some kind of business park or business space. There's even been a rumor that it could be a new home for uh, some kind of uh, sport. And I know what you're thinking. That Major League Baseball stadium rumor. There's been rumors for about a year and a half now that the Rio is going to be sold, blown up, and then a Major League Baseball stadium will be built and a Major League Baseball team, which currently isn't doing well in their market, is going to move to Las Vegas. Is that going to happen? No. Las Vegas would not be a good market for Major League Baseball. Las Vegas does not have a high metro area population compared to the other markets. So any market where the team's struggling is not going to come to Vegas where they also have a low population. And they have a complete lack of surrounding cities, which is a big deal for baseball. You have Vegas, you have Henderson, and that's pretty much it. And in every direction, there's nothing. Which means you're not going to have fans coming to the stadium from areas like within a 50-mile radius that other teams usually have. Sometimes even more than 50-mile radius. For a baseball team to succeed in a new market, they have to be able to get a decent attendance for 81 home games per year, which is a lot. 81 home games, more than any other sport by far. They need to not completely fill the stadium, but they need to have a lot of people in what is a pretty large stadium. Unlike the NHL and NBA, which have cap capacity like 14,000, these Major League Baseball stadiums range between about 38,000 and 56,000 people capacity. And the teams are counting on getting these stadiums filled or mostly filled for a lot of these 81 games. And the reason that this can't happen in Vegas is because the population is not big enough and there's not enough, there's really just nothing surrounding it either. You may say, well, what about the NFL? They need a lot of fans there. Well, the, NH- the NFL has eight home games a year. So when there's only eight home games a year, then it's a lot easier to get a lot of people in the stadium because there are only eight games to choose from. So if you have any interest in seeing the NFL in Vegas, then you've got to choose one of eight games. If you have interest in Major League Baseball in Vegas, you have to choose one out of 81 games. So you can see that uh, it's, it's a smaller market would have a hard time filling a stadium in a market like in, in a place like Las Vegas. So it's not moving there, nor has Major League Baseball ever expressed the desire to move to Vegas. They just Baseball has never said that, oh, we're going to move a team to Vegas. It's just, it seems kind of not even on the table. Rio aside, it, it just isn't on the table. So what do I mean by a sports stadium? They already have a new stadium for, or a new arena for the NHL, so that's not going to move. They have a stadium they're building right now for the NFL. So where, what sport would move there? 
Well, it actually probably would be baseball, but not Major League Baseball. It would be Minor League Baseball. It is possible that that would be used as a Minor League Baseball stadium. They might build a facility there. That's possible. I could see that happening. But Major League, no. So these are these are various possibilities of, of what might happen to the property. But I, I'm not even sure if Imperial Companies knows right now what they're going to do with it. They they probably have some ideas they've floated around internally, but they I don't even think they bought this with a specific plan. They might have, but... They also might not have. In fact, I would think if they did have that specific plan, they wouldn't even have it in there that after two years they can decide whether they want to keep the Rio because they they would know exactly what they want to do with that property in two years. But it kind of seems like they don't exactly know why they they bought it. They kind of just, yeah, let's buy buy the Rio. Okay, well, we'll do something with it at some point. Uh, But yeah, I am surprised it sold for as much money as it did. Now, it is true that they're getting $90 million back. But still, $513 million is a lot of money for... Or five or $16 million is a lot of money for a property that got that's pretty beat up and old and that is off-strip. And even if, you, even if you subtract the $90 million that's going to be paid back to them in a lease, that still leaves uh, $426 million. So I, I don't think that was a, a good price for the buyer. I think Caesar's got a good price as a seller. I don't think for the buyer that was a good price because I just don't see how that property is worth that. That's just not a, an area of Vegas that's particularly coveted at the moment. This is not even like an up-and-coming area. You know, we actually have a different topic that I forgot to put on the agenda, that I will put on the agenda. That is the Circus Circus sold. That officially sold, and I just got wind of that. And I forgot to mention that in our agenda. So I will put that in there. So we can talk about that. But Circus Circus, that one actually actually is in an area that is growing in relevance in Vegas because of Resorts World being built there. And there is a belief that the north part of Vegas is now going to – the Vegas Strip, that is not North Vegas, but North Vegas Strip – is going to have kind of a renaissance because of the of Resorts World. And between them and the wind and anything else that's new over there, there might be a, a second area now of the Vegas Strip that people go to of, of – uh, of newer and high-end resorts. So I, I could understand one buying properties there with the belief that that's going to become a lot more valuable. But the, the, I, I can't see the, where the Rio is ever becoming popular with tourists ever again. So that's that's the story. Now, what if you were banned from the Rio? What if your name is Doug Stanhope and you're banned from the Rio? I think he's banned from all Caesars properties. But let's say you're banned from the Rio... Let's say you're banned from all Caesars properties. And you say, okay, well, now it's not a Caesars property anymore, so does that mean you can come back and play the World Series next year? The answer is no. It is still being managed by Caesars, and as long as it's still managed by Caesars, you will still be banned from there. Now, what if the lease ends and Caesars is no longer managing it, and they decide to continue running the Rio as its own separate property? Probably change the name. Would you be banned then? Probably not. Probably at that point, the slate would be wiped clean. It is possible they'll transfer the ban list over, but that would be up to the new owner. I would think probably the slate would be wiped clean if it were to continue as a casino and no longer Caesars managed. But at the moment, that it will not change anything as far as that is concerned. Let's see if I can think of anything else to discuss as far as this. I, I think I've pretty much covered everything. 
that uh, you'd ever want to know about this sale. Uh, let's see here. Uh, there's a question in the thread. Um, is it possible that this could be the new location of a new basketball arena one day? Because, uh, as I mentioned, basketball could be viable in Las Vegas because, similar to the NHL, they have half as many home games as, as baseball does, and they don't have to fill as big of an arena as baseball does. So, yes, basketball is popular is possible there just as the NHL moved there. The NHL and the NBA are kind of similar in that way. They have about the same number of games, and they have about the same size arenas. So it is possible. In fact, the NBA was considering Las Vegas as a future location of a team until they held an all-star weekend there last decade. And then there's all kinds of violence. Like all these players brought uh, their entourages there. There there was a lot of violence at the nightclubs. They're like, oh, my God, we don't want this element here in Las Vegas. And the whole thing fell apart. But it's been a number of years since then. And it is possible that the NBA would warm up to having a team in Vegas. It could work for the same reason the NHL teams, the NHL team works in Vegas. Especially if a team like the Milwaukee Bucks would want to move, and the new owner actually owns the Milwaukee Bucks. That's a little piece of trivia for you. So maybe. That is the plan. Maybe because they own the Bucks and Milwaukee is not a big market, maybe the plan is to move the Bucks to Las Vegas and build the arena there. That could happen. That could happen. It's not really being discussed anywhere, but it could happen. This was a question posed by Mr. Tickle on the thread that I wrote about this. Mr. Tickle, though, he did say something I didn't appreciate. I, tried, I wrote up this whole Q&A about the sale, which I thought made things very clear, and it really cleared up a lot of different misconceptions I saw all over Facebook and Twitter about the sale and what it meant. So I, I wrote up this like, Q&A so people could understand it, and this is what he wrote. As nice as it is for you to provide all your insight, I saw literally nobody ask any of these questions. Strange thread title. <laughs> but that's not true. I saw a lot of people asking these questions. That's why I did the thread. I was like, oh, there's, there's, like, I just got so tired of answering the same questions over and over about this and clearing up misconceptions. I said, I'm just going to make this thread, and I'm going to make it clear what's really uh, going on. So that's that's the story of the real sale. Any additional commentary on this one, Trader Ruski? I think you covered it all. You know, I think, too, just that, with that new, with everything going on with Resort World, that just makes it even less likely that there'd be a new area of the Strip. Yeah, that's, that that's a take good, off. Yeah, that's a good point. There's only there's only so many areas of Vegas that can become uh, newly popular at once, and that if 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 the new place to be is the Resorts World Northern Strip area, there's not also going to be some Renaissance uh, in this west of the Strip area. I just don't see that area ever becoming something that is really viable for casinos ever again. I just, it, there was always kind of a, a pushback to this. People are always like, oh, the Rio, that's not on the strip. No, I don't really want to go there. There's always been kind of a pushback about the Rio not being on the strip. 
And then it, it, it briefly had its time of success because, number one, people liked the theme there, which has now been stripped away. And, and, and two, the Palms was across the street, so now there was something else over there. And the Palms was a very happening place. But now the Palms is a has-been, too, so what's over there now? Like, I, I don't think anything can really show up over there that's going to attract people's attention anymore. So I, I think that area is pretty much done. So that's uh, that's the story with the sale, and we will see what is going to happen from there. But I, I think what I predicted is, is, is pretty close to what's going to happen. It's just we have to wait. We have to wait to see what Caesars decides that they want to do with uh, the convention center in 2021. Let's talk about resort fees. Resort fees we've talked about extensively on this show over the years. We even had on an anti-resort fee activist named Lauren Wolf, who's an attorney who's been taking on resort fees. She actually runs KillResortFees.com, and she has a a little bit to do with this uh, current story. Resort fees are very, very, very unpopular. I've never, in fact, even heard one person who's outside of the hotel industry defend resort fees or say, no, 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 they're actually okay. No, 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 that makes sense. No, 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 I like them. Like, like nobody likes them. Literally nobody likes them if unless they're part of the industry themselves. And not, not only don't they have any fans, the resort fees, they, they, they get people angry. There's like universal anger at resort fees to the point where I, I felt that they're really doing more harm than good. Like, I think the hotels think they're being clever by hiding the prices that they're really charging, but people are so irritated by this. It kind of discourages travel, in my opinion. And the problem is that every hotel is now afraid to not have one because it makes them uh, not competitive in searches. And so I said, for these to end, it really needs to be a legal change, not something the industry volunteers to do itself. There's also some misconceptions about resort fees. People say, what? My resort? I, I don't want to pay a $40 resort fee just to pay for local telephone calls and for use of the gym and for the use of parking. Like, I, I don't need any of this stuff. I don't want to pay it. Like, p- people keep saying that because to them, that's what it seems like they're being forced to pay for. Because when they first started charging these resort fees, they had to explain what they were, so they just kind of pick things out of their ass. I'm talking about the industry, not any particular hotel. These started about 15 years ago, and they just kind of, the hotels just kind of picked random stuff to say what it covered. Oh, it covers the, the in-room coffee maker and the parking and uh, local phone calls, which, of course, nobody needs anymore. Uh, and and yeah, so they, they nowadays, sometimes the Internet will be included with resort fees. Sometimes it won't. But they always just come up with things that they weren't going to charge for anyway and say, oh, it's including that. And that's what you're paying for, which just gets people angry because they go, well, either this should be included, like I, I shouldn't have to pay for a coffee maker or, or, or something they would probably not want to use, like, like local calls. Or they say, if this is really paying for these things, I should be able to not use these things and opt out of it, which you can't do. You can't ever opt out of a resort fee. The real reason for resort fees is not to pay for these things. That's just kind of the excuse of why it's being charged. But the real reason it's being charged now, it wasn't originally. Originally, it was done for two purposes. One was to screw over travel agents because uh, these were non-commissionable 
So this way they wouldn't have to pay commission on this portion of the ho- of the hotel room. So they would get to save a little commission. And, and number two, to charge extra to people using sites like Priceline who got a bargain on the room, there, there wouldn't be a way around this. That there, this was a fee that they could expect from everybody there that no matter how they got the room, they'd have to pay it. So th- those are the original reasons that resort fees were created. At the, originally, they were like seven bucks, and then they've risen so much over the years. Now they're typically around uh, twenty to forty-five dollars, and every year they go up. And now the entire purpose, the sole purpose of them, is to mislead travelers who are using internet search engines to look up prices to price shop. And the reason is because the prices listed on these search engines, I'm talking about uh, Travelocity, Kayak, Orbitz, things like that. When it lists, you sort the hotels by price, the price it shows you is the price not including resort fees and not including any tax. You're just seeing the base price. But in order to actually stay in the hotel, you have to pay the resort fee and the tax. So that really can up the amount that you think you're going to be paying by a lot, especially if the hotel is on the cheaper side, you'll see a hotel is $35 a night and say, oh, sweet, and then it turns out it's $35 a night with a $35 resort fee and tax on top of it, and then you end up paying close to $100 for what was supposed to be a $35 hotel room, and you get very infuriated, as, as would be understandable. So the reason that these persist is if a property is honest and just says, you know what, we're not going to charge a resort fee. If we're a $70 property, if, we're, if it's $70 a night plus tax, we're just going to list ourselves as 70 and not charge a resort fee. Well, then when people go to search for hotel rooms, you'll appear way down the list compared to other budget properties. You'll see one that's charging 35 and go, okay, I'll book the one that's 35 that's about equivalent by the reviews to this one charging 70 Why should I pay 70 if this one down the street that, that's reviewed about the same is 35 and it turns out they're actually the same price because one has a resort fee of 35 and one has zero, but you can't see that. It's not obvious to the person searching. The person searching, they're always going to jump at the ones on the top of the list that are the cheapest, and then they'll start to look at that list like, okay, is this cheap property – is it also decent or is it terrible? And if it's terrible, they'll move down to the next one. But what you don't want is to be down that list as one of the more expensive ones unless you're one of the better hotels in town. And even then, you don't want to be below comparable hotels in town. So the problem is anyone who takes away the resort fee now goes down the list of the searches because other hotels that charge it, even if you have the same price as the other hotel that's equivalent, that will appear cheaper to those searching and people will click on that one first. And the properties that don't have the resort fee will be at a disadvantage. Caesars actually tried this. They tried this a number of years ago where they had no resort fees and, in fact, advertised we have no resort fees. And they were trying to see how that would work with no resort fees when MGM properties did have resort fees. And what they found is MGM was cleaning their clock because MGM's properties were showing up earlier in the search results when sorted by price. And they were pissed because even properties that were the same price as theirs were showing up as much cheaper because of the lack of resort fees. So the, hey, we don't have resort fees ad campaign, that may have gotten them some customers, but not as many as these internet search engines were getting for appearing to be cheaper for MGM. So they finally had to throw that away and join the club with the resort fees. And now pretty much everybody has. Almost every hotel in Vegas now charges a resort fee. Even a lot of crappy motels charge resort fees. 
anything that would that would be searchable on the internet for uh, that wants to show up in these searches, for the most part, is charging a resort fee. There's a few exceptions, but not many. And this is all over the country, by the way, not not just Vegas. Vegas is particularly bad with it, with the resort fees being very high and, and very prevalent at low end properties. But it's happening more and more every year. So it, resort fees are only there to deceive. That's why they're there. They are not there to cover these things they claim it's covering. They're not forcing you to buy things you don't want. So don't go, I don't want to pay these. I don't want this stuff. You can say that and it sounds good, but it's not the truth. The truth is you're being misled. You're being misled through these internet search sites and, and also on, on the site for the hotel itself. They don't quote you the price with the resort fees. That only comes up after you've gone through the booking process. Now, they have to disclose it to you before you actually book it. But as long as it's somewhere in the fine print and as long as it's shown in the grand total, then it's legal. I have said for many years this should not be legal. This, this whole thing needs to be stopped. There needs to be a federal law passed prohibiting this. And what I said, and I've said many times on this show, what needs to happen is that any advertised price for a hotel needs to include all mandatory charges and fees except for government tax. Why except for government tax? Well, because the hotel doesn't benefit from that. And, and every hotel is subject to the same tax. And people expect that. Everybody, when they book, knows that tax is on top of that. That's something that's been long known in the travel industry in the U.S. That doesn't surprise anyone. And the hotel has no desire to deceive people for this because they're not keeping that money. So it's, it's okay if the tax is not placed there. But... The anything you have to pay in order to stay at the hotel should be listed very, very clearly and should show up that way in searches. You shouldn't be doing a search for the base price. You should be doing a search for the entire price before tax. That was what I said should be done. That's what I said the law should be. Well, lo and behold, almost as if certain members of Congress were listening to this show, that's exactly... What is going to be possibly the law sometime in the near future? Because there is a bipartisan congressional effort that's underway to make the mandatory resort fees illegal unless they are fully disclosed in all forms of advertising and in all forms of searches. There are two congresspeople who are behind doing this. That is Eddie Bernice Johnson, a congresswoman from Texas, who's a black Democrat, by the way, and an unlikely partner, Congressman Jeff Fortenberry, a white Republican from Nebraska. You wouldn't think a Republican from Nebraska... A, a white male Republican from Nebraska and a black female congresswoman from Texas would get together on something, but but they have, because everyone hates resort fees. Republicans and Democrats, everybody hates resort fees. So from Congresswoman Johnson's uh, official webpage, on September 25th, just two days ago, they put out a press release 
stating that uh, Congressman, Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson and Congressman Jeff Fortenberry introduced bipartisan legislation cracking down on deceptive advertising practices in the short-term lodging industry. H.R. 4489, the Hotel Advertising Transparency Act of 2019, would ensure that the consumers are shown the full pre-tax price of a hotel room while searching and comparing lodging options for their next trip. So, so it's under, you have to understand here, they're not making resort fees illegal. What they're doing is saying the deception portion of it is going to go away. You're, if this bill passes, then they cannot hide this stuff anymore. It's got to be clear from the very start. Congresswoman Johnson said, this summer we witnessed a record number of Americans take the opportunity to travel. Unfortunately, this also meant a record number of travelers were subject to, to deceptive hidden fees charged by hotels, motels, and other places of accommodation. It is projected that in 2019, over $3 billion in revenue alone will be collected from consumers due to these hidden fees. Wow, $3 billion of resort fees. <laughs> consumers should be able to enjoy their vacation without being ripped off and financially burdened. This bill would require that the prices advertised by hotels and online travel agencies must include all mandatory fees that will be charged to a consumer, including tax, excluding taxes. When travelers search for hotel options, they deserve to see straightforward prices. They should not get hit with hidden fees that are designed to confuse consumers and to distort the actual price. I am pleased to support this legislation that will result in greater transparency for the traveling public. That, that last uh, statement was from uh, Congressman Fortenberry. The... The thing about uh, describing the bill was uh, Johnson's statement, the one I just read you after that was Fortenberry. The Hotel Advertising Transparency Act of 2019 would prohibit hotels and other places of short-term lodging from advertising at a rate for a room that does not include all required fees other than taxes and fees imposed by a government. The FTC, along with the attorneys, attorneys general from across the country, would have the ability to enforce this provision through the Federal Trade Commission Act. In July, attorneys general for the District of Columbia and the state of Nebraska filed lawsuits against Marriott and Hilton, respectively, for hiding the true price of hotel rooms from, from consumers and charging hidden resort fees to increase profits. Congresswoman, Congresswoman Johnson said consumer advocacy groups have long argued about the deceptive practices of hoteliers regarding hidden fees. We are proud to have the support of organizations such as Consumer Reports, which is, of course, a magazine, and Travelers United, I'll tell you about that in a second. As we fight to ensure that all hotels and short-term rentals show full transparency when advertising rates for rooms. Travelers shouldn't have to read the fine print to figure out all the fees they'll be charged for staying at a hotel, said Anna Layton, Director of Financial Policy for Consumer Reports. Hotels should be required to disclose all fees and their advertised rates so consumers won't be stung with a higher bill than what they're expecting to pay when booking a room. Here's a quote from... Lauren Wolf, who is the lawyer for Travelers United. She was on this show, if you remember. Very good interview, by the way, if you want to go find it. The U.S. Congress is taking on the most hated fee in travel. We urge Congress to support this bipartisan common sense bill. It is important to note this bill does not just cover mandatory fees for hotels, but also will require that all fees are disclosed in the advertised rate for short-term rentals. That's also interesting that uh, not only are... Resort fees and any other kind of mandatory fee, not only do these have to be very clearly disclosed and, and included in the total price shown in these searches, but they also have to make it clear what fees they charge that are optional. So if uh, if you're going to a place and they quote you a correct price, but then 
kind of hide from you that the parking and internet fees are outrageous. They can't do that anymore. Those also have to, they don't have to be rolled into the total price because they're optional, but they have to be clearly shown, according to Lauren Wolf. In November 2012 and April 2013, the, the FTC warned 35 hotels and 11 online travel agencies that resort fees were not adequately disclosed on their hotel res- reservation websites and that such practices may violate the law by misrepresenting the price consumers expected to pay for the hotel rooms. In response to these letters, many hotels and online tra- travel agents modified the resort fees disclosures, but consumer complaints about the disclosure of these rates continue. Yeah, I remember that. And, and it's right. that they, they It got a little bit better with saying what the resort fees were, but they, they were still kind of buried and they were still kind of hidden and it was kind of hard to find. In fact, uh, you even try to Google the resort fee for a, a hotel and it's often not even on the official hotel site until you actually go book the room. You have to go find it on third-party sites, which are sometimes out of date. And that's on purpose. FTC Commissioner Rebecca Kelly Slaughter said, if a fee is part of the total price consumers must pay for a hotel room, then it must be part of the price shown to consumers. Surprise fees are unfair to consumers, period. I'm grateful to Congresswoman Johnson for her leadership in this important issue. If you go to the thread on Poker Fraud Alert about this, which is now, it's in the casinos in Las Vegas section, you can see the uh, a link to the full text of that bill which I just described. I haven't read you the full text, and I'm not going to read it on this show. But if you want to read the full text of the bill, if you go to the thread in the Casinos in Las Vegas forum called Bipartisan Congressional Effort Underway to Make Mandatory Resort Fees Illegal, uh, you can click on a PDF of the actual bill, which was introduced on September 25th, by the way. And I also provided you a link on the third post of the thread to the updated progress on the bill, a link that's updated at congress.gov. You just click on that link and you can see what actions are being taken. So right now there's only three actions. 925 introduced in House. 925 referred to the House Committee on Energy and Commerce Action. And 926 sponsor introductory remarks on measure. So that's all that's happened so far because it was just introduced two days ago. It is possible this bill will not become law. It is possible it will die. But the good thing here is that these are very unpopular. So you're not going to have a lot of politicians who try to prevent this from passing. Yeah, the hotel industry has lobbyists who may put pressure on certain uh, certain politicians not to support this. But I think it would kind of be political suicide now at this point to support this. This is the type of thing where the hotel industry, their lobbyists can be successful in preventing these bills from being introduced in the first place. But once they're introduced, it's, it gets kind of harder to go against them at that point because it could look very bad for politicians who oppose it. It's one thing to keep politicians from bringing these bills out. It's another thing to, uh, to, to oppose them and have the public see that you're in the pocket of the hotel industry. Because it's pretty indefensible. Like There just isn't a defense for this. No matter what the hotel could say, there's, there's a very easy answer. The easy answer is, okay, then disclose it. Okay, then include it in the whole price. 
Why, why split it? What would be the point of splitting? You can say, well, you can say, oh, we need the money for this. We need the money for that. We need to pay for this. We need to pay for that. Fine. We're not saying lower your price. We're saying that if you have, if you have a $70 room and a $40 resort fee, change it to a $110 room. You collect the same money, but when it's $110, you're being honest about what you're charging. And when it's 70 plus 40, you're not because the 40 hidden. So, so they really have no answer because the truth that they're doing it to deceive. And they can't say that. They can't say, oh, come on, we should be able to keep tricking people. Come on. What's wrong with a little deception in the hotel industry? Like, they can't say that. They, they don't have – nobody can logically defend this because all they're doing is hiding the price. They're, they're not being told – and by the way, it's very important to understand this. If your favorite hotel is charging $70 base price and $40 for the resort fee, if this passes, don't expect to pay $70 for the hotel room. What will happen is they will change the price to just roll the resort fee into it. So you're not going to get cheaper hotel rooms from this. Don't don't think you're getting away with that. Don't think that hotel prices are going down after this. So why is this good? It's good because it makes it a lot easier to search for a hotel. You don't you don't have to scramble to find where the resort fee is and how much it is and and compare that now to some other some other property's resort fee and and, and add them together and figure out which is really the cheapest. It, it's so stupid. It makes searching so hard. It makes searching and, and understanding what you're really paying so hard. Here, you're just going to know right away that aside from taxes, what the damn hotel really costs. And then you can make your decision on what hotel to stay at and how long to take your vacation and where to go. You, you can, If you're budgeting for a trip, you're figuring out how much you want to spend, now it's much easier for you. And, and that's the whole point of this. And so the prices aren't going to go down, but the prices will become clear. Uh, in the meantime, while this is uh, going through Congress and may or, not, may or may not become law, in the meantime, the best way to remove, remove a resort fee is to find something to complain about. And I, I don't mean invent something. I don't mean lie. But I'm saying that if there's a problem, then... Call up, ask to speak to the manager, complain about the problem, especially if it's one that's verifiable. Let's say your sink is stopped up. Let's say your shower, uh, the, the pressure's terrible. Let's say uh, the, the door doesn't close very well. Let's say the toilet's uh, clogged when you get there and you have to wait for a while to get a maintenance man to fix the toilet. Let's say the TV doesn't work. Let's say the phone doesn't work. Just, you know, just typical problems in a hotel room. Something you can ask for is, can you please remove the resort fee? But only after something happens. If you're checking in and go, oh, I don't want to pay this resort fee. I don't know about this resort fee. They hear this all day, every day from people. They're, they're not going to agree. You, you can't talk the front desk agent out of the resort fee. But what you can do is when something happens to cause you inconvenience, even if it's relatively small, you can call up and then say, hey, can you at least remove the resort fee for this? And sometimes they will. That's sometimes what they go to as far as giving the customer something back when something goes wrong there. Now, if you bought it through Priceline or one of these other like prepaid services, then you're you're pretty much out of luck. But if if it's something where you haven't prepaid, if you prepaid through the hotel, then yes, you can still do it. But if something where you're if you if you've booked through the hotel and something happens then, yes, you can ask for the resort fee 
especially if you've had inconvenience, like you had to move rooms. or The bigger the inconvenience, the higher chance you can get it back. Uh, there's other reasons you could do it. If, if the room you're in is very noisy and they didn't disclose this to you, or that uh, your neighbors are creating a lot of noise, you keep complaining and the hotel doesn't do anything about it. Just just anything, when, when the stay is over, you think, okay, was this a good hotel stay, a bad hotel stay, or, or kind of okay because it had some problems? Then go over in your head what the problems were, and then if they are real problems, especially verifiable problems that they can, you've already shown them or that you can show them, then, yeah, definitely call up and ask for the resort fee to come off. Totally fine to do that. Uh I have gotten money off my bills many times. I've never, by the way, I've never called up and made up something being wrong. I've never called up and just fabricated a problem to get money off my bill. But I will call up if, if, if the something about the stay is not what I was expecting in a bad way. And if it can't be quickly corrected, then yes, I'll ask for something back. Because I'm expecting to get to a hotel room that is clean, that is functional, that doesn't have any maintenance problems. These things should be taken care of before I get there. And if I have to go through a lot of inconvenience to get things fixed, or if I'm uncomfortable in any way that I didn't expect, then I'm not getting the experience that I thought I was paying for. That's one way to get them taken off. But by the way, once, once resort fees disappear, you'll still be able to call up and ask for money off your bill. Just, the resort fee is kind of like a natural thing to ask for. And when we had Lauren Wolf on the show, she said the same thing. She also suggested calling up your credit card company and disputing the resort fee portion and claiming it wasn't disclosed right. And that can sometimes work. I've never bothered doing that, but uh, basically what they do is they create a chargeback, a partial chargeback, and send a letter to the hotel and tell them that they need to defend it. And sometimes the hotel just doesn't respond in the 30 days they have to do it, and then you win anyway. So you could do that too. And honestly... You can't even feel guilty about this because they're trying to trick you in the first place. So even doing something like that, even if the hotel stay was fine, because they're trying to trick you in the first place with the resort fee crap, I I don't find it unethical to find ways out of it. Like even if the truth – I've never done it and I'm not suggesting you do it, but if someone were to make up problems to get the resort fee taken off, I wouldn't say, oh, you're a bad person because really the resort fee is is deceptive in the first place and – you know, if you deceive to get out of something deceptive, then I don't think it's really that bad. I haven't done it, but if you did, I, I wouldn't judge you. Let's just say that. Trey Ruski, how, how have you – I know you must not like them, but uh, do resort fees really get you angry, and have they gotten you angry since you've started seeing them probably about 15 years ago? I mean, it's been a while because I, cause I get comps and stuff now, but – I mean, I remember back, I guess, before resort fees, they, you could, you could, it was like an optional thing where you could get internet, the gym, and I think one other thing for 20 bucks. They, they had a few of so those. So I always kind of remember that at the Bellagio. Okay, they had a few of those, but for the most part, they weren't optional, but there were ways out of them because they weren't disclosed properly. They, before the industry learned how did they have to disclose them. Uh, you had ways out of it. If you just showed up and there's nothing in the documentation about a resort fee and you have a confirmation email say, saying that uh, you're going to pay such and such, 
and you got there, they want another like $7, $10, then you had a legal right at that point to say, I don't want to pay it. And, and I did that a number of times. When I first ran into them for the first few years in like 05, 06, 07, I was able to get out of a lot of them. I would just argue my way out of it. I just, they, they'd, I, I'd first get some person in the front desk who just keeps saying, no, 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 no. And then I ask for the manager. The manager first argues with me, and I just tell them, no, you, you didn't disclose it at booking time. Nothing in my email says anything about this. There, I, I've had no knowledge about this until I get here. You can't just, you can't just add this on. And then I, I, I would make the point to them. I said, what, what if, what if the resort fee was a million dollars? What, what if, uh, what if I'm booking a hotel room for a hundred bucks, and then I show up and you ask for an additional one million dollars? Then, then, it, do you have a right to just? Tell me I can't stay there because I'm not paying you another million? Like a, and they go, well, no, that's absurd. I go, well, no, but that's the whole point. You, you can't just ask for any amount of money you want for me to be able to get the room I paid for. Once I've paid for it, once I've paid for the amount that's been asked for and I get a confirmation saying that I have, you can't charge me additional mandatory fees when I get here unless it's already been disclosed and agreed to. So then they go, shit, he's got us. <laughs> so they'd say uh, – so I just tell them, you absolutely have to give me this room by law. So the manager would know I'm right and back down. And then uh, and sometimes they'd weakly say, well, but, you know, that means that you can't use the Internet and that means you can't use our parking. And I go, OK, that's fine. And then, you know, if it's about parking, I'll just park on the street or or if it's about Internet, they, they don't know. I'll just use it anyway. Like they, 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 they can't see if I use it because they, they're giving to everybody for free for that. So they, they can't tell. They, you know, like, screw them. I I didn't feel any guilt using the Internet after this because it, it wasn't really to pay for the Internet. It was just a hidden charge they try to hit you with when you show up and just most people p- grumble and pay. So that was not only unethical, it was illegal. And it, it, it would take a little effort to argue this out, but I would every time because I was so against it. But, but finally they learned and they started to disclose this in every confirmation email and every time before you'd finish the, the booking online, somewhere in the fine print who had mentioned the resort fee. So at that point, they were legally covered, and I couldn't argue this anymore. The only reason I was winning the arguments before is because they were technically violating the law, and, and yeah, the, the person at the front desk doesn't realize this, and they're not of a. They're usually not at a at a level high enough to even like fully understand it. But the manager is. The manager knows I'm right. So. Uh. Yeah, but it is horrible. You said like the only people that like it are the people in the hotel industry, but that's not even true. It's really just the owners of the hotel. Yeah, yeah. Because do you think the people at the front desk would love it to be gone? They uh, argue yes. probably with 100 people a day because yes. they're screwing them and they know it. Right, right. So, yeah, the, the, the regular employees don't like it either. <laughs> right. They're, they're, I, it would be a nightmare. In fact, I watched it. It was kind of amusing. Like, I'd, I'd be checking into Caesars, and I w- I, because I'd be a diamond or seven star, I wouldn't be paying the resort fee, but I'd, I'd be watching, and, like, I'd, I'd watch the people get furious who weren't familiar with it, especially in previous years when they weren't as well-known, the resort fees. People would go, What's this? What, what's 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 twenty more dollars? What, what is this resort fee? Well, sir, you have to pay. But that's, that's not what my confirmation said. Well, no, no, look, sir, here it's, it does say right here they're, they're, they're subject to a twenty dollars resort. Well, I didn't expect this. This wasn't listed like they, they, I don't want to pay this. They, I, I hear these like really angry people arguing, and I, I kind of feel bad for the front desk employees because they're just told they have to do it. They they know it's bullshit too, but they have to do it. See, that, I, I, was thinking, I know, and then they got to feed them the bullshit story that they know is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's just, too, now that they're up to 30, 40 bucks, it's like, you know, you're going there for five nights. Now it's $200, you know, if you go one night, maybe, but it's ridiculous. Yeah, it just, it just adds so much, and it's, it's a hidden charge. It's a way to 
get people to pay a lot more for their stay than they thought they were. And that's not fair to people. People should know the real cost of what they're buying. It should be very clear of what the real cost of the stay is. And if it's too expensive, then, then people won't go. And if it's a price that they want to pay, then they will go. The, the consumer should always know what they're paying. And, in fact, we're going to get to something else in this show, not about resort fees, but similar to resort fees, involving a poker tournament, where, I, where I'm going to make the same argument, that you, the consumer always needs to know very, very clearly what they're paying. And if there's any attempt to deceive or split up the price so the consumer doesn't completely understand up front what they're really going to be paying, then the business is being unethical. And that's you need to understand that. And, and excuses should not be made for the business. Now, no one's making excuses for resort fees because those are universally hated. But I see like other things in other industries where people make excuses. I'll give you one right now. Cruise ships. On cruise ships, all of the lines, at least everyone that I know of, charges what they call a gratuity. The gratuity, the mandatory gratuity, usually about 14 bucks per day per person, which is a lot if you think about it. That means in a cabin with two people, that's 28 bucks a day. And if you're on the cruise for a week, that's seven times 28, which is around 200 bucks. So that's, that's, that's a lot of extra money that you didn't expect to spend. Is not quoted in the actual price. It, it's there in the fine print, but like resort fees are. But you, uh, when you're looking at the price quoted for the cruise, they'll even quote you the taxes, but they will not quote you these gratuities because these are charged you after, after the fact when you're actually on board and you charge your credit card. But people say to themselves, well, okay, the people working on these cruise ships, they're from third world countries, they're very poor, they've, they've got to be away from their family for 10 months a year, they work very hard, they work very long hours, they, they stay in kind of unpleasant living circumstances and like bunk beds with like six people to a room and one bathroom, which is true. Now, this stuff is all true. And uh, now these these jobs are still very coveted by people in third world countries because they get to live on the ship for free. There's free room and board and they get to just pocket all the money that they make there. And then they send the money back home where that same money is worth a lot more than it is in the U.S. because it's a lot cheaper in these third world countries. So these are very coveted jobs. These people, do, they, they don't feel like they're working a bad job. They, they, this is a great job if you if you're in one of these countries. But but even putting that aside. Fine. You want to tip these people. You want to help them out. Great. The only problem is these mandatory gratuities do not actually go to the employees. The cruise line pockets them. And you may say, how could that be? How, how could they call them gratuities and pocket them? Well, because they use a trick they learned from the restaurant industry. And that is there is a maritime minimum wage that is required. It's different than the U.S. minimum wage, but it's a, it's a wage that has been established that f- for cruise ships or any other business at sea, it's an international agreement of uh, the very minimum that you can pay an employee on that ship. So there is an exception to the maritime minimum wage, and that is if tips supplement the person's wage, as long as it all adds up to minimum wage, then it is legal. So what the cruise line started doing is they lowered the base pay for these employees well below maritime minimum wage and then charged these mandatory gratuities to the customers and then used those gratuities to bring the minim- the pay back up to minimum wage. 
And it actually, to be fair, it passes minimum wage. It's a, they, they don't get paid minimum wage after the tips. They get paid a little bit more. But the vast majority of your tips are just pocketed by the cruise ship so they can pay sub-minimum wage base pay to these employees. So if these tips didn't exist at all, these employees would only make a tiny bit less. And in fact, they'd overall end up making a lot more because prior to these mandatory tips... People were tipping these employees with cash at the end of the cruise. And now most people feel like they don't have to do that because they think they're paying mandatory tips. And the way the cruise line sells it is, oh, well, this takes care of all the employees equally. So this way, the ones you do interface with, like your room steward and your maitre d' and your, and your servers and the restaurants, they get tipped. But what about all the people working behind the scenes, you know, washing dishes and and, and, and uh, washing linens and all that stuff. Now they get the tips too. Well, that sounds good until you really think about it that these are not tips. All they're doing is subtracting from mandatory minimum wage and using these, quote, tips to make up for it. If you tell anyone this who takes cruises, they will get angry at you. Why? Because everyone wants to think they're a good person. And they, in order to think you're a good person, you've got to believe you've been tipping these poor third world employees on cruise ships. And if you, you've been paying the mandatory tip, you think all this time I've been tipping, I've been tipping, I'm a great person. You know, yes, it's mandatory, but yes, but they're, they're taken care of, so it's okay that I leave them no tip. And then you find out from a jerk like me that you haven't been tipping them because most of these tips has been have, are being pocketed by the cruise line. So what do you do? You tell me that I'm wrong. You tell them I don't know what I'm talking about. You tell me that I don't work for the cruise industry and I couldn't know this. You tell me that the cruises make it very clear that these are tips. And you come up with every excuse in the book of why I am not correct. Because you want to feel good about yourself. So that that type of thing people are in denial about. So that type of thing people, they want to believe that is not true. Because they want to feel better about themselves. But it is true. Trust me. It's a dirty secret of the cruise industry. And it's getting harder. You, you can technically out, uh, opt out of these mandatory tips, but it's harder and harder to do. They make it really tough for you to do. So that's a, a little cruise ship tip for you guys. I know a lot about the cruise industry. Probably too much. Okay. Let's move on to a similar story. Not about resort fees. Not about cruise ships. But about what I call today a resort fee for poker tournaments. This was brought to my attention by Alan Kessler, who saw something he didn't like at Maryland Live Casino, which is, uh, of course, a casino in Maryland. And they have a WPT stop there and currently a tournament series. They are running satellites to the main event there, which is uh, normally a $3,500 buy-in. These satellites are uh, $400 each, where out of every 10 buy-ins they receive for $400, they give one $3,500 seat, and they keep the other 500 That That part's not my complaint. That's just standard. My complaint, which actually comes from Alan Kessler, which is his complaint, which I agreed with, is that the $400 satellite is not really a $400 satellite, even though it's very clearly advertised as a $400 satellite. 
it is actually a $410 satellite. Oh, my goodness. How, how can you afford that? Another $10 out of your pocket. How dare they? But see, that is why they think they can get away with it. Here's what's going on. And there's a lot of controversy, unlike resort fees, where people are universally against them. That with this one, there's more people who disagree with Kessler than agree with him. And yet, when I would argue with some of these people on Kessler's behalf, none of them could really make a coherent point as to why he was wrong. Uh, people like to attack Kessler in general. Kessler is a complainer. He is. Uh, you may think I'm a complainer. He's, he's like me on steroids with the complaining. Uh, he, just, he finds every little thing to complain about. And, and and just complains about it. It's just every little thing that he thinks is unfair or uh, not to his liking, he complains about there and he will complain about it uh, also on social media. And people are used to that. And some people are kind of tired of him and, and the way he behaves with this stuff. The thing they miss is that even when Kessler is in the wrong and even when Kessler is over-complaining – he also catches a lot of these type of things and brings them to the attention of the poker community and then gets things changed because he does have a big reach. There are a lot of people who follow him, despite the fact that uh, there is a lot of negative reaction to him. A lot of people just find him as kind of an amusing character and they follow, they follow him. So he's got a good reach on social media and he does find a lot of legitimately bad things, some worse than others, that are in poker that he calls out. He's never afraid to call it out. He makes enemies by calling it out, but, but he calls it out. He's not, he doesn't care. And there's been a number of changes over the years in, in the favor of players because Kessler has been the one to stand up and call things out. And structures of poker tournaments have improved over the years because Kessler has complained that the structures are lousy. And those improved structures benefit the more skillful poker player. The worse the structure, the higher chance it is that a fish is going to win because eventually it becomes just a luck fest of who catches cards. So... What Kessler is complaining about today is something I agree with, but that others are disagreeing with him. Not everybody, but there are a number of people giving him a hard time. The satellite to the WPT main event, I said $400, and it says right here, I'm looking at the structure sheet right here in front of me, and you can go on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum, you can see the thread I created about this, and you can see the the structure sheet right there if you want to follow along. The structure sheet says... In big print, $400 satellite for September 2019 WPT main event, $3,500 tickets, 1 in 10 win a seat. Okay, that sounds pretty clear to me. That sounds like a $400 satellite, right? Doesn't sound like 410, that sounds like 400. Big print, $400 satellite for September 2019 WPT main event. Okay, that's what it is, it's $400. So let's see, let's read the fine print. Players start with 12,000 tournament shifts, levels change every 20 minutes. Uh, late reg and re-entries allowed for nine levels. Uh, $300, $360 from each entrance goes to the prize pool. 34 is the house revenue. $6 is the, for the staff. Okay. Uh, $10 dealer add-on for 5,000 chips at the table. Okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. Buried in the fifth small print entry under event details, $10 dealer add-on for 5,000 chips at the table. What the hell? Well, putting it simply... For $400, you can play. You don't have to pay 410 For 400 you can play, but you get 12000 in chips. And if you whip out another $10 bill at the table for this add-on, 
then you get another 5,000 chips to start with 17,000. <laughs> so they can say it's not mandatory, but let's face it, it's mandatory. You'd have to be an idiot to go pay $400 for 12,000 chips at a tournament and then not pay another ten to get 5,000 more chips. That would be a really, really dumb move, even if you wanted to make a stand and say, no, I'm not going to be pushed into doing this. No, 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 this is misleading. Screw them. I'm paying 400 and only 400 All you're doing is punishing yourself because you're giving yourself much less equity than everybody else. And they can say it's not mandatory, but it's mandatory for anyone with a basic understanding of simple mathematics. You don't have to be a math genius to see that $10 more to get almost 50% more chips is, when you pay $400 to get those first chips, is a must if you want to have a chance in the tournament. And for those saying, well, that's still not mandatory, well, let's take it further. Let's say they give you 100 chips for $400, and then they give you 17,000 chips for $10 more. You technically have a chance to win starting with 100 chips, but obviously you'd have to pay the $10 more to get uh, almost your whole chip stack. Now, that's not what's happening here, but still, you're, you're, you're increasing your chip stack from 12000 to 17000 which is very substantial for just $10 more on a $400 buy-in. So you're, you're paying just a 2.5% more, and yet uh, you're getting uh, almost 50% more chips. So obviously, you have to do it. Even in principle, you can't say no. You, you have to do it. It's not like it's fairly close and you're just you're you're not going to do it just out of principle. Here it's so obvious you have to do it that you you just have to do it. I I would be shocked if anyone didn't. But actually I wouldn't be shocked if if someone didn't. Why? Well, let's say you register in advance and you show up with no money to the casino because you feel you don't need it. You're just playing a tournament, you don't need money. Let's say you bring exactly $400 bills with you to buy in. You don't bring 410, you bring 400. And then you get to the table, okay, $10 more, please, for 5,000 more chips. What? I don't have $10. Whoops, sorry, sir. You, you, you only get 12,000 chips then. And the question is, why are they doing it this way? Just like the resort fee. Why are they doing it this way? Why are they splitting it? Why not say it's a $410 tournament, $10 goes to the dealer. The, the, the excuse here is this is for the dealers. This is a tip for the dealers. This is like a mandatory tip for the dealers. The dealers don't work for very much pay. The dealers, you're helping them out. This is a nice thing you can do to get the dealers some extra pay, and you start with some extra chips by doing it. Sounds nice, huh? Well, how about just make it a $410 tournament, earmark $10 of that to go to the dealers, and just start everybody out with 17,000 chips, and advertise it as a $410 satellite. Why not? Why split it? And the answer is, I don't know, other than to deceive people. Now, maybe, just maybe, I don't know Maryland law very well, maybe there's some kind of weird law in Maryland that they cannot take out of the pool to give the dealers. But I don't believe it because, uh, let's look at the fine print that is before this. The fine print before this says that $6 goes to registration staff. That of, the, of the 400 that 360 goes to the prize pool. $34 goes to the house, and 6 goes to what they call the registration staff. So $6 is going to the staff from the original 400 So why couldn't 
you make it 410, where 16 goes to the staff. I believe that they are just doing this to deceive. They just don't want people to see 410 and not be happy that for a 410 satellite that only 1 out of 10 win a $3,500 seat. And the math doesn't even add up right because they claim 360 goes to the prize pool and that uh, you get a $3,500 ticket. But maybe the other hunt, maybe it's thirty five hundred ticket plus a hundred dollars cash. They they will do that sometime. I'm not even sure why they do that. I don't know if it's by law they have to do it, but I, I notice in these satellites they usually give you the seat plus like a token amount of cash. So maybe it's like thirty five hundred plus one hundred cash you win. But uh, that that's not really what we're focusing on here. What we're focusing on here is that it sounds like they could easily just make this very simply, and it would save time too. Who wants to have people start whip out ten dollars more to get uh, separate chips? Like, why not just buy in for four ten, get given seventeen thousand chips in the start, everybody starts equal, and that's that. So I have to think that this is just done to deceive, to make it look a little cheaper than it is. And they present it this way because uh, you know who's going to complain? Kind of like the cruise. It's kind of a hybrid of the resort fee and the cruise ship situation. It's similar to the resort fee in that they're splitting up the price where a, a portion of the price is not being disclosed up front, and then you ask for it once you get there. And it's, it's like the cruise ship thing in that uh, it's going to the staff, and you're supposed to feel bad for the staff and say, okay, I'll pay it. The dealers deserve it. Well, fine. I'm not, I'm not saying they shouldn't go to the dealers. I'm not saying the dealers should be stiffed here. I'm fine with that $10 going to the dealer. My problem is that they are not disclosing it. One, it's dishonest, and two... People could only bring 400 there and then not be able to get the add-on. It's perfectly reasonable to bring only $400 to enter a $400 tournament. Perfectly reasonable to show up with that and nothing else in your pocket. So there, there's just no reason for this other, other than to deceive. That's, it's got to be the only reason this could be going on. And that's why it's bothering me. I don't care if it's only $10. It, it's, they're burying it in the fine print. They're making it look like a $400 event when it's really a 410 event. And it's pissing me off because this is being done to trick people. Just be honest and straightforward of how much this really costs. Now, I got a text from someone about this matter who lives in Maryland. And they said, I want to chime in about the dealer add-on that Alan Kessler is complaining about. It's common practice around here for many reasons. I don't know what the many reasons are, but I can tell you that this is ridiculous. This is deception. And even if they have a legitimate reason to be doing it this way for legal purposes or whatever, they can disclose it very, very boldly and clearly on all their promotional material and structure sheets. They should. There is no reason they have to bury this in the fine print. No reason whatsoever. And we're going to find out from Maryland Live what the story is here. Rather than just speculate, why did they do it? What were they expecting? We have a telephone on this radio show. And we can use this telephone to make phone calls to these uh, poker rooms or casinos that uh, need to be reached. So let's give them a call. Thank you for calling Live Casino and Hotel. This call may be monitored or recorded for quality assurance purposes. For casino information, please press 1. 
Good morning. Thank you for calling Live Casino and Hotel. This is Carmen. How may I help you? Uh, hello. Can I Nigel Fabersham here? Um, uh, I've, I've gone through much effort to make this phone call. Uh, w- would you be uh, kind enough to transfer me to the poker room? Certainly. One moment, please. All right. Tally-ho, pip-pip. Thank you for calling live poker. This is Amanda. How can I help you? Uh, yeah, hello. Can I Nigel Fabersham here? Um, I've, I've got um, something I was rather uh, un- un- unhappy with today. Um, I got to the, to the poker room, and um, I, I, I went to go play the satellite, all right? And I, I registered, and it was $400, $400 and I, I brought uh, four crisp $100 bills here, which I, I received. Uh, I, I came from London, so I actually I, I exchanged my pounds for them, and I, I, I brought down exactly $400. Um, and I'm not staying here. You know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I came from elsewhere. And um, I, I thought this should be enough. You need a $400 to enter a $400 tournament. Um, unfortunately, I sit at the table and they say, okay, um, $10 more, please, for uh, 5,000 more chips. And I said, have you gone mad? I, I already paid my buy-in. I should get all the chips I need. And they said, no, 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 it's $10 more for everybody to, to go to the dealers. It gets you 5,000 more chips. Well, I said, I had no idea about this. I didn't bring the extra $10 because I didn't think it would be needed. And they said, well, no, it's right on the structure sheet. So I, I, I ran luckily split to go get a structure sheet, and I said – I don't see anything about $10 here. So they pointed me to this thing so tiny I needed a, mi- a magnifying glass to see it. And it said about uh, this $10 extra to, to get 5,000 chips. And I said, if I had known this, I would have brought $410 here to the casino, not 400 Well, I started with 12000 12, And uh, I, I had a, a most unfortunate beat against someone who had 17000 And I, I busted right away. And uh, um, they, they, I was a shorter stack than they were, so, you know, so, so I was at an immediate disadvantage, and I didn't cash, and I was, I was uh, most unhappy with the situation. So um, can you tell me, wh- why did they split this up in such a manner? Why not just say it's a $410 tournament and then and, and just give the $10 to the dealers as, as they were supposed to and uh, be done with it? Um, so that's actually something that we do here on a lot of our tournaments. Some of them we don't have a dealer out on. Most of them we do. Usually it's about $10. So that's very typical of our tournaments. Um, I'm not sure how, or like, why you decided to come in for our tournament. Um, I don't really know um, what type of advertisement it was that brought you in. Um, but let well, me get you a supervisor real quick, okay? All right, well, you go ahead and get a supervisor, please. Yeah, thank you. Hello, sir. Yes, uh, hello. I'm going to transfer you up to a tournament supervisor, okay? All right, go ahead and do that. Tell you how Pip Pip, let's go on with it. All right, one second. Hopefully he answered the phone. You see, they probably don't want to discuss this matter. Think, oh, this Welcome, this is Tita. I had a kind of Nigel Fabersham here. Um, I, 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 I'm sorry. I, 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 this is Colonel Nigel Fabersham here, and um, I, I wanted to discuss the matter with uh, today's satellite because I, I played it early and I was most disappointed. Um, I brought exactly four hundred dollars to play this tournament, um, and, and I, I, this is what I came into the property with. I figured this is all I need. As I, what had happened is I'd been down to the poker room and I saw I, I saw an advertisement for a, a four hundred dollar tournament. Uh, a satellite into the main event, and I said, "All right, and that's, 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 I'm going to go ahead and break my duck and give the whole thing a try." So, uh, so I showed up, and um, the, the 400. I, I got into the tournament. When I sat at the table, 
I was told that for another 10, I could have another 5,000 chips. And I said, have you gone mad? Uh-huh. I, I don't have another $10 with me. I didn't think I needed to bring it. And I said, this is, this said nothing about this. And they showed me in the structure sheet this tiny, tiny thing that, um, you know, I, I think I, I'm not, you know, I'm not 22 years old anymore. I can't read, print that small without a magnifying glass. So, uh, so, so I, I could not believe that this thing was separated out. And I said, why not just charge $410 for the whole thing and then give that 10 to the dealers? I know it's for the dealers and I'm fine with that, but uh, why not just charge 410 up front, make it quite clear, and then uh, everybody knows to bring the proper amount of money to the casino and, and no one gets shut out of the final 5,000 chips like this. And sure enough, I, I, I busted, ended up with, a, you know, there's someone who had, had lost some chips and they only had 14,000. But um, anyway, I get it all in with um, ace, king against queens and um, they won the hand. But I would have still been alive in the tournament if I started with seventeen thousand rather than the the twelve I, I was forced to start with, and I was out. Now, uh, so I'm just wondering. I'm not looking for anything for you to give me or nothing like that. I, I just want to know why is it just simply not four hundred ten stated very clearly to where people won't make a mistake such as I did today. Uh, we do that on every single tournament except for our series tournaments. There's a dealer add-on for every single one of our tournaments. No, no, that, that's that's fine, and and I understand you do it, but but why? Why why is this separated out? What is the reason for it? Because it's a dealer add-on, so it's optional for the players. They don't have to do it. Well, and we it, don't force players to tip. We don't force players to tip the dealers. All right, but but you, you none of our none of our regular buying goes towards the dealers at all. All right, now, I understand that as well. But do you know that it's such a dramatic difference between getting um, twelve thousand for four hundred versus uh, seventeen thousand for 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 four ten that you'd have to be uh, an utter fool not to do the four ten. Even if you don't want to tip the dealer, you'd have to be a, a complete uh, imbecile. To, to not do this, to not uh, put in another $10 because of the tremendous value this additional $10 gets you. So it's not, it's not so much a tip. This is something you're giving. You, you have to give to be competitive here if you, if you have it on you, which I did not. So that's why I don't well, understand. Well, there's plenty of players who don't do that. There's plenty of players who don't do that, Adon. There's, there's actually people who say, I'm not going to put, put another $10 in to get another 5,000 chips. I have to imagine these are like the worst players in the tournament because no, no one with sense. Sure, we had at least, I think we had about five of them tonight for the 615 satellite. Did not do it? Well, they're out of fools then. What I'm saying is that it's, it's, it's such a, a dramatic difference in, in the amount of buy-in you get that it really isn't optional if you have any basic grasp of, uh, of mathematics. Now, I don't know how they teach, ma- teach math in the States, but they, they taught me that uh, 17,000 is, is, uh, is close to 50% more than 12,000. And, and for, for just 2.5% more of a buy-in, um, of course, this is something you absolutely would have to do if you want to be competitive in the tournament. If you wish to throw any throw away your money, then yes, don't do it. But this is see that if, if it was something where you just get a, a token amount of more chips, then this would make sense. But but this is so disproportionate to the the per chip dollar you get for the original buy-in. It's so so disproportionate. You you have to do it, and it's not really. It, it almost is mandatory, and that's that's what I I still don't understand. Why not just make it four ten? I don't think you're going to have people saying, "Oh, we're not going to play this because it's four ten instead of four hundred. I'm sure. I think if you're going to play for four hundred, you can play for four ten. You know what I'm saying? I think it's because we can't force you to tip the dealers, and that would be kind of like forcing you to tip the dealers. Well, that, okay, so so I believe that's probably what I'm talking about. So, so, that's, so my next but, question about this matter is that I, I saw it said that um, $6 of, your, of, the, of the 400 that you pay goes to the registration staff. So if you can, t- if you can take out the $6 for the registration staff, why can't you charge 410 and then also take $10 for the dealers as well? 
I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I'm not sure. That, I'm not really the one who sets it up. But I mean, did you not bring like your ATM card or anything? No, like no, that? no. Like, I, I, you could have gone to the ATM and gotten it. No, no. I, I didn't bring anything with me. I thought. You know, I thought the beauty of the tournament is you don't need to dig in your pocket for more. So I just. Uh, I, I didn't bring anything because I have a bit of a gambling uh, Jones, and I, I said, if I bring my my. ATM card or other money, then I, after I bust out, I'm going, to, I'm going to shoot off the money in other ways. So I want, the, the beauty of the tournament is I can bring 400 flat and then guarantee myself I'm not going to lose a penny more. And, and, that's, and that's why I chose this over playing cash. And, and, and this is why it was, it was uh, and that's why I chose to not play casino games. And, and this was, it was most unfortunate to me that it's just, it's at least, at the very least, make it very clear in the structure sheet where it says 400 and you should put in large print. Plus ten dollars. I mean, it's the same writing as the rest of the rules. Oh no, 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 no. The rules, yes, but but it says at the very big on, on top of the uh, on top of the structure sheet, four hundred dollar uh, uh, satellite to, to the tournament, and then in small print with all the other rules, it, it mentions this buried in the middle. Why, why not have it in big print with a four hundred, a four hundred plus optional ten for five thousand more chips, something like that, to where at least well, everyone is quite aware. Well, of why it. not just well, why not just have all the rules in large print and make the flyers like two or three sheets long? Because the rest of the rules are not as important. This, this, this one is non-standard. That's why. This is something that the, the average person will not know. You, you have to know this. Like, well, if, I mean, I, if someone I mean, I don't think the average person would know all the other rules I mean, that are listed on there. I mean, I don't think the average person coming from, like, central New York or Ohio would know exactly our structures and everything like that or that our blinds are 20-minute levels. I mean, oh, no, no, I but, mean but, if you're going by that – but, uh, basis, but, then I think you should just make it all large. No, 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 no. But this is this is all very standard. Okay, so so you want to know how many minutes levels? You know, okay, I'm going to look well, through this. There stru- are, there's plenty of casinos that do casino add-ons. I mean, there's a lot like MGM, like right down the street, and not right down the street, but you know, half an hour or so from us. Does uh, like a hundred dollar add-on in the middle of theirs? No, I know, the I know, I know, I know, I know that you're not the only one to do add-ons. My my point is here that. Um, this is something that, like, take someone from Las Vegas or Atlantic City. They they wouldn't just assume, oh, this has to be an add-on tournament. Most most tournaments are not add-on tournaments. There are some out there at the casinos. I'll concede that, but but most of them are not. So if if it's going to be an add-on tournament, it should be quite clear to everyone, especially from those out of the area, that that this is something that that they can do, and it should be very clear. And you, you don't have to put how many minute levels in big print because everyone knows to go look for that if they want that information. You don't know to go look for an add-on because it's not something that's standard. This is well, this is. It's not something that's done in most tournaments. I mean, I'll disagree with you. I think plenty of casinos across the nation, more majority of them, do an add-on for their casinos no, or for their tournaments. That's not true. And, and take people, take someone who's only played. Well, we the can World agree. We can agree to disagree on that. But th- like, take someone who only plays the World Series of Poker. There's no such thing like this in the World Series of Poker. And 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 it, all the ma- major tournaments. You know, if you just play the WBT, most of them you, you don't have this situation. So this is something where even if you're familiar with the brand and come here because it's a WPT, you're going to say, "Oh, I didn't know about this." It's just one. You don't well, have to make everything big. A WPT tournament, okay. though. But it says WPT right on the top. It says WPT Maryland well, it's Live. It's a WPT satellite, but it's not a WPT tournament. Okay, that's it's a, a tournament hosted by us where we give you tickets to get in for a cheaper value. Right, but it, but it's still associated with the WPT. I'm saying that you, you've got to look what the average customer well, is. I mean, to it's think. associated with live, and we do dealer add-ons here every time do, do, for every single one of our tournaments. If a fair portion of your customers are not aware of this ten dollars, even if they, I bet a lot of them who paid it weren't even aware. 
aware at the time they sit down, but they oh, I have the, I have the $10 in my pocket, I might as well. That's what most of them probably said. A lot probably weren't aware. If you have a, a healthy number, even if not the majority, but if you have a healthy number of, of, of customers who are not aware of it, then you've done something wrong in your communications with them. And that's, a, that's the basic rule of business. If, if you want to be an honest business, you make sure that, you, that, that, that almost every single customer understands exactly what they're paying for, for each product or service you're providing. And if there's, if there's even a, a fair percentage of people who don't know what they're paying when they sit down, then you, you've, you've failed in, in, in disclosure to them. So, so, what, so what you're telling me is, and what I'm understanding is that you didn't do your research on the tournament. Because if you go onto our website and look at the structure sheet, it's right on there in the structure sheet as well. Right. So it's, that you could go on like right now, if you're near a computer or even on your smartphone, you can log on to the website, look at the structure sheet for the satellite. And as you said, it's right there in print that it says that there's an add-on. So uh, to actually, me, what you're saying is that you currently didn't do the research for the satellite, like you're saying that people should do. Research? Have you gone mad? You, you don't have to do research for a tournament. With a tournament, you, you see how much it is. You, you pay what so the amount is. So you didn't look at the structure sheet then, is what you're telling I me. I didn't look at all these small print in the structure sheet, which many of your customers don't. So, and if, if many people, if so many what customers you're telling there, me is that you failed to read all the work. And no, it means that you, you hid a term in there that you wanted to deceive people with. That's the truth, okay? So you don't, don't put this on me. Don't, don't, don't act like this is the first time that, that there's deception through the fine print. This is a common scam that's been through many, many industries. Before you were even born, this is this type of thing was done. How do you, now, how do you know how old I am? Uh, because this sort of thing has existed before any of us were born. Before the oldest person in the world was born, this sort of thing existed where they hide things in the fine print to trick the customer into into thinking something's a different price than it is. It's a very it's a very well known trick. In fact, this Sir, is what resource fees are. What I'm going to do for you, yes. what I'm going to do for you, is I can get your name and information, and I'll pass it along to the director of the room, and I'll let him know that you're upset about it. All right. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Like, because this is, uh, this is clearly not going anywhere. No, no, it's not going you anywhere. And it's, it, you know, it's rather clear to me what's going on here. All right. Um, it, Your name? No, my, my name is Nigel Fabersham. That's N-I-G-E-L. Uh-huh. F-A-B-E-R-S-H-A-M. Okay. And, and uh, the, the phone number is... What's your player's card number? Oh, I, don't, I don't have that with me, but I'll give you, I'll give you the phone number to call me if they, if they wish. Okay. It's uh, 775-372-8354. Eight three five five. All right. I want to pass this along to my director, and I'm going to let him know that you're upset and with the situation. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I definitely need to know about this matter because it's, it, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not even asking for anything. I'm saying in the future, please just be transparent to where everyone understands. That's all I'm saying. Well, like I said, you said you looked at the sheet, but you just didn't seem like you read it all the way. So, I mean, it's out there. The information is out there. I just, it, it shouldn't I'm really be sorry buried. that you didn't I'm read the whole it, sheet. Yeah, and I'm sorry that you're burying it in a place that not everybody sees it right away. The, the price should be very obvious to anyone who's, who's going to register. It shouldn't be – it shouldn't, you shouldn't have well, to – you don't – it's an optional it, it, yes, it's, it's something it, you have to do. It's optional if, if you're a moron is what it is. If, 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 only a moron would not pay that other – if you think that it, it's, it's a smart move to not pay that $10 – or, or even a, a reasonable so let me move. Give my, Nigel, let me give you my director's email. Are you ready? Uh, um, yes, go ahead. Mike, M-I-K-E. Yes. Dot Smith, S-M-I-T-H. All right. At live, C-H dot com. All right. 
All right. So, so I'm just, I'm right. just okay. I'm just saying that all I want is transparency. All I want is uh, you can charge this ten dollars all you want. That's not my complaint. I just wanted everyone to know for sure before they register what the deal is. That's all. I, that's all I want, and very clearly, not buried in the fine print, but very clearly to one hundred percent of your customers will see it. That's what I want. Okay, Nigel. Uh, like I said, I'm going to let him know, and I've given you his email. All right. Uh, I'm not like this is how we've done it for. As long as I've been here, which is for years, so um, maybe it will change. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I just that'll want... be up to him and his staff. Right, and, and, and as I said, they don't have to change with the charging for the tournament. All they have to do is change the way people are informed about it. That's, that's all I'm asking. So, and, and well, they don't, they don't... like I said, we we put out all the information there. So right, it's, um, it's just not like in the I'm going to pass place. this information along, and uh, and you can certainly email him. You have his email. And uh, I guess it'll go from there, okay? All right, I will do that. Tell you how pip-pip, and let's get on with it. All right, have a good night. <laughs> that was a contentious phone call. Wow. This guy really he really tried hard to defend it. I mean, he was such an idiot. He couldn't understand that that's not what you were arguing. It's not a fucking rule. I mean, his comment about making all the rules that size, just put what you have to pay to get in. <laughs> I know. Fucking asshole! <laughs> it's, it's there. It's your fault. You didn't do the research. What research? Come on, research. You don't have to research before you play a poker tournament. You, you, you... right? And that and that rule is like putting more money in. Yeah, it's not even a rule, right? It's it's it's, it's, it's just uh, it's it's how much it costs to play. And then the thing is, the guy actually has the nerve to say that uh, it's optional. That's what's so ridiculous. It's not optional, and and it's you, you can't give that much of an advantage to those who put in that final $10 and then call it optional. You can't make it to where you uh, – such a large portion of, of the chip stack comes from the final $10 and they say, well, you don't have to pay the final $10. Of course you do. Just, I, I'm shocked that five didn't do it, but maybe the five didn't do it because, uh, like Nigel, they didn't show up with more than 400 Right, and then use the ATM with this probably like a ten dollars fee <laughs> right. for casino to use the ATM. And what's stupid is why not make it like why? Oh, we have to make everything big. No, you don't. No, you don't. You just just put the price. And they should want to make it big. That's not going to prevent somebody from not playing the tournament. Yeah, it's crazy. And they'll bring four hundred ten dollars. Yeah, it's crazy. Just just be honest. That's what I, I I don't want you to change anything. Just be, just be honest. Just be open and transparent here. About the whole thing. What a joke! I mean, that's a that, that was very. Uh, uh, the, the, I got a text from someone saying, "As professional as the guy was last week, this guy is the opposite. Just a stone cold, stone cold idiot." Oh my god, what an ass! <laughs> yeah, this guy was very confrontational. It's true. The, the Venetian, which also had a terrible policy, not a totally different matter, but the thing with the total prize pool, that guy tried to be like. More polite and less confrontational. This guy, this guy's trying to prove to Nigel that Nigel's just an idiot who didn't do his research. And if Nigel had just read everything, then it, it, you know, it's his fault for not doing it. That, and that's really what scammers love to say when they pull these things off. When it's it's, oh, it's, it's your fault. It's your fault for for not knowing, for not reading every little thing that we pulled this trick on you. You, you didn't read all the. What happened print. to the customers? Always right. Yeah. What what happened to just be honest with the customer? Shit. I mean, it's it's just. Um, when, whenever something is not really apparent, that's why I call it like the resort fee of tournaments. When it's not immediately apparent how much the thing really costs, then there's a trick to it. And that's, that's what was happening here. And so anyone saying, oh, it's just $10, it's optional. No, it's not. 
It's not, and they, they, they need to change this. And, and now I was told by that other text that this is common within the area, and that guy was trying to get to that too. Oh, in, Mar- in MGM, they do the same thing. This needs to stop everywhere in Maryland then. They just need to stop this. It's not, it's not honest. And if they made it proportionate, like if they said an extra they, – they still should disclose it, but if it was an extra $10 and you get an extra 2.5% of chips, then fine. Then at least you're getting the same ratio, or even ten percent. But there's still you, you. Once it once it increases over the per chip charge for the first four hundred, you're still. It's not as egregious as this. At least there, you can still be competitive with starting off with ten percent. Well, but you but, could you could make an argument if everybody has twelve thousand and some people got thirteen thousand. That's not that big of a deal. Yeah, but but it's still something where if people you know. bring the ten, they'll be pissed. Like I I, th- I think if, if it's, it's something where at least uh, if it were the sa- exact same ratio of, of chips you're getting for whatever the add-on is, then fine. Then it's more optional. Here it's like uh, it, it's so disproportionate that you you. It's not even like close to reasonable to say I won't do it. It's one of these things where even if I was super against it and felt like I had been tricked and said, fuck, I don't want to pay this. I'm just so mad in principle. I still would pay it because I know I'd be hurting myself too much not to because it's, it's just that much. Well, and if they advertise it, yeah, and if they advertise the 410 tournament, how many people are they going to lose? Nobody. That's what's so dumb. Like, I don't know why. And he, right. couldn't, he couldn't answer that. He couldn't. Well, that's just the way we do it. Well, okay. Why? Why? I think he was just like the like the texter or whatever guy said. This guy was just he couldn't grasp intellectually what you were saying. So it's like you <laughs> might as well argue with the tree. You didn't do your research. You didn't do your research, really. Wow. Well, that was uh, I, I. You never know what you're going to get on these phone calls. You never know what you're going to. I may have found the touch tones, by the way. I may have found them, but in a different place. I don't know Skype. They. It, it just forced me into an update. It updated itself without my... I think when Windows updated, it just automatically updated Skype, which is another crappy thing about the fact that Windows and Skype are now Microsoft products. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like still pissed on, on the Colonel's behalf over this. There's just, is this such a terrible phone call there? Okay, well, uh, I wonder if they're going to Google Colonel Fabersham and see that they were on this show. They're going to be thrilled about that. Fortunately, I don't care what Maryland Live thinks because... I've never been there, and I don't know if I'll ever go there. So I, I don't have to worry about, like, getting them pissed and then banning me or whatever because, like, who cares? <laughs> I I don't know if I'll ever sit foot in that place. And if even if they did ban me, like, I wouldn't go, oh, man, I was always meaning to go there. Like, if I were banned from the win in Boston, then, like, I may say, oh, you know, one day I may have wanted to check that place out. That kind of sucks. Like, it's, a, it's not somewhere I'd be going a lot, but I'd say this is kind of like a thing I'd like to see. But Maryland Live, I, honestly, I could take or leave. I, if I got banned from there, it, it wouldn't affect me one bit. All righty. Let's move on to discuss a story about Phil Ivey that was told by Scott Seaver. Now, I want to preface this by mentioning that I don't like Scott Seaver, and it has nothing to do with the rest of the story, and I believe what Scott Seaver said, and in fact, Nick Shulman, who the story's partially about, verified that this occurred, and Nick Shulman's not known to be a liar or exaggerator, so I I believe him. But uh, Scott Seaver, I, I I never liked his personality 
And this is someone who has never done anything that has been, like, shady, or he hasn't scammed anybody, and there hasn't been any scandal involving Scott Seaver. But he's just become, like, a, a very unlikable person in in many different ways to me. Like, the, the more I learned about him, the, the less I liked, both from playing with him personally and and just what I've seen of him on social media. So I'll tell you the various reasons I don't like Scott Seaver. Number one, he's a big-time whiner. This is a guy with tons of poker success, tons of tournament success. This is someone you can't look at his results and say, oh, this guy's run bad, this guy's unlucky. But he actually would tweet out, we even talked about it on this show a few years back, where he was actually tweeting out that he's one of the unluckiest players in poker and said, you know, how come these always come out and come down the wrong way for me when he took a bad beat? And the funny thing was when he was through this like social media wine fest, someone put together a montage of various times that he put down horrible beats on people in huge spots and, uh, and, and responded there. So, so this is like a huge whiner who legitimately believes that he's super unlucky and, and he's not. If anything, he's, he's, in these big spots, he's running better than average. That, that was always my impression, that he's gotten luckier than average. I'm not saying he's a bad player. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve the poker success he's had. But I'm saying that this is definitely not someone who, who would be even bigger if he just ran better. This is someone who, if anything, has run fairly well in, in, in big spots. So that's that, that's one thing. Another thing is he's just arrogant. The The only time I played with him in my memory, was a number of years ago. And he was sat at a $1,500 Limit Hold'em event. Either 1500 or 3000 one of these Limit Hold'em events. And, and all he could do the whole time was bitch about Limit Hold'em. Oh, this is such a stupid game. Oh, this game's so dumb. Oh, I'm so sick of this game. Well, then why did you register for it? Nobody forced you to play this. And and uh, then he was making dumb moves that, that were not at all correct for Limit Hold'em, especially in a tournament setting. And, and he donked off his chips, and he was out pretty fast. Uh, ironically, he ended up winning a bracelet at the 10K limit hold'em through a stupid day two entry, which I hate. I hate that that exists. I don't hate the entry itself, but I hate that they allow you to do that. And he must have just run super well and won. He may, he may have also improved at limit hold'em since then. I haven't played with him since. But I just thought to, to, he, that that whole thing with him, he was just very off-putting. He sat down, constantly bashed limit hold'em, which fine. If you don't like limit hold'em, that's fine, but to, uh, don't register for it then and bitch about it. And then, uh, like, a, a, a cute dealer sat down, like, a, she looked like late 20s or something, and, and, and she was pretty, and he, he was, like, very awkwardly flirting with her, but kind of doing it in kind of like an arrogant way, like, almost like he thought he was above her and above everybody at the table, and that uh, it, it was just like a really, and he went nowhere with it, she didn't, <laughs> she wasn't interested in him, but, but the, like, the, the flirting it wasn't even done in like an like in an awkward like guy who has no game sort of way which it was too but it, but it, but it was also done in like a way like that like a with an overconfidence that really shouldn't exist here cuz he wasn't impressing her at all he wasn't impressing anybody at all and when he left the table everyone commented on what an asshole he seemed like so uh and and he didn't berate anybody at the table but he just had this very arrogant vibe that he was just better than everybody there and, and I don't say this about every name pro poker player who sits down. In fact, some of them, I've remarked before, are very pleasant and very nice. 
and, and very good with everybody there. And, and even Nick Ranu is, is known for being uh, very good with the fans and, and pleasant at the table. But, but Scott Siever, just, uh, he just came off as an arrogant jerk. And, and then during one of the recent World Series final tables, I think it was three or four years ago, uh, he was watching the final table live on ESPN and tweeting about it. And, and all he could do was bash everybody. About how terrible they were. Wow, I can't. I wish I was at that final table. Wow, everyone's so bad. This is unbelievable. This is the main event final table. Wow, uh, just over and over and over, just nasty comments. And even just in general, he was naming people he thought were fish there. I'm thinking, what the hell? This, these are people who are not used to. Most of them are not used to playing for these type of stakes to be at the World Series main event final table. If I got there, I wouldn't be used to playing those type of stakes. And I've played fairly high stakes in my life. I, I wouldn't be used to playing for millions. So, yeah, yes, when you're there, it's, it's very hard to put that out of your head and always play your best game and, and not fear the money and not fear the pay jumps. And, and it, it's, it, you can say, in theory, you should, but it's hard to do, especially knowing that you may never be back there. So this isn't just like watching some cash game and commenting on people's play. This, this is the main event final table where there's a big factor to it of how much money is at stake. And, uh, of course, it can affect people's play. And, obviously, to get that far, you had to have done something right to get through that many people in that event with a lot of tough competition. I'm not saying that every single person who's ever made the final table is great. There, are, there can be some people who slip through who, uh, who've just got really lucky, like John Hefts when he, when he got there. But, uh, but still, even someone like John Hefts, they, they have a style which people have a hard time figuring out. And, and if, as long as they run well, they can, they can accumulate a lot of chips. So I, I thought that was very off-putting to watch him doing that. I, I, I've, you, know, you can go talk about individual plays. You can say this play at the final table I think was a mistake. I think this guy didn't play very well here. Uh, but, but that's not what Scott Seifert was doing. He was very arrogantly putting down everyone at the table and just basically saying they're all fish. And where I, whenever I've uh, criticized play at the main event final table, I've always said, I think this person's probably a good player. I just don't agree with this play, or, or I think they weren't playing well because they were nervous about the money, and that's very understandable. That, that's the way I approach it. That's the way a, a reasonable person should approach it. Uh, he approaches it, uh, like, like again, like he's better than everybody and, and, and looks down on them. Basically, what, what he kind of reminds me of is uh, he, he reminds me of when I was in, in high school or college and I would encounter computer nerds who were just awkward computer nerds who believed they weren't, who believed they were better than all the other awkward computer nerds. That somehow they, they convinced themselves that they were above all that. And, and they looked down on the other awkward computer nerds. And, was, and I'm looking at them and going, no, you're just like everybody else. <laughs> you may think you're different. You're not different. And that's, that's kind of like Scott Seaver. Scott Seaver is, is a, a fat nerd who, who happened to be good in poker. And that's fine. And I'm not even bashing him for that. I'm just saying that, that that's what he is. And, and if he pretends to be something else and, and looks down on people, he shouldn't. But this is someone who really thinks that he's cool now. Uh, then also when, when he made the Limit Hold'em 10K, main, not main, 10K Limit Event Final Table, he wore a shirt with... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's face emblazoned on it. He had a custom shirt made with her face on it. Now, 
to his credit, this is before most people knew who she was outside of New York. This is when she was not nationally known yet. In fact, the first time I'd ever heard of her was because she was on Scott's shirt. And I'm like, oh, who the hell is this? And I looked it up. But that's a stupid thing. This wasn't even a shirt he had. Around. He actually had that shirt made so uh, so he could have that on at the final table. It's just kind of obnoxious. And he really is one of these, like, virtue-signaling leftists. And he, he's very, very left-wing on his Twitter. But but very much from, like, the arrogant, I'm looking down on you, I'm, I'm left-wing, and therefore I'm better than you standpoint. And you can be left-wing without being that way. I, I know some left-wing people that are very nice, very pleasant people that just think differently politically than I do. And that's fine. And they don't look down on me for not being left-wing, and I don't look down on them for, for not being right-wing. Like, like you, you can... Treat someone with respect, and you cannot be arrogant, and you cannot look down on others for, for their political view. You can just say, well, this person thinks differently than I do. Fine. But this guy, this is one of these, he's one of those guys who looks down on you for not being uh, a social justice warrior like he is. So just all these things, I just, I just find him very off-putting. Uh, with that said, he hasn't done anything bad to anybody that I know of. He's stayed out of scandals. So as far as poker players go, he's, he's above all of them. He's like, I still take a jerk like him over, over a scammer or a, or a shady person who, who borrows money he doesn't ever pay anyone back or someone who promotes scam poker sites knowingly. He's better than all those people. I'll give him that. He hasn't done any stuff like that. But I still don't like him. And I, I don't even, like, when I saw he's being interviewed by, by Joey Ingram, I thought, I don't even want to watch this because I, I don't like him. But uh, there was an interesting clip that Joey Ingram put out that was interesting. And I'm going to play it for you guys. This is a clip, a clip that uh, Ingram put out on Twitter. And this is Ingram. This is actually Scott Seaver talking about two other people. So this story, even though it's Scott Seaver telling the story, it's not about him. But it's interesting, and it had never been heard before by the public, and even Joey hadn't heard of this before. Most people had not heard of this before. Even insiders within poker had not heard of this before. I will let you listen to it. So one of my favorite stories of Phil is when Nick Schulman's getting massage, Phil's at the table. It's during a World Series event, like a small one, a 1500. And Nick realizes that he doesn't have any money on him. And he's like, yo, Phil, can you pay for this massage for me? I have no money on me. Phil goes, no problem. Nick finishes the massage. Phil gives the masseuse $5,000. The, the massage was 200 bucks. Phil gives the masseuse 5 k says, keep it, and turns to Nick and says, you owe me 5 k True story, yeah. One of my, exactly, one of my favorites ever, because that's just how big time Phil is. That's how Phil operated. The most generous tipper of all time by far. But he, he just got Nick. He's like, hey, Nick, we're at five now, because Nick asked Phil to pay for his $200 massage. What would you do if that happened? If, 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 if that was ever, if somebody said, okay, can you pay for this? And they gave him $5,000 and said, okay, we're on. Yeah, I have no idea what I would do. What Nick did is they like agreed to like settle for like 2K or something. <laughs> so Nick ended up paying 2K and Phil paid 3K just for the funny joke. And like it was worth 3K for him to like get Nick to lose 2K on a $200 massage. Like, 
shit like that is just absolutely hilarious to me. Jeez, man, you play a lot. You play a lot with uh, with with uh, Phil. All right, I don't feel like hearing the rest of that. It's only like nine more seconds anyway. But uh, okay, let's break down the story here, and then I'll give you a little bit of an addendum to it because that sounds like a pretty crazy story that that Phil would have paid $5,000 for Nick Shulman to get a massage. And Nick said, hey, can you loan me some money here to get a massage? And Ivy's like, sure, and pays $5,000 for a $200 massage, tells the, the massage lady to keep the tip, and then he says to Nick, okay, I just I just put $5,000 for your massage. You owe me five k." And then according to Scott Seaver, they settled where Nick paid him back 2000 So did this really happen? And it wasn't exactly as Scott described it. Well, Nick Shulman responded and gave a little more details. He said, the settlement was an even deeper needle. Uh, he, he said, uh, just give me two, Nick. You, you know you can't breathe right now. And, and Nick says, I was stone dead broke at the time, and he knew this. And he said, in fact, don't pay nothing, Nick. No problem. Next time I saw him, I flicked over the deuce, referring to $2,000, he legit had no idea why. <laughs> so so this wasn't quite the way Scott told it, but it was close. That, yes, Nick said, hey, I I don't have money to pay the massage girl right now. Can you uh, loan it to me? And Phil says, okay. Really does pay 5000 for a 2000 massage and tells her to keep it. And then tells Nick he owes it. Nick probably turns white and it's like what the hell <laughs> he's he's already broke and now he's uh, ivy saying he owes five thousand and then finally i was like okay man okay no problem just, just give me two we'll be okay give me two thousand and it's like what the fuck how do I... <laughs> that's even a lot to me i'm, I'm still broke i can't so then uh he's like, oh, no, you know, no problem just give me nothing that's all right so so ivy did let him out of the whole debt the whole thing was a joke for ivy just to screw with him which is pretty amazing that ivy wasted forty eight hundred dollars on on screwing with with nick shulman that he spent forty eight hundred dollars just to fuck with nick shulman and that uh nick either really believed that he did owe the two to, to ivy and didn't realize it was totally a joke or or just uh thought he agreed to it or so so when he saw ivy the next time which must have been a little time from then he says oh here's the 2k i owe you and i was like what what? I, I don't understand. Why do you owe me 2K? So Ivy, Ivy really thought the joke was over. He thought he just spent $4,800 in playing a prank on Nick Shulman. And, and Nick really thought he had agreed to give him back too. And I, I guess Ivy kept the, kept the 2000 Like, Can you imagine? He actually spent $4,800 on that prank? I, I mean, uh, it, it's one thing to play the prank and have the massage girl in on it, even give her like a few, a few hundred extra to, to return most of the money. But she really, the massage girl really got a $4,800 tip on a $200 massage. She must have been going, what the fuck are these poker players? What is this? <laughs> I don't think Ivy would be throwing around money like that now. That he's got his issues with the Borgata. In fact, uh, I could see in this case the, the Borgata would, would be right there. And uh, they would assault the massage girl and, and, and take the 5000 from her. <laughs> But, wow, that, that shows you how crazy the high-stakes poker scene gets sometimes, where these guys are playing for such big money to where 4800 really is very little compared to what's wagered at the table. Like, think if they're playing like a uh, – like, there's actually – I saw a 5000-1000 limit game going this summer at the Aria. 
So every bet is a multiple of five or ten thousand. So this was like one small bet. Now this I don't know when this occurred, and I, this had to have occurred a while ago. Nick Shulman said he was broke at the time, and I don't believe he's broke now. But uh, Nick Shulman said he was flat broke then, and that's why Ivy was playing the joke on him. That not only was it was he thinking that he owes five thousand from this quote loaned money, but but it five thousand he didn't have, and then even two thousand he didn't have. But Ivy, he must have had enough money rolling at the time that it was it was okay for him to play a $4,800 prank on Nick Shulman. But then Ivy was pretty shocked that Nick actually gave him 2000 from it. And he'd forgotten it, too. He'd, he wasn't even like, oh, yeah, the prank. He's like, no, no, I, I don't get it, no. Like probably after Nick explained it, Ivy got it. But Ivy was like, really, it was the next time Nick saw him. I don't know how much longer it was after that, but the next time Nick saw him, and Ivy's like, huh? Two thousand? No, no, I don't, you don't owe me two thousand. What? What? That's 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 how little he remembered this. You think it'd be more memorable that he pulled a prank like this? I I wonder how many times Ivy's done this type of thing to others, or is this like a one-time thing he did to to Nick Shulman? But wow, that's that just shows what a different world it is at the high stakes. I don't even see like a much lower stakes version of this. And like the games I play, like at the sixty-one twenty Hold'em game in Commerce, I, I, I don't see like a a lesser version of this occurring. You just don't see things like this. This is, just, I guess, this is just something that happens with people that just throw around such huge money all the time that they, they start to lose touch of how much a dollar is really worth. How crazy is that? And yeah, I'll give credit to Dick Shulman. While this is not, no date was given for that story, but I'll give credit to him for admitting that when this occurred, he was stone dead broke. Because you think of Nick Shulman, and you think of him as a successful poker player. You think of him as a successful high-stakes poker player who plays uh, the really big games, which he does. And you think of him for his great commentary on the World Series of Poker, that he's one of people's... He's probably the all-time favorite poker commentator at this point. And he's not someone you'd picture being stone dead broke. But he was. So, a lot of poker players you wouldn't expect go through that. And remember, in poker, for every dream that comes true, another dream is shattered. The money comes from somewhere. And it doesn't come from the casino. Every time someone kills it at the table, someone else has gotten their ass kicked. And if there is no fish at the table, then... One of the poker pros, at least, is getting stomped on. And it's easy to focus on the winners without really thinking about who's losing. Same with tournament poker. Tournament poker, you're always looking who makes the final table, who gets the big money. You don't bother to think, who has been entering, like, 25 straight tournaments without a cash? Who's just been in a drought where they can't do anything more than min cash for years? And there's those people, many of whom were once successful. Uh... I, I don't want to, like, call out names and make people feel bad, but since he made it public himself, uh, Charter, uh, Christian Harder, who used to post on Everyone Poker, he went through a bad slump in the 2019 World Series where he went almost to the end of the whole series without cashing. He played a ton of events. I think he went over 23 or something to start the series. Just really awful. This guy's a good player. He just ran really bad and probably got in his head, too. They probably... 
it, he probably wasn't playing his A game by the end of this because it was probably in his head that every time he sits down, he's not going to cash. And this is where 15% of the field cash. So it's not as hard to cash as it used to be. And he went 23, I think, events in 2019. He finally cashed at the end of the series. But, boy, uh, I mean, he was announcing. He didn't have to say that. Like, I wouldn't have known that otherwise. I would have. I, I may have looked up and seen, oh, Charter hasn't. I, I, why isn't he up here on the Hendon mob for having cash in the World Series? But otherwise, I wouldn't think, oh, I, I, you know, I, I bet Charter's losing. Like, I, I would never think that. So uh, props to him, too, for admitting that on Twitter. And no one called him out or anything. He just posted it there. And I, I always have to admire those who are willing to come out and admit that they are in a slump. Or that they had been broke. Because it, it makes for a much more pleasant story about yourself. It, it makes for more admiration from the public to make it seem like just you've always been destroying it at the tables and you just sit down and effortlessly win all the time. And it's easy to get that impression of some of these guys until you think, well, wait a minute, you know, these nosebleed stakes games. I look in there, I don't, I, I recognize all the faces. So who's losing? Someone always is. And because the stakes are so high, you can't sustain a very long losing streak at those type of games before you have to step down, unless you can get someone backing you. So. It was a pretty interesting story. I thought it was worthy of telling. And uh, this was posted yesterday on Twitter. So I thought it was something worth mentioning. I found it today. Just kind of looking around for stuff to talk about on the show. It's an interesting Phil Ivey story, especially in light of everything that's currently going on with Ivey and his current financial issues. Ronnie Barta is another tournament player. Also plays catch, to my knowledge. I haven't really played much catch with him. But I've played a lot of World Series events with him. If I had to pick one guy in the 2010s who has ended up at my table the most, it was probably Ronnie Barda. I seem to always get him, either in uh, Limit Hold'em or No Limit Hold'em. I just <laughs> Somehow, I, I just keep getting him. I think 2019 was the first year I didn't get him. I think it was the first year I didn't get him. In 2018, I almost got away without him, and then he sat at the final event I played of the year, the 3K Limit Hold'em 6 Max. But uh, I, I got him a lot. He's a very solid player. Uh, little story about Ronnie Barda, I don't know if I've told you before. I probably have. I've told all these stories by now after seven and a half years of the show. But Ronnie Barda uh, played poker for a number of years before he was known. This was not a guy who just blew up out, right out the gate. This was a guy who uh, took a little time to start having enough tournament success to where people noticed him. In his early days, in the 2000s, he was a lurker on Never Win Poker, and he was also a listener to that show. So Ronnie Bar- Barda, and he told me this, this is how I know, when I, when I met him, uh, I think the first time is when he told me this, and by the time I met him, he was already well-known. But I, he told me that he was very happy to meet me because he used to really admire me and Micon. He used to listen to our show. He used to uh, lurk on the forum. And that he, you know, we were two of the players he really admired when he was a nobody. And I said, well, you've done pretty well for yourself. Now you're better known than either of us. But uh, I had expected 
you know, kind of like the grinder. When I had seen pictures of Ronnie Barda, but I'd only heard of him, I kind of thought, oh, I bet this guy's going to be arrogant. He just kind of had a look to him that I just thought he's going to be arrogant. He's someone I thought I was not going to like when I would meet him in person. I thought I'd probably, well, different than Scott Seaver, but I, I kind of thought I'd have the same sort of negative feelings, at least, like when I'd meet him. Just just from his look, I guess I was being kind of unfair, but just from his look, I kind of thought he looked arrogant. I thought the same thing with the grinder. Well, in both cases, when I met them in person, I thought very differently. So Ronnie Barda was was not arrogant at all. He was uh, very soft-spoken, uh, very polite, uh, didn't act arrogant at all, just acted like a regular guy at the table, was very friendly to everybody, didn't act like he's better than anybody, Just you know, really just a uh, nice guy. So I, I thought highly of him, and, and we always got along. We've, we've never had any issues. Uh, he always says hello to me when he sees me around. And he ended up on Survivor, which, for whatever reason, the, the people casting Survivor seem to love poker players. There's been uh, Anna Kate. There's been uh, Jean, Jean-Robert Balland. There's been that, uh, Garrett uh, Adelson, or something his name is. So, or Adelman. But uh, Ronnie Barda is now the fourth poker player to appear on Survivor. But don't bother looking for him because he is no longer on Survivor after just one episode. He only lasted one episode, which kind of surprised me because my impression of Ronnie Barda is that he was very good at being likable and avoiding drama in poker. And it's hard to do. It's hard to be in poker and not get people pissed at you. It's hard to be in poker and not get in arguments with people and have drama occur on social media. It's, it's just very hard. And, and even some people you think are liked by most people, you, you kind of find out later that they're not. You find out there's a lot of people who dislike them. But Ronnie Barda, I really never had anyone tell me they think he's a jerk. This is really somebody who had a uh, good reputation in poker both for his honesty and integrity and just for his personality. I can say I'm not someone who is a stranger to drama and poker. You guys know that. You guys know I had uh, had my arguments and disputes with people over the years. I haven't ripped anyone off, but you know, personality conflicts. But Ronnie Barda had avoided that in all his years in poker. So I thought if, if he's this likable in poker then a show like Survivor is probably a good spot for him to be. But apparently it wasn't, because he only made it through one episode. He, uh, I didn't watch it. I'm not a Survivor fan. I asked Mr. Tickle, who did watch it, and I, I asked him why, why did he get voted off, uh, how did he come off, and he said... He came off a bit aggressive and gave off some untrustworthy vibes, but he didn't do anything majorly wrong. The first level of survivor, or the first boot of survivor, meaning the first people get kicked off, is always just someone they can't find any. They can find any excuse to vote off. They really have nothing else to go on. So they've got to get rid of someone at the beginning, and they just kind of find an excuse to get rid of the one who's just the one they want there the least. So he he didn't really screw it up, but. He did kind of come off too aggressive and maybe a little untrustworthy. So whatever appeal he has in poker, it it didn't translate, I guess, to the small screen. 
sounds like they didn't really think much of him on Survivor. He also mentioned, I don't know what he's talking about here, I found the Boston Rob and Sandra bit a bit annoying. I don't think I'll be a fan of the, the this season's gimmick. Not sure what that is, but in case you watch, that's Mr. Tickle's review of it. And uh, so I'm going to play you a, a tr- little trailer they had for Ronnie Barda on Survivor. And then I'll comment on the trailer itself. Can you still hear the sound effects uh, that have been playing Trader Risky? I can. Okay, good. Okay, here we go. This is showing Ronnie Barta, age 36, Occupation Pro Poker Player, hometown Brockton, Massachusetts, current residence, Henderson, Nevada. I come from an Israeli family, first generation. We were the only Israeli family in Brockton, Mass. So it was hard being different. But there's a lot of champions that come from Brockton also. Yeah, Rocky Marciano, Marvin Hagler, and me, Ronnie Barda. Ronnie was somebody we liked the minute he walked in. On one part of him is this diabolical, strategy-driven poker player who is always running the odds. Okay, let me, let me stop this for a second. I can see what Mr. Tickle's talking about here because, and they believe me, they tell they're staging this whole thing. They're they're showing like he's putting his hand up to his face and then pointing. He's already looking arrogant here. I can see why that's giving off that vibe. And the funny thing, that's not really him. Like I don't ever see him acting that way at the poker table. He, but but they're trying to make him seem like this crafty poker player, and I think that probably worked against him. Listen, to what he's going to say next. All about exploit, 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 maneuver. And strike. Yeah, it's all about exploit, 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 maneuver, and strike. That's a, that doesn't sound like someone who's going to be cooperative. <laughs> so I don't think that's they, – they probably told him to play up that angle, but that doesn't make him look very good. pride myself in making some of the best reads in the world. I've made a living doing it for 16 years. It's the hardest way to make an easy living. And Survivor is the hardest way to make a million dollars. And I'm ready. But you talk to him and you realize he's this really deep-thinking, soft guy. I'm very passionate. I'm a lover more than a fighter. I need them to see who I am as a person first. Uh, uh, and if I say I'm a poker player right away, you know, I might be the first vote out. And it's going to be sad for America because I have a lot to offer. Wow, he, he predicted it. <laughs> he shouldn't have said that. He jinxed himself. Okay, so that's the little trailer for him. There's also a picture of him in this uh, – I, I think this is made by a fan, so maybe this wasn't part of the actual trailer they were showing on Survivor. The, the picture of him from the World Series wearing the Mad Macro patch, which I remember seeing him wearing. Trader Risky, are you aware of what Mad Macro is? Oh. Uh, you cut off there. What do you say? Mad, mad mad macro, I haven't heard of it. No, I hadn't either. So a lot of pros were wearing a mad macro patch, I think starting last year. And I found out what it is. It's it's a company that makes uh, like energy bars, like nutrition energy bars. And uh, it's based out of Vegas. And whoever owns the company must have decided they're going to get some poker pros to wear their patch. I don't know how much they were paid to wear it, but it's a, kind of a big, obnoxious patch. It's a white patch, and then it says Mad Macro on it in big brown printing. I wonder how much they paid Ronnie and other pros to wear that, because I, I saw him wearing this everywhere. And it's just kind of a weird thing for poker pros to be advertising. Like, 
Like, I can understand advertising poker training or something like that would be a better thing for him to wear. Ronnie Barra, you know, he's a good player. You know, he's been successful in tournaments. He's here. He's, he's wearing some patch with uh, some poker training site. Okay, I'm going to train on this site and, and become good like Ronnie Barra. That makes sense. Mad Macro, like, what, you're, you're going to look up. First of all, it's not obvious what that is. I had to look up what it was. But you're going to Google it and see it's an energy bar. Okay, well, why should I Why should I eat an energy bar just because Ronnie Barra has a patch on? Like, it's, it's not like. A guy sitting at a poker table is going to encourage you in some way to eat an energy bar. An energy bar and, and poker really don't have any connection. I, I guess if it, you want something you think is nutritious to eat when you're at the poker table. I don't know, but uh, kind of a weird thing <laughs> for people to be advertising. I didn't know what it was. I never bothered to look it up until I just saw this picture of him in this video, like yesterday when I was preparing the show. And I'm like, what is this Mad Macro? I meant to look this up a while ago. And I looked it up and I go, oh, that's what it is. Now, the first reference I see to Mad Macro from Googling it, having to do with poker, is actually a Poker News advertorial from June 2016 about Mad Macro, which I'm sure that Mad Macro paid them to cover. It says, the poker community continues to practice a healthier and healthier lifestyle. I doubt that. And this year at the 2016 World Series of Poker, there's a new kid on the block looking to help those stay on track. Mad Macro is a company providing macronutrient balanced nutrition bars that are grain and dairy free. They should be paying me for this, by the way. I'm, I'm giving them free advertising. They're also soy and gluten free, plus sweetened and coconut nectar for great taste. You know, I'm, I'm blowing an opportunity here. I, I should be, instead of making fun of them, I should be emailing them to advertise on the show. In fact, there's a video here in this article with Ronnie Barda holding up a Mad Macro bar. I wonder if he partially owns them. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe he invested in it. That would make sense. That would make sense. I'm going to play this video with Sarah Herring and Ronnie Barda. Hello, everyone. You're watching PokerNews.com. Now, if you followed any of the coverage of the Super High Roller Bowl this last week, you may have noticed a lot of your favorite high rollers getting down on some delicious Mad Macro bars. Now, I personally had never had one, so I set out to do a little research and find out what I was missing. Oh, jeez. I'm sure she really wanted to do this research. <laughs> Sarah, your assignment today is to eat a Mad Macro bar and do a three-minute video on it. She's like, no, please, anything but that. Well, Mad Macro kind of just started out as something, you know, I started the paleo diet like three years ago and basically just couldn't find anything that met like the nutritional needs that I wanted. This is Jason Seguin, the founder. I wonder if he's a poker player. I don't recognize him, but I'm, I wonder if he is. He kind of looks like a poker player. I'm gonna Google him. Jason Seguin Poker. Um, he's from Canada originally. Let's look at his Hendon mob. Uh, he has... A, a very, very impressive poker resume. He's won uh, $887 lifetime in tournaments. <laughs> Sorry, he, he cashed $887 lifetime in tournaments. I have to imagine he's not a winner. Okay, so so clearly he's not a poker pro. He's not a tournament pro. But let, let, let's hear more about uh, Mad Macro and this exciting product that we're advertising for free to have and so I just kind of came up with my own bars I made them at home fresh and just kind of brought them to the poker room traveled with them and 
uh, just people started trying them, and they're like, oh, wow, you know, these are really good, and they like them, and they're like, why don't you, you know, start your own business, something like that, and I just, you know, I just mainly did it for myself, and mainly did it to share with my friends and family, and, you know, try to get the, the word out there about paleo diet, or just eating healthy, and, you know, no grains, no dairy, no gluten, things like that, something I really believe in, and I think, you know, more people should, uh, you know, incorporate that type into their diet. They're not even trying to make this look like it's not a, a, an infomercial. <laughs> I thought I'd figure out what this is. Well, actually, that's what I'm doing. Like, I'm, I'm making fun of Sarah Herring for supposedly setting out to figure out what this is, but but then I'm actually doing that on this show and not getting paid for it. So who, who's the fool here? So I, I don't know if you remember when you did that. This is Ronnie Barta. When I won my bracelet, I was going through a lot of neurological issues and stomach issues. And uh, I met the, the creator and founder of Mad Macro years ago. And when I met Jason... He was concerned with my health issues. I, I talked to him about it, and he was into paleo and into like, you know, healthy, healthy eating, into you know, no dairy, no soy, no, no grains. Which I still do eat a little rice and quinoa once in a while. But I mean, he helped me so much, and he was one of the very few people that were there for me. That you know, text me once in a while, helped me with. This is a very heartbreaking, heart, heart, not heartbreaking. This is a very uh, heartwarming story. That uh, there's only one person out there. Who took a concern with Ronnie Barda's health? It wasn't his family, it wasn't his friends, it wasn't his girlfriend. No, it was it was Jason Seguin of Mad Macro Energy Bars, who said, "I understand, Ronnie. You're, you're having your neurological issues. I'm the only one who understands you. Let me help you." <laughs> let's, let's go on here. I, I I don't know. I can't stop playing this. I, I shouldn't be playing this, but I'm playing it. You know, certain things I need to adjust with my, my um, because everything is what you put inside your body. And it takes a long time. It's just something you can't say, like, okay, I'm going to stop eating uh, cheese and I'm going to stop, you know, you know, eating uh, terrible quality of, like, terrible bad meat. Like, right now I'm only eating grass-fed meat, where before I would just eat meat everywhere. And the side of the street, I'd just get, you know, tacos from this guy or go to Chili's and get a steak. Well, it's, it's really important what you put in your body is all these things have, like, you know, antibiotics and tons of shit injected into them and you're just eating and that's what goes into your body so i'm super sensitive also so when i jason would always you know help me out and just you know always check up on me and he helped me greatly with nutrition and stuff and, and ever since i've listened to him and kind of went paleo my health is like just did a whole 360 <laughs> look I, I don't know how much of this is true but I've got to say that 100% he's either being paid to promote this or owns a piece of this. There's, there's no way he's doing all this promotion because Jason turned his life around with Mad Macro Bars. Now I'm not getting all the cramping, the bloating, no neurological issues anymore. I feel great. Um, my, my results playing are better also because I'm comfortable while I play. I'm not always in some kind of ailment, some kind of pain. I'm, I think this is actually the first year, 2016, that he didn't cash in the main event. He cashed like five years in a row to set a record. And then I think it was 16 where he didn't cash. So that uh, may not have been true this year. <laughs> in fact, I'm going to look this up. I think I think actually since Ronnie Barda's streak was broken, I think he's been I think he's been in a little main event slump. I think he's gone three in a row without cashing the main event. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to look at Ronnie Barda's results. Now he is beating me right now in lifetime caches. It says Ronnie Barda, quote, Roe Nasty. I've never heard of him being called Roe Nasty before. Like, why even put that? I've, I've never heard of that nickname for him. But it's, he has 1.3 million in lifetime caches. I'm a, a hair under a million. I'm at 974,000 lifetime. But looking at his uh, results on Hendon Mob, which I always like to do on this show. Yeah, he didn't have a good World Series of Poker. I think I saw that, too. 
he cashed uh, kind of a min cash. He wasn't min cash. He min cashed the closer, the very final event of the World Series of Poker. And that was his only cash this year. It was pretty brutal. I think he was kind of like charter this year. He was bricking everything. I think I remember seeing that on Twitter that he was complaining about it. He he did better in 2018. Um, he cashed one, two, three, four, five, six times. So that shows you what a letdown this year was. Though nothing was big in 18 either. The biggest cash in 18 was 7,000. In 17 at the World Series, let's see. 17, he didn't have a great year either in the World Series. So if, if, if anything could be concluded from this, it, it would be that uh, Mad Macro bars have made it play worse. Because in 17, he cashed three times, but uh, the biggest one was $2,765. And let's see, 2016. Oh, no, you know what? 2016, um, did he get the main event that year? No, that was the first year he didn't cash the main event. But 20, he did min-cash the... Uh, the limit hold him to 10k so he did make 5k there and he did cash uh let's see one two three four five times in that series though again none were that big so yeah this that, that was the year that his main event streak which was five straight main events was broken all thanks to mad macro now he's gone four straight years of that cashing the main event and I did not eat a Mad Macro bar this year, and I finished 128th for 59K. What do you think of that? What is the conclusion there? Should you be eating a Mad Macro bar? They're never going to be a sponsor here after all this. But should should they should you be eating a Mad Macro bar when Ronnie, who's cashed five years in a row, a, a record at the World Series of Poker main event, starts eating Mad Macro bars, and now he's bricked four in a row, and I am not eating them, and I finished 128th in 2019. What, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? In fact, I'll go as far to say Hossein Ensan, the winner of the 2019 main event, also did not eat any Mad Macro bars, to my knowledge. That's some food for thought as well. <laughs> He's got to own a piece of this or something. But I, I did see a number of pros wearing it, but just like looking it up on the internet, I, I find this video and he's in it. I'll play you the last 20 seconds of it. I'm already completely addicted. It's 100% healthy and organic, which I know is something the poker community is looking for now. It's a great way to supplement your meals while you're here with the long days at the Rio. So definitely give it a shot. Thank you guys so much. I'm Sarah Herring. You're on PokerNews.com. Boom. I like that ending. The beginning ending. Boom. You know what kind of reminds me of? Kind of reminds me of this. I wonder if that's the inspiration. Let's hear this again. I want to hear the very end of this. Dot com. Very similar. Very similar. No wonder I like it so much. All right. Nice little aside there about Mad Macro Bars. You know, my stomach, I, I'm going to tell you guys something. I don't know if I've, I've told you guys this yet, but... When my health issues started last year, right at the same time, an issue came up that I still have not solved, and that is abdominal pain. I have right abdominal pain that is sometimes worse, sometimes not as bad. It's never terrible. It it kind of goes from 
low grade to medium level, but it's never gone and it's never terrible. But I've had it now for more than a year, which is actually good in one way, because if it were something like cancer, you'd think it would have worsened in, in this 13 months or so that I've had it and, and not kind of stayed the same. So the, the fact that we've had this amount of time pass without any worsening is actually a good sign. But but not that I'm thrilled about having it, and yeah, I, I still have the worries sometimes that this might be something. Now, I, I've had uh, a CT scan done and, and, and uh, other ultrasounds and stuff to try to identify what this might be, and there's really been no answers. And sometimes you just, with abdominal pain, sometimes you really just get no answer. And some people just have it their whole life or the whole rest of their life and never find out what it was. So I, I have this pain. It, it, it's in my kind of lower middle abdomen, and it goes down. It, it doesn't go up. Occasionally it goes to my back, but usually it just goes down. And it's always kind of based around the lower middle abdomen. Can't figure out what it is. Uh, all the usual suspects are not it. Not a hernia, not an ulcer. Uh, so these, it, it's a mystery to me what that is. Um, I actually started taking something just a few days ago. Just as kind of an experiment. I had some of these uh, D-limonene pills laying around. It's a supplement. It's, in the, it's like an orange-based supplement. And I, it, it was known to help people with LPR, which is that lump in the throat thing I have. I tried taking it last year. It didn't help with the LPR. But it also didn't hurt me any. I didn't have any side effects from it. Some people did complain about side effects from D-limonene, which scared me a bit. But then I tr- when I took it, it didn't. Uh, you don't have any at all. The only side effect you get, which to me is fine, is it, you, when you burp, you, you taste orange. But it's not like an unpleasant orange. It's just kind of like... It kind of just feels like you ate an orange when you have to burped. So it's it's no big deal. But other than that, there's no side effects. And so it wasn't hurting me or helping me. So I, I just kind of quit it, though, because it wasn't helping. But I, I was just kind of staring at the leftover D-limonene, which is good till 2021, so it wasn't expired. I was just kind of looking at it. And I go, you know what? I, I've read studies that this helps with inflammation and that it's helped laboratory rats that had... Uh, inflammation and there's some real credible studies that showed it it actually can be helpful for things like this and i said you know what if this is some kind of inflammation that's in my abdomen maybe this will help so i've just for the last few days started taking it again and it's actually maybe helped and i say maybe because there actually has been a, a decrease it's not gone but there's been a decrease in the pain but sometimes it just decreases on its own, so I can't tell if it's the D-limonene or not. So I have to take the D-limonene for a while to see if uh, we're really having a long-term improvement on this. But maybe my mistake is not eating a mad macro bar. Maybe maybe I need to meet up with this Jason Seguin, eat those bars, and I can be on there saying, you know, in 2018, I started getting this abdominal pain, and I had a lump in my throat, and I, I thought I'd never get rid of these things. But then in uh, in 2020, I started eating the Mad Macro Bar, and I'll tell you, it's made the abdominal pain go away. It's it's made the lump in my throat go away, and and my poker game's even better. I mean, this is the first this is the first World Series I've gone the 2020 World Series where I haven't cashed, but but I feel my poker game is better than ever. The first time since I ever played the World Series that I didn't cash at least once, but still, my poker game is better. Thank you, Mad Macro. All right, let's move on here. Enough free advertising. We don't have any real sponsors on the show. I just, I, I just like make fake sponsors. The good thing is I, I can make fun of the products when they're not sponsors. See, if, if they really were a sponsor, I couldn't say these things. 
And I pretty much guarantee they're not going to be a sponsor. I should actually be doing the opposite. When I see things like they're willing to throw money at poker players, I shouldn't be mocking them. I should be kissing their ass. I should say, oh, yeah, you know, I tried Mad Macro this year, and that was part of the reason that I was able to get over these anxiety problems I had, and uh, and I was able to focus on the World Series and got to 128th in the main event this year. That That's what I should be saying. And then just approach them and go, hey, look what I just casually mentioned on my show. And if just you pay me a little more money, I'll start casually mentioning on every show. Okay. Well, at least you can't accuse me of being a sellout with a site that loses money and has no sponsors. All right. Let's see what's next. Uh, There's a major hacking bust and a guilty plea resulting from it. This one that I'm going to tell you about has to do with a Russian. A Russian hacker was part of a major, major hacking bust who also operated scam online casinos has pled guilty in U.S. federal court. You knew that sound effect was coming. So here's the story, and it's an interesting story by itself, but it's good for this show, especially because it has a tie-in to... Gambling, and anything with a tie into gambling is appropriate for this show. So here is what occurred. Uh, I said I lost the article of what occurred. I always have an article in front of me referencing it. Where, where did this go? I had it up. Okay, here we are. So Andre Turin who is a Russian hacker, has pled guilty in New York federal court to uh, online gambling fraud and also for uh, theft of consumer information. They actually got him in the U.S. after he was extradited from the Republic of Georgia. I'm not talking about the state of Georgia. I'm talking about the Republic of Georgia. They got that done in December of 2018 over the stuff that he and his hacker group were doing from 2012 to 2015. The other people involved were Israelis Jerry Shalon and Ziv Orenstein, and then also an American named Joshua Samuel Aaron. Now, the amazing thing is how much income that these hacking schemes produced because usually these hackers are not even doing it for the money. They're just doing it for almost like a game just because they enjoy it. They enjoy the challenge. Well, these hackers were in it for the money and they ended up making $100 billion. No, but they are said to have possibly made a few billion dollars, maybe more than that. Billion, not million. And I'll tell you how. So, in uh, in 2015, this guy uh, Shalone, Jerry Shalone, was captured, and uh, he pled guilty. And he actually only served nine months in prison, but they fined him. Would you believe four hundred three million dollars? Then Tiarine is also going to be facing some uh, pretty tough potential uh, 
sentences here. Officially, he, pl- he pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to com- commit computer hacking, one count of wire fraud, and one count of conspiracy to violate the UIGEA. Also, he pled guilty to wire fraud and bank fraud. Now, all of these carry long sentences of like 5 to 30 years, and these are all separate counts, so he could get a a massive sentence here. But, of course, these are maximum sentences, and uh, it's unlikely he'll get anything like life in prison or 100 years or anything like that. Uh, But still, he may be facing a a, a pretty long sentence and and some kind of really steep uh, restitution amount. Attorney General, or U.S. Attorney, not Attorney General, U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman said... Andre Thierry's extensive hacking campaign targeted major financial institutions, brokerage firms, news agencies, and other companies. Ultimately, he gathered the customer data of more than 80 million victims, one of the largest thefts of U.S. customer data from a single financial institution in history. With today's plea, Thierry's global reign of computer intrusion is over, and he faces a significant time in U.S. prison for his crimes. So he actually went after Chase, Ameritrade, Scott Trade, E-Trade, and Fidelity and stole 80 million people's info. Imagine. And uh, so they're, they're really trying to come down hard on this. I don't, I don't know. If, I have to assume he'll get a much longer sentence than this Israeli guy. I, I don't even know if he was tried in U.S. court, that other guy. They also ran scam casinos. These were online casinos that just never paid anybody. You could deposit, and they just wouldn't cash out. They're called no-pay casinos. Not slow pay, not sometimes pay, not occasional pay, no pay. They are, unlike a lot of these other scam or semi-scam gambling sites where they start out intending to pay people and then run into cash flow problems and just uh, steal deposits at that point and don't pay anybody because they're trying to get back on their feet – these casinos were never intended to pay anybody. They were put up initially to be a scam and were. These sites were run under the company called Netad Management, N-E-T-A-D. And they were hosted out of Curacao. The reason they were hosted in Curacao is because Curacao has very, very, very weak regulation that they are willing to host these sites and as long as you pay your licensing fee, they don't care what you do. They don't care if you pay. They don't care how you treat the customers. All they care is you pay your fee to them in Curacao, and they give you a license. So what they would do is they would uh, spam big time to get the casino links out there. And a lot of times they were spamming by hacking WordPress blogs and then would uh, spam their casino on there and then hope that uh, Google searches for online casino would result in links to their casinos because so many blogs were mentioning it. And it worked because a lot of people went there. So that's uh, they weren't even paying to advertise. They were actually just hacking what they could and advertising. Now, I've seen this before. I've seen these attempts to spam poker fraud alerts forum and vegas casino talks forum which i also own where where 
people will show up and advertise shady casinos I haven't heard of before, and I quickly delete those messages and ban those accounts and IPs. But it's usually casinos like that. I also will get sometimes emails that are offering to pay me something to put front page links to certain casinos. And I always turn those down because I assume these are scam casinos. And the reason they want me to front page link it is not so much for poker fraud alert members to click on them, but just to improve their Google results. Because they, they, we lost Trader Risky somehow. But, but they, these, uh, these casinos show up better in Google results if sites that are respected by Google, which Poker Fraud Alert is because we've been around seven and a half years and there's a lot of high-quality links to us over time. So we're known as an established site by Google. And if we link to something, that gives whatever we link to extra points. So I get these casinos asking me to link them on the home page, which is the most valuable place to have the link, and offer to pay me money. And I, I refuse it because I know these are probably scams. So I'm not going to advertise anything on Poker Fraud Alert that I don't believe in, and those I don't believe in at all. I don't. I'm not saying it was this, these Natad management sites. I don't think they were paying anyone. I think they were just hacking WordPress blogs and uh, doing it that way. The online casinos that they ran that didn't pay anybody were the following ones: Win Palace Casino, Casino Titan, Slot Jungle, Jackpot Grand Casino. Golden Cherry Casino, Slots of Fortune, Bigado Casino, Grand Macau Casino, Grand Macau Live Dealer Casino, and Win Palace Play. You might think you've heard of these, but you probably haven't. These are all uh, these are all named to sound familiar when they're not, like Jackpot Grand, Golden Cherry, uh, Slots of Fortune, Grand Macau. These are all names that are kind of similar to other legitimate either live or online casinos. Like, let's take Golden Charity. You, there, there's uh, Golden Palace is the much better known casino. So you may think, oh, Golden, yeah, Golden Sunday Casino, yeah, I've heard of that. Or uh, Slots of Fortune. You've probably heard of Slots of Fun in Las Vegas. Grand Macau Casino. It, it makes you think of Casinos in Macau. So you go, yeah, I know there's casinos in Macau. This must be an online site of a a Macau casino. It wasn't. They were just called that. And Casino Titan. I think there's Titan Poker, if you remember. So they, they, then there's Wind Palace Casino, which again is like Golden Palace. They obviously are trying to emulate Golden Palace in some way. Or at least in name, they're trying to do that. So they, they purposely chose these names to sound familiar so it sounds like something you've heard of before. So all these casinos online, if you deposited, no matter what you won on them, they, they wouldn't pay you. Didn't matter how much your balance showed there, you would not get paid. So those four were running those casinos, and this Russian guy, Andre Turin, was the one, I think, most responsible for the hacking of those brokerages in the U.S., and, and Chase as well, to get uh, $80 million, right, 80 million names and their personal information. I, I do want to mention one thing just in general about this. The sad thing about your personal information and your passwords in many cases and your accounts is that most of the security of all that stuff is kind of out of your hands. 
and it, it's going to make you feel helpless and it's going to make you feel angry and uncomfortable if you think about it, but that's the truth. These mass hackings are increasing nowadays. You're probably hearing about more and more of these. There's just one that happened to Capital One that was done by someone here in the U.S. who was just doing it for fun. It was a, a transsexual who did it, actually. But this is happening more and more in that there are these uh, large institutions that, especially with all these companies merging these days, that just uh, have an incredible amount of data on people. And then they don't engage in very strong security practices and they get their sites hacked and they get their databases hacked. And then... uh, your information's out there. Your passwords are often decrypted. Sometimes they're not even stored encrypted amazingly enough, but sometimes they are and they're, they're cracked. So they'll, they'll, they'll get your passwords. They'll get your email address. They'll get your financial information, including uh, results of credit checks. They'll get your social security number in many cases. They'll, they'll get your, all your address info, your phone number info, info on your relatives. I mean, they'll, they'll get a lot of stuff. And there's nothing you can do. And a lot of people are too worried about things which are not likely to affect them. Like people worried about government surveillance when there's the talk about surveillance by the government, like the Patriot Act and things like that, that the government's going to be doing additional surveillance to try to catch terrorists. And people get so worried, oh no, what if this is misused? What if... uh, what if people are listening to my phone calls and hearing me talk about stuff that I don't want anyone to hear and it's none of the government's business, blah, blah, blah. Regardless of how you feel about that, uh, that's not where the real threat is. The real threat is that there are companies that have a massive amount of information on you that don't protect it well. And then hackers take it and then hackers sell it, often to bad actors. Often even if the hackers are not planning to do anything bad with it, they will sell it to people or sometimes even countries that will do something bad with it. Or the countries themselves will have will assign hackers to go after these U.S. companies and, and harvest data. China did that. So your info has gotten into a lot of bad people's hands. A lot of your info has. If you have a password that is like 12 characters and it's a bunch of gibberish that you have to look it up every time, like IMJU7 exclamation mark carrot uh, R... Five percentage sign uh, number sign. You may think, oh, no one's going to ever hack that. Well, no one's going to brute force hack that. Nobody, no one is going to hack it by just trying the same password over and over and over and over. Uh, different, I mean, different. Trying a different password over and over and over for your account and, and until they get it right. If you have one that complex, no one will ever get it. You're right about that, but that's not how they're hacked. That might be how your account would be hacked if someone was trying to target you and only you. But even then. Uh, that's not likely to be successful unless they already have some tips of what passwords you've used in the past. But uh, the truth is that no one's going to usually go after your individual password. Really, if you want good password security, you don't have to worry about uh, brute force hacks that much. They're not even used that much because it's just... What they're going for is massive amounts of data at at the same time. So if it's just to crack your account then yes, it would make sense to do what's known as a dictionary attack where they try a lot of different common words for for passwords or a bunch of common words together or common words with numbers after them and then try that. Like, th- There are programs that can do that, 
but it's still time consuming. And often these sites only let you have like five wrong passwords before it locks your account where a brute force attack wouldn't work. So really what's at, what's happening, the hackings that are, are occurring are hackings that are being done on a mass scale where you're not being targeted. It's where companies holding mass amount of data are targeted and then all of that data is taken together. And that's much, 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 much more efficient. Nobody just wants your data. So you don't have to choose an incredibly complex password. It is smart not to choose the same password everywhere because of when these mass hackings occur, then your password is known and that password can be tried on other sites by those same hackers to see what else they can get. Also, your password may be published somewhere. You never know. And then people who know you personally could get it and try to get into your stuff. So you should use at least a somewhat different password everywhere, but it doesn't have to be that different. And it doesn't have to be like an over-the-top gibberish password that you have to consult a paper for every time to remember. Just something that isn't just one word and has some numbers and... Yeah, like like a, a password to be just fine would be uh, uh, yeah, f- flying carrot forty four, totally fine. That's not my password anywhere, by the way. But flying carrot forty four would be absolutely fine. Would it be uncrackable? No, a, a good dictionary cracking program could easily pick up flying carrot forty four. But nobody's gonna, no one's going to be running a, fl- a dictionary attack on your own account. So you, it's not going to happen. So you're fine. And those really can't be run on sites like that because, as I said, they'll lock you out after about five attempts. But that's the real danger. That's the real danger, though, that info being harvested. And uh, just because nothing's happened to you yet from this data being taken doesn't mean that it's not out there. It just hasn't been used because there's millions of people's data. In this case, 80 million people have their data stolen. So they're not going to victimize 80 million people. But yours is out there for certain hackers, and and at some point, I haven't seen this yet, but at some point there will probably be illicit sites out there on the web that are run in in foreign countries where it can't be shut down where you can buy people's info. So, hey, you pay this site $100, and they'll give you anyone's social security number. Pay them uh, a few more hundred dollars, you'll get even more info about them. So if you really want to research someone, you're stalking or whatever, you want to harass, you want to screw with them, you want to – access all their, their stuff or maybe maybe break into their accounts or you know maybe you could buy people's commonly used passwords or uh, a lot of this stuff could be for sale that wouldn't be useful on mass scale but but could be useful for consumers who, who want to buy individual people's data to target them that's that's where the real vulnerability is and that's the type of thing we might see in the future or we could even see spiteful data dumps where they're just put up there where this info is just put up somewhere and dumped somewhere to where anyone can access it not much you can do about it but that's that's the stuff you have to worry about. Not the government surveillance, not someone cracking your individual password, but these mass hackings are what to worry about. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number to this show. Let me take a look at the text messages we have received on that same phone number, which you can still text me at any time. In fact, even if you're not listening live, you can text me on that phone number because I will check it all day, every day. From the 954, uh, t- turmeric will help with inflammation. In Bahamas, they call it a superfood. A nutritionist uh, taught me s- smoothies to make, fruits, veggies, 
uh, chia seeds, flax seeds, beet powder, and a veggie powder blend will take that stomach issue away. I, I've heard of turmeric. I, I haven't tried it yet, but I have heard about how it, it helps some people. I looked into all this stuff when I was having uh, not so much stomach problems, but since I, I do have this H. pylori that lives inside of me, which a lot of you have too and just don't know about it. Um, and there's even some debate of whether it's good or bad that that thing lives in you, because it actually it does some good things and some bad things. But still, uh, I was looking at natural ways to get rid of it without having to take these like really, really brutal antibiotics that make you like sicker than ever for two weeks. So that was one of the things I ran into. Never, never got it, but if it is inflammation, maybe that could help. Let's see, from the 774, he didn't say not to say this out here, so uh, I'm going to put it out there. I won't say who it's from, other than the area code 774. My debit card info was stolen, not the physical card itself, but just the number. Someone made uh, a 103 and something purchase, that's $103 and something, at walmart.com. I use my debit card frequently, my credit card sparingly. Won't do that anymore. However, I did use my debit card to deposit onto ACR and Ignition recently. I don't have any proof, but I would guess my info was stolen that way. Probably ACR. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, but maybe not. I've had my credit card info stolen twice in 2019. Same card. I, I got it. the number changed, and it got stolen again. Obviously, some merchant has some, or, or, or at least someone at, uh, could be someone at the bank, clearinghouse, uh, somewhere. Somewhere something associated either with this card or a merchant I use the card with has been stealing the information and giving it to criminals who then were buying things. Now, mine wasn't Walmart.com, but it was similar type stuff. National chain stores like Sears.com and other ones that were, I think, UrbanOutfitters.com that were having purchases made in my name with my card being shipped to various addresses. I, I wasn't able to... I think the addresses they were being shipped to were drop addresses. They weren't even addresses that uh, of people who were accomplices. These were addresses that were probably determined that people weren't home and that people would just grab the packages in the daytime. That's a common trick. Anyway, in some cases, they still had my address on there for these orders. Presumably, they were going to change them later. But it could be from anywhere. If you use this debit card a lot, it really could be from anywhere. So it's it's not worth, at this point, trying to figure it out. If you're that curious, though, try getting a card you only use for ACR or only use for ignition. And then if it gets out, then you know who did it. From the 702, from, from a floor man supervisor, 20, 2020, 2021, and 2022 at Rio. I don't know if I believe that. You just, they can't predict that yet. That's it's just uh, not enough infos out yet on the new convention center to say it's going to stay there for those years, especially 2022, where the new owner of the property is going to have to want them there. He said, I'd been on two more years for sure. I wouldn't say for sure. I, one more year for sure. One uh, second year is a possibility to where I think it's the most likely, but could easily also not be there. From the 505 Prank calls have been at a high level. I can't believe how long you get these people to stay on. Yeah, these were two long calls last weekend, this week. Try to do more prank calls. Like whenever a story comes up that I think we should get a comment at the casino, I try to make it into a, I call it a semi-prank call. It's a prank call with purpose. 
from the 773, 23% of $8 billion revenue came from fans at ballparks last year. Could be profitable with zero fans showing up. This is referring to the stadium in Las Vegas. The problem is a lot of that revenue, is, you're talking about the remaining 77% is coming from TV revenue. And number one, the big TV contracts are going to be a thing of the past because TV has fallen out of favor with a lot of people. There's a lot less people watching TV than there used to be. So those giant TV contracts are not going to be renewed at anywhere near the same level. When And when that starts occurring, there's going to be a big uh, deflation in baseball salaries. But there's that, and then the fact that Las Vegas does not have a big TV market. It's a small TV market because it's a small metro area. So there's a reason that the smaller metro areas are, are the ones that are the teams that don't have money to spend. Uh, Tampa Bay, Kansas City, uh, Cincinnati, like all, all these, these are places that just don't have the money to spend, both from the fan interest and from the, uh, the, the market size. And that's the reason LA, Boston, New York, they've, they've got the big money to spend. Even San Francisco to some degree. Uh, so it, it depends how big the, the metro area is. And some of them just don't have the population to get the big TV money or bring in fans through the turnstiles. It just, there, there hasn't even been talk about Major League Baseball coming to Las Vegas. I just don't believe it. From the 618, they sent me a copy of an email that I also received from Total Rewards about how effective September 24th, they're going to be showing the proper tier status expiration dates. This is something that should have been done a long time ago. I don't know why they're bragging about this. I guess they're just informing people. But something stupid on the Caesars website for so long is it would tell you that your tier level is expiring on a certain date only to have it auto-renew without any further play or action on your part on that expiration date. And that's because... At Total Rewards, which is now called Caesars Rewards, your status is good for the current calendar year and the following one from when you earn it. So if you earn Diamond in 2020, then it's going to be good for all of 2020 and all of 2021, even if you don't play anything more once you earn Diamond. So if you stop your place, let's say you earn Diamond on June 30th through 2020. You don't play anymore. You earn Diamond June 30th, 2020 and stop. You will have Diamond the entire rest of 2020 and the entire rest of 2021 without playing any more at all. You're guaranteed, in fact, to stay all the way through January 1st, 2022 at Diamond. So before, though, if it, let's say on that June 30th, 2020, you go take a look at the Caesars website, it would have said before this change, I don't know why I'm talking in the future, but whatever. Before this change, it would have said expires January 31st, 21, when in reality it wasn't going to expire for another year after that. So now they're saying we're showing the correct expiration date. Before, they would only show January 31st of the of the next year coming up. Now they're they're really showing the correct expiration date is what they're saying. That's good. I have to explain this to people all the time. They're like, you're saying it lasts for two calendar years, but I only see one. I go, no, 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 you'll see it'll just automatically change on, on that date. And I, I think before that was an intentional mistake to get people playing more, to think it's expiring when it's not. But I, I guess there's too much confusion and employees complain. They got tired of explaining this to people. All right, let's take a look at the chat room has much to say. Uh, regarding Scott Seaver, I was uh, messaged, he's a fat, sniveling nerd. <laughs> Saw24 says, St. Louis only has money to spend because of the fans packing the stadium religiously. 
Yeah, and and they probably also get a lot of money spent on gear because they're they're very dedicated to the St. Louis Cardinals in uh, in St. Louis. Okay, let's move on. Next topic we're going to discuss is a topic I added during the show because I had forgotten to add it when making the agenda, and that is the circus circus sale. There have been reports, I don't know if they've been verified yet, I just saw this today, that Circus Circus has been sold to Treasure Island owner Phil Ruffin, and that it is now a done deal. I'm still not seeing verification on this. On September 23rd, there was an article in the Las Vegas Review-Journal saying that uh, MGM is in talks to sell Circus Circus to Treasure Island owner Phil Ruffin. Keep in mind that uh, Ruffin already bought from the MGM once because TI, Treasure Island, was once an MGM property and is no longer. That was several years ago. Reportedly, on September 12th, Ruffin and MGM reached a handshake agreement. I wonder if they actually shook hands (laughs) for this handshake agreement. But a handshake agreement was made for them to buy for him to buy Circus Circus and the Las Vegas Festival Grounds which is on the corner of Vegas Boulevard and Sahara Avenue near Circus Circus and that the other buyers who were interested in purchasing these two items were told sorry you lose that they ended talks with other buyers on September 13th However, as of September 23rd, neither party had signed any paperwork finalizing the sale, so it basically was agreed in theory, and they agreed to stop talking to other potential buyers, but nobody has signed anything yet. That was on the 23rd, but now I'm hearing that this has actually occurred. So, supposedly Phil Ruffin, owner of TI, now owns Circus Circus. I I don't know if they're going to combine their rewards programs. Circus Circus was notoriously excluded from MGM M-Life, despite being an MGM property. It was kind of the redheaded stepchild of MGM, MG- because Circus Circus had a different uh, clientele and feel to it than the other MGM properties. Not that every MGM property is high-end. I mean, you have, you have Excalibur and Luxor, which are definitely not high-end properties, but Circus Circus is even a step lower than that. It's not in a particularly good area. It's a property really aimed at uh, lower middle class people who visit Vegas. And I'm not saying that to be like insulting or degrading, but that's, that's really the clientele they're aiming it at and ha- have been for a long time. And that's really what you see if you go there. So they, they never really wanted to associate it with MGM M-Life because they didn't want people to go there and say, oh, well, we were expecting a certain standard being an MGM property and this is a piece of crap because it really was kind of a rundown piece of crap. It was actually okay back when it was built in the 70s, but they've really done very little with it since then. And it's, it's, it's old and beat up and, and it's, it's cheap. And it's, it's below anything else in the MGM portfolio in Las Vegas. So they, they owned it, but they separated it. So I wonder if it's going to be associated with TI, which also is an, an upper end property. 
Anyway, uh, we'll see if this happens. Of course, this is not too far from the resorts world that's being built in what I was discussing earlier of being part of the whole possible revitalization of the Northern Strip, which could make the area of Circus Circus, which really has become a has-been, relevant again. At one point, Circus Circus was not in an irrelevant area because this was before the Strip that's now known as Center Strip became uh, a big thing in the 90s. So before all those properties on that side sprung up, aside from uh, Caesars, which is already there. But yeah, there were properties there, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And it was no more of a big deal than the northern area of the Strip, which had properties that were very well known and liked, such as the Riviera, such as the Hilton. And... The uh, you know so circus circus being right there was fine, but in recent years and for quite some time that's been considered kind of the ghetto area of the strip, and nobody really goes over there anymore. But because Wynn, which is not quite as far down the strip, is fairly close to it, it's 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 probably the northernmost part of the strip that's considered relevant these days, and now you have. Resort world a little bit further north. Now Circus Circus starts to be in that group again. And doing something with that property, either renovating it or knocking it down or whatever, this could actually make it more relevant or even just leaving it and just having it become more relevant again just from its location. It's not clear what was paid for it, though it's estimated to be worth between 850 and $950 million. And it has make a, made a lot of money. It does have positive cash flow. It's just MGM doesn't like to talk about it being one of theirs and associating it with its other properties. So I'm going to take a look at one more source here if I can find that it actually was sold. But it's, no, I'm not seeing it. It's not a certainty, but these are the rumors I'm hearing that the sale's actually done and they just haven't announced it yet. I don't know how much will change other than the fact that maybe, I I don't know if they're going to wreck Circus Circus. That could be the only problem. The one reason to say they won't wreck it is that it's it's got a positive cash flow. It makes money. So maybe Ruffin just wants it to make more money. (laughs) Maybe he just wants to keep it with a positive cash flow and and we'll decide what to do with it later. So that supposedly has happened. I'll let you know when this is actually verified. When I read about talks ceasing with other buyers on September 13th, what it kind of reminded me of the second I read that, uh, in July of 2009, I found Benjamin's mom on Facebook and made contact with her for the first time in 16 years. And we were talking back and forth a lot on Facebook. And then she gave me her phone number and we talked every night for like three hours a night for uh, every day for like two or three weeks. And then she flew to Vegas to come see me for the first time since 1993. And that went very well. So after that weekend was over, I had to make a decision. And I didn't even tell her about this, but there were some other girls I was seeing at the time. Um, well, one, there was, there were two other girls I was seeing at the time, sort of, 
one was someone I actually really was seeing. And another one was someone who I hadn't met yet that lived in another state, but was planning to come to October and meet, she was going to come in October and meet up with me and stay with me. In fact, uh, this girl had told me she's like promising to have sex with me sight unseen and she, you know, she's going to come in October. Well, I mean, she'd seen pictures of me and seen, uh, so she knew what it looked like, but like she was already promising that's going to happen when she comes in October. So I had to decide what do I do about these two girls? Do I just wait to see what happens with the thing with Benjamin's mom or, or and, and just kind of stall them and, and not mention it to them and just kind of see where that goes or, or, or do I just do what they just did with uh, the other buyers for Circus Circus and just cease talks. So I had to think about it and I said, okay, I'm going to stall for about like a week or two here and see. So, but once a little more time passed and, and uh, I, I didn't see this other girl that was local and, uh, and I didn't, I kind of dialed down how much I was talking to, to either of them. But once things started to quickly get more serious with Benjamin's mom, I thought, okay, well, as much as it pains me to do this, I, I've, I've got to. So I broke it to both of them that uh, I'm going to have to stop talking to them. And I told them why. And I told the one in the other state that the October trip where she's coming to see me is not going to happen anymore. And I, I tried to be very polite about it. I tried to explain this is someone I knew from a long time ago, and we, we reconnected, and you know, so this is someone I always wanted to date back then, and and just we started talking a lot, and things just just happened, and so now I don't feel right continuing with it. So I got two different reactions. The one that was local was okay with it. She said, "No, I understand it, and if things don't work out anymore, then call me. I'd be happy to see you again." Like so, she was she had a very good attitude about it. And it wasn't like a fake good attitude because she was like very sincere about saying if, if things don't work out, then call me. Uh, the other one, the other state was really bitter about it. And uh, she eventually blocked me on Facebook. <laughs> so when, when, I, when I see my like talks with other interested buyers ceased, that's exactly what I did because we, like I didn't even have an agreement yet with Benjamin's mom that like we're, we're not going to see other people. So like I wasn't doing anything wrong, but I was like, I just kind of, Felt like I, I had to stop these talks. I had to I had to cease the talks anyway. So after I did this, I actually went and told Benjamin's mom. I did. I told her that I just called. I just let two other girls know that I'm not going to talk to them anymore, and that I'm done with the whole thing because of her. And I was hoping she's not going to react badly. Like, what? You've been talking to other girls during some of this time? Well. She didn't. She she told me, well, that's, that's funny you mentioned that because I just had the same conversation with two other guys I was talking to. <laughs> so we, but we both kind of thought and did the same thing without telling the other. But that, that's what immediately came to my mind when I read about, it's not official, but they stopped, the, the, the talks with other interested buyers ceased. I'm like, oh, I remember that. <laughs> okay. Moving along here, Al Alvarez, who was the the writer, not the buyer, the the writer of the well-known poker book, The Biggest Game in Town, has passed away at the age of 90. Obviously, that was a good 
long life he led there. You can't feel that bad for someone who dies at age 90. I think all of us here would be happy to live till 90. And uh, this this book that uh, he wrote was uh, kind of about the seedy world of Vegas poker from the older days, from like uh, like the eighties, and it was actually the first ever book written about the World Series of Poker and the main event. And it kind of introduced you to the various characters who would be playing in the World Series of Poker, the characters who were in the high-stakes poker world, which was different back then, too, than today. Today, you have a lot more of the uh, the math nerds, the problem solvers, and the people who approach this from a very analytical standpoint, who try to play what's known as a game theory optimal that didn't really go on back in those days. Back in those days, it was a combination of like hustlers and uh, shady type, uh, like long-term gamblers and uh, people who who I call uh, feel gamblers, feel players who just uh, would be able to win through instinct and pure aggression without even thinking about things like pot odds. Uh, Stu Unger was a good example of that. So that was really... I mean, there were some math-type players around in those days, like like David Skolansky, but it was much less common. I would love to see how some of today's players would do if brought back to that time and allowed to play against those players in those days, I, I have to think that they would kill it. I think the game has just evolved a lot, and uh, the really good players today would crush the big, the really good players back then. And I think that's why Stewie Unger was crushing it so much, is because he came up with a style which is kind of similar to the style of some of the really good uh, tournament players these days. I would like to play in those games back then and see how I would do. It's not possible, but I would, would have been interested to see. The book was very well-received. Everyone liked it. And if you haven't read it, and you're a fan of poker and like to know what poker was like back in those days, it, it was a lot as a lot different than now. And, and not only that, uh, the scams that take place today... A lot of that stuff, if, if that went on back then, I'm not saying scams didn't happen then, but the, the guys who engaged in the scams then were were pretty tough guys themselves who were knowing they were taking some risk. Uh, a lot of the scams you see today, uh, people would have ended up buried in the desert somewhere if they pulled them off. So there's a lot, uh, there's a lot grittier of a community back then. You, you couldn't screw around as much and get away with it. So, even though you probably haven't heard the name mentioned in a long time, uh, Al Alvarez was the one behind that book. Now, 
he claimed that his success was really based upon luck. He he was pretty humble, and he said that uh, it was he was only lucky to have uh, some of his works become as uh, successful as they were. His autobiography, which he wrote twenty years ago, was called "Where Did It All Go Right." You know, the opposite of where did it all go wrong. It's like he can't even figure out why he was successful. He died of viral pneumonia. And he was actually from London. But he said, I'm a Londoner, heart and soul, but not quite an Englishman. He was Jewish. And... uh, he actually was uh, an athlete too. I don't think he played professionally, but he was uh, he was athletic, and uh, he ended up uh, getting a degree in English in in college. So uh, he he chose the the name Al. But that was not actually his real name. Let me see what his real name was. He he called himself Al Alvarez, but that wasn't his real name. Let me see what uh, his real name was. Uh, I'm not sure. But I was reading that the, the name Al, he picked himself. He's also published some books under uh, A. Alvarez. A lot of the more recent people who've entered poker haven't read The Biggest Game in Town because it's about old-time poker and not current poker. The people you're reading about there, for the most part, are are not uh, in the poker scene anymore. Some of them are not even alive anymore. So some people who've entered poker more recently haven't had the desire to read that book. But uh, if you're interested in poker at all, you you should take a look at it. And even though it's a, a book about a long time ago and written a long time ago, you should still give it a read. He wrote it in 1983. So it, was, it wasn't just about the 80s, I guess it was about the 70s, too. He had uh, other successful books. This wasn't his only one, but it was, it was part of a, a string of, of successful book, of successful books that he wrote. He wrote uh, a lot of different works between uh, 1958 as, as late as uh, 2013. And he even wrote a poker book as recently as 2001 called Poker, Bets, Bluffs, and Bad Beats. And that was actually the the book he wrote after Where Did It All Go Right in 1999. But he did have uh, other successful books, one called The Savage God, one called uh, Life After Marriage, one called uh, Offshore, one called uh, Feeding the Rat. 
in the one about uh, life after marriage, which is about divorce, he said that uh, in a divorce, everyone behaves badly. He said uh, truth might sometimes be a casualty in divorce. <laughs> I can't argue with that. The last book he wrote was uh, Pond Life, A Swimmer's Journal in 2013. And it actually talked about how he was able to live a long time due to taking a lot of uh, outdoor dips in ponds where he lived. He thought that was actually keeping him young. He did live till 90, so maybe he had a point. I don't know. I, th- I think to keep myself young, I'm going to eat some Mad Macro energy bars. They're okay. So I see. His name was Alfred Alvarez, but he called himself Al. That's not really an adopted name. Come on. That was, that was written on the Guardian's website, which is based out of the UK. I, I, I took them at their word there, and then they had the nerve to say he adopted his name Al when it's really Alfred. It says at the bottom, Alfred. Come on. Now I, now I seem like a fool for telling you that. He died on September 23rd, by the way, so he's only been dead for about uh, four or five days. Anyway, 90 years is a good lifespan. And rest in peace, Al Alvarez, who brought a very good book to the poker community and brought the public's awareness to the World Series before, 20 years before the moneymaker boom. A major Bitcoin crash occurred this week, one I was not happy to see, because I hold right now a 2.7 Bitcoin. I just kind of accumulated them over time from various ways. And a lot of them which I accumulated were, I wouldn't say super recently, but, but when it was worth more than it's currently worth. So it's not even like I was holding it since it was way down in value a few years ago, and then uh, I've just lost some of that money. I, I, A lot of these Bitcoin I have here, I received when it was worth a lot more than it's worth right now as I'm doing this show. At the moment, a Bitcoin is worth uh, $8,222, and it, it's been stable now for a few days. There was a gigantic crash, I think about uh, three or four days ago which sent it tumbling from around uh, 10,100 per bitcoin to like around around this around 8300 8200 then there was a second mini crash which took it as low as 7800 and at that point I thought we're going to be marching towards 7500 or 7000 but then it recovered and it's been kind of sitting around the low 8000s ever since uh, whether it goes up or down from here I'm not sure now, Bitcoin was not the only cryptocurrency to take a beating. All of the major cryptocurrencies lost a lot. Litecoin especially took a harsh beating. But the truth is that all of them did. And this tends to happen. It's very rare that one major cryptocurrency falls a lot and another one it, it rises or, or, or stays the same. Usually they all fall together, which is part of the reason that these alternative cryptocurrencies as promising as they seem to people, really aren't, because when Bitcoin crashes, so do they. And if, if they were really as independent as they 
as people like to think they are, then this wouldn't happen. They aren't technically tied together, but when Bitcoin crashes, it seems like everybody unloads their crypto, which isn't good for the overall crypto market and isn't doesn't give you a lot of faith that Bitcoin's going to have a replacement. There's been a lot of talk over time that Bitcoin's going to have a replacement, but they uh, it doesn't seem to happen. So Bitcoin has lost, uh, as of right now, about 19% compared to when the crash started just a few days ago. And that kind of sucks for me when I was holding... 2.7 coins which means I lost uh, you know, around $5,000 from this which is not devastating to me but it's frustrating just to watch that value disappear especially since a lot of this I received these Bitcoin when they were worth more so I can't even console myself oh well look what you got it for you're still way ahead I'm actually uh, behind on a lot of this now, I have made money before on Bitcoin rising, where I then subsequently cash it out, but still, this is very annoying to see, and I wasn't even, like, intentionally collecting the crypto, I just kind of kept accumulating it, and like, no, nah, I don't really need to sell it, I was kind of talking myself out of it, like, what if I want to bankroll, I was really mainly keeping it, I guess I want to bankroll on some of these sites, you know, what if I want to load more money on a poker site, what if I want to load money on a sports site, I didn't want to feel restricted, so I just wasn't cashing it out, and now I feel like an idiot for not doing so. So why did it happen? Why, After a long period of stability, why did Bitcoin crash? Well, nobody knows. You know, The market is the market. It doesn't tell you why it's crashing. But there are two reasons that this is suspected. And one of them is more nefarious than the other. The first reason for the crashing was... A tool—I should say first potential reason. I can't say for sure, but it was a tool called, uh, or it's an app called Backed. B a k k t. Backed just launched, and it was the very first Bitcoin futures app. If you go to the website Backed, b a k k t dot com. It says, Backed is enabling institutional, merchant, and consumer access to digital assets in a secure, trusted ecosystem. Backed Bitcoin futures launch. We have liftoff. So this was the first time you could actually buy futures in Bitcoin. And this was really thought of being a big deal, that the financial world was finally backing down on their reluctance to embrace Bitcoin and that the basically the financial world was going to enter the wonderful community of, of, of uh, Bitcoin trading. And this was going to give legitimacy to Bitcoin if, if the U.S. financial community was going to be getting involved with Bitcoin and, and backed was seen as the sign of this. And everybody was very excited about it. And it was really seen as something that was going to boost Bitcoin's long-term value. Well, the problem was that Bact was a complete failure, at least initially. Hardly anyone wanted to use it. The trading was incredibly light. 
And it was seen, at least in the early stages, as a tremendous failure. The overall trading on backed was just a, a tiny percentage of the trading of Bitcoin overall. So this really changed the perception of whether this was going to uh, really make a big deal as far as the mainstream acceptance of Bitcoin in the financial community. The uh, Initially, Bitcoin lost 2% of its value when backed opened, but then it started to really crash. And uh, Litecoin especially took a, a harsh beating. But the, the problem was there just wasn't much interest in, in using backed. And I think like only 73 Bitcoin total were traded, something like that, something really embarrassingly low. So the Bitcoin fell big time right after Backed launched and wasn't doing well. And people are thinking that doesn't seem like a coincidence. There's some other theories being thrown around as to why Bitcoin crashed like this. But that's that's one of them. That uh, Bax's failure just shows that it's it's not going to be the game changer people thought it would be. Bax tweeted on September 23rd, the first Bax Bitcoin future trade was executed at 8.02 p.m. ET at a price of 10115 And right now we're sitting at 8200 In the first eight hours of launch, it only had a volume of 21 Bitcoin. So even though BACT comes with the uh, full backing and trust of the uh, Intercontinental Exchange and is fully regulated, it just seems like nobody's interested in it. There's still some belief it will be a long-term success. But uh, given that there was very light trading on it, no one seems that interested in uh, it's making everyone think, hmm, maybe maybe nobody really cares about Bitcoin except for uh, the small niche community. And that sent the price tumbling and it sent the other cryptos tumbling. Some even worse than Bitcoin. However, there's another theory about the Bitcoin crash, which is being tossed around, that should be explored. And that is that there is market manipulation. There's some belief that this was intentional and that the crash was brought on so people could buy up Bitcoin cheaply and then wait for the price to come back up. There have been these accusations before of market manipulation in both directions, where the market's either manipulated for it to go way up or to go way down. And it's not hard to see 
how this could happen, especially in the wild, wild west, unregulated world of Bitcoin. Uh, Forbes reported that there is striking Bitcoin market manipulation. The new research has warned of a striking systematic trend in Bitcoin price movements, with Bitcoin falling far further than average ahead of futures contracts being settled each month. Bitcoin has dropped on average 2.27% towards settlement each month, compared with an average fall of just 0.06 on a random day over the same period. Adjusting for large outliers, the researchers found that the average price movement up up 0.04% where the period before the futures contracts are settled, the price falls by 1.99% on average. Statistically, it's highly unlikely that the price falls in, in advance of a settlement. It should be more, should be caused, let me start this again. Statistically, it's highly unlikely that the price falls in advance of settlement should be caused by mere coincidence from, and that's said by uh, Bendik uh, Norheim Shai. He says that the figures support a hypothesis that the Bitcoin's price is manipulated in advance of the settlement. However, the figures do not say anything about deliberate manipulation or, or for example, only result of investor strategy hedging. And said that uh, other factors could potentially explain the pattern or show it's even stronger. They're saying that uh, maybe this isn't even like a intentional manipulation. Maybe uh, th- this is what people just naturally do when it's coming around time to settle the Bitcoin futures. Now, these futures that they're talking about are actually through a company called uh, CME, which is based in Chicago, and they've been offering Bitcoin contracts since December 2017, when Bitcoin was at its peak value. They do fe- they do settle these futures in cash, which uh, is a little different than on backed where they call the the future settlements uh, physical settlements. So there there is suspicion that whenever the CME futures come up that uh, the market falls. These physical Bitcoin futures, they're called that because they pay out in cryptocurrency rather than cash. So that's why people were excited about backed that you could, this is the first time you could actually get Bitcoin futures that pay out in crypto where before it was just uh, people buying futures to pay out in cash based upon the, the Bitcoin price when it comes time for settlement. And This supposedly, you know, it, it uh, backed is supposed to prevent market manipula- manipulation, which could happen with these cash versions. Because uh, with, with physical Bitcoin futures, they can't sell more Bitcoin than they actually have. But but uh, the ones at CME, those CME futures that we were just talking about, those actually allow more coins than are actually in circulation to be traded, and that's what the concern is about the market manipulation. So this backed was the first service that could actually do this with uh, where you get paid in currency, cryptocurrency. But unfortunately, it looks like there's not much interest in it.
So it's possible it's both. It's possible that it crashed both because Bact was a failure and because there was the usual either hedging or market manipulation involving the CME Bitcoin futures that always seems to drop around time of settlement. So always a risk with Bitcoin, always a risk that uh, shading things could be going on. In fact, this drop and then the subsequent stability we've had over the last few days could explain, could be explained by that futures thing, that uh, now that those CME futures have been settled, that it's not going to drop anymore. The question is, will it go back up? I have not sold off any of my Bitcoin. I'm, I'm holding on, but I'm not, maybe I'll regret it. <laughs> we have another Bitcoin story that I want to do shortly, but I have to take a break. And I'll be honest, I have to take a break because I have to go to the bathroom. So what I will do is I will play the Eric Benzamokin ad. He's not around today, by the way, but he'll be listening in the archives, I'm sure. But we're going to play the Eric Benzamokin ad, and then I will go use the facilities, rinse out my throat so I can feel more refreshed. And then we can continue with the remainder of the show. We have four topics left, so we're not quite done. Still have a ways to go. It is almost 1.30 a.m. And I will put on the Eric Benzamokin ad. And I will be right back here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Except I can't find the ad. That's why there's a delay. <laughs> Where is the ad? How did I lose this? Here we are. I found the ad. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. 
If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, another cryptocurrency story I have for you guys. But this one has a twist to it. This one is actually more about a very large messaging app on your phone and how that app is about to go down and disappear because of a cryptocurrency scandal. I don't know if you've heard of the app called Kik, K-I-K. It has existed for nine years. If you remember AOL Instant Messenger, it's kind of like that. It's a messenger. It's kind of also like texting, but I, I'd kind of compare it more to a messenger. You download the app, you pick a name on there, then you can message other people who you add as friends. So it's very similar to AOL Instant Messenger. It's more advanced, but really not by that much. It got very popular. It has 300 million users. And... One thing it has always appeared to lack was a stream of monetization. Kick, very simply put, didn't come up with a way to monetize itself, which given the size of that app with the widespread adoption, 300 million users worldwide, you would think they would come up with something, but they didn't. There was no sponsored content. There, If there were premium services, uh, they were only for minor things. There was You can do all the major things on the app without having to pay a penny. There was nothing when you'd use the app where you'd say, oh, well, if only I had this feature, too bad it costs money. Nothing like that. Like every single major feature on the service was free. So with the users not paying money to use it and with the app not having sponsors, how was Kick making money? Well, the answer was it wasn't. So Kick it, it continued for nine years and despite being valued at $1 billion at one point, that was at one point the valuation of the company, it just couldn't bring in any revenue. I don't know why not. I don't know why they didn't try to introduce sponsors to it. I don't know why they didn't try to introduce major premium features to it, but they didn't for whatever reason. Kick just stayed mostly the same for its nine-year existence and never really did anything to monetize. In the meantime, they had over 100 employees and were burning through money. They also had to have enough server power to handle 300 million users. Kick had other challenges. It became a favorite for pedophiles. 
Why? Because there were a lot of teenagers on Kick. Teenagers really liked Kick because it was a way they could text. And often it was a way to text without their parents seeing. Kids texting through their phone, on their phone number, often their parents would have a record of the numbers they text with, and their parents could open up their text messages and inspect what they've been writing. Kick was a different story. First of all, a lot of parents didn't know what Kick was, so they they wouldn't suspect those were additional messages on there. And second, uh, Kick was easy to clear. In fact, Kick didn't even store anything on its servers. Once you reset Kick, then it's reset and the messages are all gone forever. So teens liked it because for them, Kick meant privacy. And in some cases, their parents didn't even know what it was. But it wasn't just a teenager app. Adults used it too. And I, I would I, I don't want to say that everybody using Kick was using it for nefarious purposes. Uh, a lot of people just enjoyed using it as a, an alternate texting type app where you just add your friends there and you can text through there instead of texting the normal way through phone numbers. People also liked giving out their Kick name so they could message each other without having to give each other their phone numbers, such as people that would meet online in some way. You'd meet someone through social media or a chat system or whatever, and uh, you'd want to talk to them, and you didn't want to trust them with your phone number. You can give them your Kick instead, and this way they'd only have very limited information about you, just like AIM back in the day. So Kick was very successful. That was probably the biggest messenger that was not directly associated with another major service. Like, I'm not talking about Facebook Messenger. Obviously, that's bigger than Kick. But uh, uh, as far as independent messengers are concerned, that was probably the biggest one. And as I said, it's been around for nine years. Why they couldn't monetize that gigantic user base, I have no idea. But they didn't, and they were burning through money super fast. It would make uh, Galfon jealous with how much money they were burning through. In 2017, the money had run out. And they had to confront a grim reality there at Kick that they were out of money. The investors were tired of just pouring money into something that wasn't generating money. And that despite the size of the app, that they were pretty much going to have to be done with it. Until they came up with an idea that they had a way to save it and raise some more money quickly. Ted Livingston, the CEO of Kick, was a fan of cryptocurrency. And he said, we should make our own cryptocurrency. We should make it here and we should associate it with Kick, And we should have an initial coin offering where people can buy this cryptocurrency, and that'll instantly raise us cash we need to continue operating Kick. So they came up with a cryptocurrency called KIN, K-I-N, very similar to Kick, K-I-K. So KIN was their cryptocurrency, and they had an initial coin offering for where they, I think they gave away like a billion or more than that, they, they gave they, I forgot how many uh, how, how many kin they sold 
But uh, anyway, they raised almost nine, almost a hundred million dollars. They raised ninety-eight million dollars. They got suckers to buy ninety-eight million dollars worth of kin. This cryptocurrency they invented out of the air. So now they had ninety-eight million dollars of funding again. Pretty good, huh? And they hoped independently that Kin might actually catch on and, and become a real cryptocurrency. In January 2018, which was at the very peak of the crypto prices, one Kin was worth 0.12 cents. Not 12 cents, but 0.12 cents. You may say, well, that sounds like it's not doing well. Well, that, that was doing great compared to how it's doing today. In January 2018, it was worth 0.12 cents. Today, it is now worth 0.0008 cents. <laughs> One kin in those days is now 150 kin today. <laughs> so it declined in value since January 2018 by a factor of 150. Even since March of 2019, it has declined by a factor of nine. The daily volume of kin is less than $1 million worth of trading. But even worse, the market cap of kin, that is all the kin together, is worth less than $7 million. So $98 million was raised through this initial coin offering. And now all of Kin, not, I'm, forget the, the 98 million didn't even buy all of Kin. The 98 million just uh, bought what they sold of it. Now all of Kin, if you, you could buy every single Kin that exists for less than 7 million. So that shows you how much these people lost who bought it when it was first sold. You may say, okay, well, a lot of cryptocurrencies have fallen upon hard times. They're not as bad as this. But okay, that, that's the nature of them. But no, let's look at why Kin was created in the first place. It was created to rescue Kick, because Kick was out of money. As a result, uh, there's a lot of suspicion that Kin was never a serious cryptocurrency that was seriously meant to be traded or used, that it was just a sham a bogus cryptocurrency that was pushed as if it were real, but was really just offered to people to raise money for Kick to continue operating. And then at that point, anything on top of that was just gravy. But if it didn't do anything from there, then Kick already got what it wanted with $98 million worth of new funding. The Securities and Exchange Commission was very unhappy about this, even though... Kick is not based in the U.S. It's actually based in Canada. In fact, Kick has been notoriously uncooperative with law enforcement over time involving abuse of their service. They will not store messages, so it's hard for law enforcement to get message history to prosecute criminals who've been abusing it. And also, Kick has been known to sometimes rebuff law enforcement requests for information on users. So there's been a lot of controversy about Kick over the years that they've been enabling pedophiles and other criminals and 
really not cooperating with law enforcement very well. So anyway, as I said, they're they're Canadian. But the United States Security and Exchange Commission got involved here because most of the people who bought the kin were in the U.S. And the SEC suspected that this whole thing was a sham. And the SEC decided that this was actually an unauthorized sale of securities rather than a legitimate initial coin offering. So they went after Kick over this, that they had committed an unauthorized sale of securities and that they were seeking massive penalties against Kick for having done this without having uh, gotten permission to sell securities like this. Kick's defense has been the whole time that Kin is a real cryptocurrency. It is not a security and that the SEC should not be getting involved. In the actual complaint that I read, the SEC called the offering of Kin a Hail Mary attempt to save Kick. And I have to agree that does appear to be accurate. In that same, in that same, uh, uh, in that same complaint, it says, from May to September 2017, Kick offered and sold one trillion. Oh, wow, it was one trillion, not one billion. One trillion digital tokens called Kin. More than 10,000 investors worldwide purchased Kin for approximately 100 million U.S. dollars in digital assets. Over half of this sum coming from investors in the U.S. However, Kick's offer and sale of Kin was not registered with the SEC, and investors did not receive the disclosures required by federal securities laws. And, and they're also further saying that uh, they can't even hide behind that this is a cryptocurrency and not, and they're not, this wasn't a sale of securities because this wasn't a real cryptocurrency that it was just being used to raise money for the kick project. And that it exactly coincided with when they were out of money and that the, the whole thing was a sham and that this kin was not really intended to be anything but that. Well, Kick has been trying to fight back that this isn't true. They've been asserting that this is a real cryptocurrency, that the plan was to utilize this through Kick and to actually give these out through Kick and, and have these become a currency that's used through Kick, where which users can trade with one another, and that it really is a cryptocurrency, and just because they held an initial coin offering when they needed money was it was a coincidence. So they're fighting. They're still fighting the SEC. And the problem is that at the same time, they're still operating kick and still burning through a ton of money. And they still have to pay over 100 employees per month. So finally, now that they're out of money and probably have blown through a lot of that $98 million, now they have to take drastic measures. And what they've decided to do is shut down kick altogether. Not trade it, not sell it, but shut it down. Which is amazing because this is a valuable app. I would think it would have a lot of sale value, an app with 300 million users. There's a lot of companies that would buy this for a lot of money. But they don't want to sell it, nor do they want to continue taking on the expense of operating it, probably because they can't afford to. So they're simply going to be shutting it down on October 19th, which is the ninth anniversary of Kick's opening. 
which that the date they chose on purpose, but the they only chose that because it happens to be close to when they've made the decision to shut it down anyway. They they just made the decision at the end of September that they're going to be shutting it down. So they think, oh, October 19th, not too far from now, we'll just make that the shutdown date. So on October 19th, 2019, Kick is going to shut down, and if uh, you have a Kick account, it's just going to stop working. The whole thing's just going to stop working. Which is amazing. It's, it's a huge app. It's just, it's just going to shut down on October 19th. What are they going to be doing after they shut it down? Well, they're going to be putting all of their resources into fighting the SEC about the kin matter. They're going to lay off over 100 employees, and they're going to leave what they call 19 elite employees to stay and invest 100% of their time in kin and in fighting the SEC to keep kin alive. So the question is, why are they giving up on the much more promising product, Kick, and trying to continue with and fight for a failed cryptocurrency called Kin that never caught on? It is possible that they're facing such potential steep legal liability, as far as fines are concerned, for what they did with Kin, that saving kick is not material at this point. That if they can't beat the the SEC with this kin case, that uh, the funding to continue kick will be gone anyway. So maybe they're really just giving up on kick for the moment to try to take all they have to fight against the SEC and win the kin matter, and then decide what to do from there. But I, I can't really see this ending well either way. Even if they do beat the SEC after all this. Once Kick shuts down, they're not going to get their users back. People will move on. They'll go elsewhere. They use other, it's, it's kind of like, think of AIM, which they, they closed that voluntarily, but like if they reopened AIM, would, would people really go back on there and, and start messaging through AIM again? No, they'd, they'd have moved on to other messengers like Kick. So that's the same thing going to happen here. But the people using Kick are going to move on to other messengers, and they're not going to come back to Kick once Kick is, is, is gone and stops working. So I don't see what they're even trying to save here. And Kin is not a real cryptocurrency, nor is it ever going to be adopted by anyone, and no one's going to care about it. So I, I really think this is just their backs are against the wall, and this is all they can do. They, they can either continue operating Kick and have much less money to fight the SEC with, or, or shut down Kick and use every available resource they have of whatever money they have left to fight the SEC and, and hopefully stay alive. So they, they're, they're probably just in desperate mode, and they they have to do something about it. Wigener, who posts on the forum, said, This looks like a desperate play to rebuff the SEC claim that Kin was a sham, and that by abandoning Kick, they'll be able to assert that Kin is the more genuine venture, and therefore the ICO was not a scam. That's an interesting theory. That without Kick, they'll say, Hey, look, if this is really all about Kick, then how come we're shutting it down voluntarily? How, how come we're putting everything into fighting for Kin if Kin was just a sham that we don't care about? Why are we shutting down what you think is the major product so we can fight for the minor product? That could be that, but I, I still think this is just more about they've got a choice with the, with their case funds. They, they don't have much money left. So they can either use some of the money to operate kick, which isn't bringing in any money anyway and won't be for a long time or ever. They can keep wasting money on that or, or they can shut it down and fight the SEC with every penny they have left. And then once they win that, then they can decide where to go with kick. But I have to think either way they're screwed. 
And there are some in the crypto community who are giving a hard time to the SEC about this. They're saying that the SEC is just trying to find a reason to call ICOs, the initial coin offerings, securities sales, so they can go after companies and destroy cryptocurrency. But at least in this case, I feel the SEC's action is warranted, because this does look like a sham sale. If they're allowed to get away with this, then basically any company that is starving for funding can just invent some BS cryptocurrency, push it as the next big thing, do initial coin offering, and sell this uh, basically sham cryptocurrency to raise money and then just kind of abandon it and not care about it anymore. Then wherever wherever it goes from there, it goes from there. So the SEC is starting to get concerned with these initial coin offerings, given that there's so many cryptocurrencies out there. There's thousands of them, and they've got to look, okay, how many of these are real attempts to become a cryptocurrency on its own merits, and how many of these are just funding exercises for, for other things? How many of these are just sham cryptocurrencies where they can trick enough people to, to buy into them? People who are trying to think they're buying into the next Bitcoin on the ground floor. And they're using their one weapon at their disposal to call it a sale of securities in order to stop it and punish those who are doing it. Uh, I have to agree with them because otherwise if they don't, this is going to go crazy. If, if, if uh, I didn't even know Kick had done this, I hadn't heard of this until I, I heard the news Kick was shutting down. And then I, I was trying to look into why something so huge would go down like this. And then I got into this whole story. But think of how many other companies would start doing the same thing if there's no consequence to just inventing a phony cryptocurrency and selling and starting initial coin offering and, and selling off uh, many millions of dollars of it when you have no plans to the cryptocurrency itself and don't really believe in its viability. So the SEC does need to monitor for situations like this, and this one was a, a slam dunk, a very obvious situation where the company was broke and talking about how they have to shut down. And then suddenly this cryptocurrency shows up with an initial coin offering and they make $98 million. This couldn't be more clear what really happened there. Now, separately, they probably say, okay, yeah, sure. We, we hope this works. Like it's not like they think, oh, we hope Kin fails. They, they want Kin to work. Then they'll do even better. But that wasn't the main purpose of it. The main purpose has already been achieved. If it also happens to succeed, then great. But that it's very clear why they started this kin. Timing was not coincidental. That shows you just one of many ways that these uh, small cryptocurrencies can be abused and why a lot of these are a sham. A similar scheme was hatched by Venezuela when their currency was crashing. And they came out with some sort of some sort of sham cryptocurrency that they uh, claim was run by the country of Venezuela. And Donald Trump actually said he was forbidding Americans from buying it, and he was actually right because it was a sham to try to get money into that country. Again, it was not a cryptocurrency that was invented for any reason other than just raising money for the inventor of it. It. it did not have any real plan for utilization. Nor was anyone interested in using it. That's that's the danger here, is that people are, people are so 
they're, they're so regretful that they missed out on the initial Bitcoin train. If only you had bought Bitcoin when it was $5 and held on to it all these years, how rich you'd be. I even have Benjamin saying that to me. Of, Don't you wish you, you bought uh, 10,000 Bitcoin when it was only 5,000 each and you only paid $50,000? How much money would you have now, Daddy? Like he asked me that. <laughs> so even an eight-year-old thinks like that. So here you have the chance to get on the ground floor or something that seems like it could be big. And they, they thought, wow, this is genius because Kick is so huge. And they figure, hey, this is a cryptocurrency that's going to be backed by Kick and promoted by Kick. And hey, maybe it could actually work. And people are going to think that this isn't just some random crypto showing up. This is one that's created by Kick. That's such a huge messaging app. Maybe if they push this on, on the app that people are going to want to use it. And uh, this is going to encourage people to want to buy it and think they were going to get into the next big thing. So that's why it was it had appeal. That's why so many people bought it. The funny thing was in this blog that was posted on Medium.com by CEO Ted Livingston. Uh, listen to this at the beginning. Two years ago, we set out to build a new economy that offered equal opportunity to billions of people. Today, millions of consumers and hundreds of developers have come together to build this better future with Kin. When it comes to consumer adoption, Kin is the most used currency in the world, by far. (laughs) What is he talking about? No, it's not. No one uses it. It's not used at all. It's a failure. It's a flop. That's why the SEC is coming after you. Kin is not being used. It's barely being traded. The whole market cap on it is less than seven million. It's the most used cryptocurrency in the world by far. When I saw this, I'm like, "Have I missed something? My, my following of, of, of cryptocurrency markets is there? Have I been missing a major coin all this time? It's been there and it's been heavily traded, and I just didn't know about it for two years. And I look it up, and I, I see the truth." This guy is, I don't know if he's delusional or if he's just lying. I, I don't know what the hell is going on here. He says, but all is not well. After 18 months of working with the SEC, the only choice they gave us was to either label Kin a security or fight them in court. Becoming a security would kill the usability of any cryptocurrency and set a dangerous precedent for the industry. No, labeling it a security would, would, would get you a huge fine. That's why you don't want to do that. So with the SEC working to characterize almost all cryptocurrencies as securities, we made the decision to step forward and fight. So he makes this whole blog sound like he's fighting the good fight for all crypto, not that he's trying to defend what seems to be a sham coin that he sold for $98 million when his company was out of money. What a joke. Kick really screwed the pooch. I mean, with with how widely adopted it was for it to not only lose money but actually not even generate money was just uh, a crime i mean i don't i don't know what they've been doing the last nine years to where they didn't come up with some kind of monetization idea and if they figured they just couldn't monetize it they should have just sold it they should have sold it and said let someone else do it because it had a lot of value I don't know what the hell they're doing. In the chat room, John Commode said, because there will only be 21 million Bitcoin ever, 
and millions have been lost forever. There's you know, ones that are stored on computers that have been thrown away, like Cal Watts and things like that. Long-term Bitcoin holders will be rewarded. Alts, referring to altcoins, alternative coins, are dubious long-term value and kind of a crapshoot. They're worse than a crapshoot. Most of them are going to be a huge waste of money. And a lot of them are just scams. Okay, so we're going to move on to talk about the micro-gaming network. The micro-gaming network is a network you can't play in the U.S., so you may not have heard of it if you're an American listener. But it's been around for a while, and it uh, they've announced that they're going to be shutting down in the year 2020. And in the meantime, while we're waiting for that date to come, they're actually going to still just run online poker as usual. They claim that anybody can cash out at any time. They claim they're not broke. They're just simply going to be ending online poker. For some time now, I've been carrying out an extensive review with the poker product here at Microgaming with input from poker industry experts, independent consultants, and my colleagues around the world. The conclusion of the review was that for poker to be as successful as possible, we had to adopt a very different strategy and business model. Ultimately, the poker network is not part of that vision. That was from managing director Alex Scott. He posted in a letter to everyone online who was interested in reading it. I'm sad to confirm that Microgaming Poker Network will close next year. And he insisted that everybody's money was safe, said that the Microgaming Poker team is committed to seeing this out with dignity, and that they will be providing full services up until closure, meaning that they're still going to have tournaments and cash games. He also said that the current funding of the current player funds are segregated from the operating funds of the business and that there's no danger of the company just running off with everyone's money. Of course, he could say that. That may not be true, but that's what he said. He said that they're expecting the network to close in quarter two or quarter three of 2020. Now, this is a network. What he's talking about here is that he doesn't think that having a network of independent sites is the way to go anymore. The way a network works, I've explained this before, but since it's been a little while and some of you are new, user, new, new listeners or may have forgotten, I'll explain quickly again. A poker network is where there's a centralized server that runs all the games, and then there's independent sites that are owned by individ, individuals who are not uh, owners of the network, usually. And they do all the promoting, and sometimes they manage the money, sometimes they don't. It sounds like here at Microgaming ma- that uh, Microgaming manages the money. But So basically, anyone who wants to run a skin, they pay some kind of fee to get the skin. And then they customize it to look like their own site. They put on their own graphics and whatever. They name it, whatever they want. And then they market it. They spend their own money marketing it. And then they connect to the network. The, the site connects to the network. And there's already poker games running. So people sometimes like joining networks with new sites, people meaning ones who own new sites. They like to join networks because there's already games going rather than having to build up traffic on your own. You're just joining an existing network. That's what's known as the network model. And and once these sites are going, once these skin, they're called skins, once these skins, which are the sites that feed into the network, once they are going, 
they basically deal with a rake split where the network keeps a certain percentage of the rake and the skin gets the remainder of the rake. And the way that split is, it varies from site to site, from network, network to network, actually. The, there are several micro-gaming sites. None of them are U.S. accessible. But uh, six of them include BetSafe, Grossman or Poker, CoolBet, 32Red, NordicBet, and OneTime Poker. These skins are not required to stay on the microgaming network. At any time, a skin can choose to leave the network and go over to a different network. Of course, they can't transfer accounts over that easily because the accounts are actually managed by the network, but they do have all the player data, and they can simply email a link for people to sign up an account new on whatever new network they join. There have been sites that have jumped networks many times in online poker history. So these existing sites may not stay on microgaming for very long if they know it's going to be shutting down the network sometime in 2020. They probably A lot of these probably won't stay till the bitter end. They'll probably immediately start searching for other networks. Now, microgaming claims that they're not done with poker. They claim that they're actually going to return to poker, just they, they're not going to use the network model. They're implying that what they're going to do is start their own site and just manage everything themselves. It's no longer going to be the microgaming network. It'll be some kind of poker site they run with no other skins feeding into it, kind of like poker stars. I don't know exactly why they'd be doing that, but they seem to believe that the network is not making them much money anymore. Maybe it's not making money at all. And they have decided that they're done with it and they're going to simply run their own network. The reason they might want to is because then they keep 100% of the rake. Now, they do have to spend their own marketing money to do it, but they may figure it's worth it. They may figure they're just giving away too much of the rake to these skins and that uh, it would just be better off they ended the network and started their own thing. Uh, Microgaining, they, they claim, I think they're the ones, I think they're holding the money, which is usually better when the network holds the money. The problem when the network doesn't hold the money is that then you have to trust the skin and often the skins are just run by individuals and sometimes individuals with very little money. And if that individual steals your money, there's little recourse and often the network will not cover it. The, the very legitimate networks will cover it when a skin steals money, but a lot of networks just kind of throw up their hands and say, hey, we don't care. Uh, it's between you and the skin operator. Leave us out of it. We just provided the games, which I think is crappy. Like the, They'll kick off a bad operator, but they and sometimes they won't even do that. But the, they'll sometimes kick off a bad operator, but they won't cover for them. It's a lot better when the network holds all the funds because they're less likely to go under. From what I'm reading in this article, it appears that the microgaming network does hold the funds. If you're on microgaming, I would have advised just getting your money off. You never know. They claim they have the money. They claim the funds are segregated, but who knows? As the, It's definitely going to die down over time as more and more skins leave it and as more people just leave it knowing that its days are numbered. So why wait to the end when they may or may not have the money to pay you? So if you're on micro gaming, I would suggest that you get your money off. 
It is nice of them to give you notice. Usually when these networks shut down, they just abruptly do so with zero notice or very, very little notice. So the, the fact that they're giving like a year notice or maybe a little bit less, but you know, six, nine months notice, that's, that's pretty good. And that at least is a sign that they probably do have the money, at least at the moment. But still, I'd probably be getting off there pretty soon if I were playing on there, which I can't. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. Two more topics here, and then or actually, one more topic here. We're, we're, then we're done. I thought we had two more. We actually have one more. Our last topic is not going to be a long one. It is about poker stars and a fine that they were hit with by the Netherlands for illegally operating there. My, my, my. So a fine came down, a 400,000 euro fine, which I think is around, uh, it's not quite $500,000, but it's a lot more than $400,000. It's probably uh, $470,000 or something, 460000 I haven't looked what the euro price is these days. But yes, PokerStars was fined for operating... In, uh, in the Netherlands for, quote, illegal gambling. From iGamingBusiness.com, it says Dutch gambling regulator KSA has fined the Stars Group 400,000 euro for operating without a license in the country via the PokerStars EU domain. The KSA carried out an investigation into PokerStars EU during the second half of 2018 and identified a number of factors that showed the site was targeting Dutch consumers. In its finding, the KSA said the site was accessible from the Netherlands despite the Stars Group not holding a license in that country, while customers were able to deposit funds using Ideal, an online payment method only available in the Netherlands. Other factors include an inside contact form published in Dutch language and the mention of two Dutch problem gambling organizations. In addition, the Netherlands was not mentioned in a list of countries from which gambling via the website was not permitted. The KSA also noticed that ne- noted that the Netherlands classes poker as a game of chance, and only Holland Casino is allowed to offer real money poker services at one of its land-based sites. So that's interesting. I guess they were kind of gray market there. Gray market is where you're not specifically prohibited, but you're also not allowed. And it appears that uh, poker stars thought it was gray market, and Netherlands thought it was black market. Netherlands is saying, look, there's only one casino allowed to offer real money poker, and that's Holland's Casino, and you're not Holland Casino. And for that reason, you're black market. And clearly, it wasn't just that our customers were signing up for your site, but that you guys were actually targeting Dutch people with your marketing, which are two very different things, of course. It's a, stars couldn't just come back and say, hey, you know, we... we yeah, we didn't block the Dutch IPs, but we weren't trying to get Dutch players there. They were pointing out all these different things that showed that they were gearing the site toward Dutch people, such as they uh, they were able to, identi- to deposit funds using a provider that is only serving Dutch people. So they wouldn't, of course, wouldn't accept that provider if they didn't want Dutch people on there. And that they had a, a form on the site that was actually published in Dutch and uh, that they actually had links to two problem gambling Dutch organizations if you were having uh, 
a problem with losing too much money on there. So they're saying, look, we you have the whole thing set up for Dutch people. Obviously, they were expected to be playing here. And you went out of your way to allow them to play here, even accepting a payment processor that's only for Dutch people. So you can't just say, oh, we can't control who signs up here. You you clearly were trying to get Dutch people on here, which which is true. So the Netherlands said, uh-uh-uh, you are going to pay $400,000 for this, or 400,000 euro, which is more than $400,000. And I believe the STARS group is probably going to pay because uh, they can probably get into issues where they are legal if they if they don't pay that. It doesn't say here if Star is actually paid, but since it's only four hundred thousand euro, they probably did. How do I feel about this? I feel fine. You, you, they have to follow the rules. They can't just decide that they can offer online poker in the Netherlands when the Netherlands very clearly states that only one company can do that. It makes the whole licensing process a sham if poker stars can just waltz in and do what they want without a license. So yeah, if there's a licensing process in a country and then you ignore that and you offer games anyway, yeah, you're going to get fined. And that's the way it should happen. This shouldn't be seen as an attack on online poker or greed. This should be seen as, hey, follow the rules. Follow the law here. There's, there's regulation for a reason. There's a process for a reason. You can't just decide you're above that. So I wonder how many other countries are going to try this as well that notice that PokerStars is operating there and marketing to them even though PokerStars does not have a license. So we'll see if there's more of these in the coming months and years. Well, what there will be more of will be more radio shows in the coming months and years, but not tonight. Tonight we're done. And I I have to admit, uh, tonight I'm kind of struggling towards the end here. I kind of have some vocal fatigue tonight for whatever reason. So I'm kind of glad the show's ending. Though it has been going for about five hours. So I have talked for a while. And thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Thank you, Trader Ruski, for being on earlier with me. If you're a new listener or I haven't heard from you before, feel free to text me and tell me how you found the show and what you like and dislike about it. 775-372-8355 is the number to text me at any time, morning, day, or night. I will never be mad at you for texting me at a weird time. And I will respond to you in most cases. Our next show, I'm not sure about. Um, It'll probably be on Thursday night. Friday night... Actually, no, I I could... Hold on a second. Let me stop this for a second. This is important here. Uh, The Dodgers' first round of the playoffs is going to be on Thursday and Friday. I'm going to watch both games. And the time has not been announced yet. At least last I looked. If Thursday is a day game or something that's going to be over like long before radio starts, then we'll have a show on Thursday. Probably. But if it's a night game, if it starts at, I don't know, 6 p.m. or something, they're probably not going to have a show. So they're going to be playing on Thursday and Friday, and then they have an off day on Saturday. So the next show may actually be Saturday. I'm probably going to go to one of these two games on Thursday or Friday. So we're going to have to work around the Dodgers here and how to do that until they're out of the playoffs or win the World Series. 
because I'm going to want to see all the postseason games either on TV or live and in person. So check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert to see when the next show will be. Right now it's uh, to be announced. It will not be on a day I go to a game physically, and it will only be on a day of a playoff game if it's a daytime game, which will be over by the time radio would start. So I have to fit it in. But if the Dodgers are knocked out of the playoffs, then I'll lose interest in watching the playoffs as much. Like, I'll watch if I'm around, but then it's not as important. Then if it interferes with radio, no big deal. I'm just enjoying the music, just sitting quiet. This song is actually written by Roger Kellaway, who's a jazz pianist. It's called Remembering You, and it's specifically written for All in the Family. For the end theme song of All in the Family. Now, the only is a portion of it for the show. Anyway, thank you for listening. That is all for tonight. And don't patronize tournaments that have misleading terms. Whenever you see that crap, don't go and tell them why you're not going, and maybe they'll get the message. Take it from the colonel who showed up to Maryland Live with $400 even in his pocket and couldn't add on. Good night. Shalom.